I get a call. He's like, yo, you want to come to Hawaii? And I'm like, to do what? He's like, just for the vibes, man. It's so ill. It's so peaceful. Just come and hang for a week. I'm like, all right. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I have to do this. I go to Hawaii and I witness the process for a week. During the like, whatever, five nights that I was there, the dude never slept in his own bed once. Kanye would like literally work until he fell asleep in the chair sitting up. And I remember there was one night, it's now like 4, 4.30 in the morning, like everyone has cleared out. But me and Steven were with Kanye. He's completely like snoring. I'm like, yo, you think we should get a cab? He's like, yo, we gotta be quiet though. Close the laptop. And I'm like, the sofa creaks. And Kanye's like, well, yo, what are y'all doing? Y'all aren't leaving, right? I'm, I'm still working. And we're like, Oh, no, I was just going to the bathroom. <laughs> this is Noah Callahan Beck. He was the editor-in-chief of Complex for over 12 years and helped create shows like Hot Ones, Sneaker Shopping, and Everyday Struggle. He now has his own show, Idea Generation, which is amazing. He's been in the music industry his entire life and has some of the most amazing hip-hop stories I've ever heard. Today, he tells me what it's like being in the room while Kanye and Jay-Z made Watch the Throne, the time him and Eminem ran around L.A. before he was famous, and how he gave Kim Kardashian her first big break. This is a long one, people, but an amazing conversation nonetheless. So without further ado, enjoy Noah. Welcome to camp. I'm actually curious, is this something no one has brought up? I listened to a bunch of interviews with you. This is natural? Yes. Bro. Yeah, when I was like 15, I was wearing a hat backwards and you know, with the open joint, a friend of mine was like, yo, you have white hair, B? And I was like, no, I don't, that's crazy. I look in the mirror and I was like, holy shit, I have white hair. Yeah. I have to say, I'm very uh, grateful to whoever has placed it there. Yeah. Could be in a worse spot on my head. But. Bro, I mean, this you're like a supervillain. It's like insane. <laughs> like, this is like some Batman shit. You're like, not the first person to call me a supervillain. Bro, you're trying to like destroy Gotham or something. Like, <laughs> that is crazy. You got just like the one perfect swoop. Like, that's a, that's legendary. Thank you. And, you. and you play into it too. You know what I'm saying? I see you with like the slick back. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? Yeah, exactly, dude. That's sick. That's why I actually really like about your stories. It seems like you were always going to make it. You know what I'm saying? Like, at least from the outside, like it's easy for me to say, like retroactively looking at your timeline, like you were just hustling. I, I think you have, all the guys I met from New York, cause you grew up in like lower Manhattan. Yeah. All the guys I knew that grew up in New York that have like a combination of like intellect, but also like New York hustle are always gonna figure it out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's very much a culture here where it's just like, yeah, we're I'm not gonna like settle for sort of like this B plus life. Like I'm gonna go get it. And I don't know, it, just from the way your story kind of pans well, out. I mean, I think the thing is like, you grow up in New York and like you have access and you, you know, you you see this in like the conversations that people have about representation and whatnot now. It's like, when you're growing up in lower Manhattan, you see everything. Yeah. You see people making millions of dollars on Wall Street. You see rappers walking through the streets, you know, in Soho. Like my whole story was, I got an internship. I called Nervous Records. When I was 16, I, I just loved Black Moon and Smith and & Wesson. And I saw that they, you know, I looked them up in the phone book. I saw that they had an office on 42nd Street. I called random, just the, you know, whatever the main number was. And I got an internship and I was cutting stickers and like calling like uh, retail and just getting like information to give to the different promo and, you know, marketing people. And, you know, again, I like, run into Buckshot Shorty and Druha when they get into like a huge argument with the owner of Nervous Records. Yeah, This is funny actually. So they get into this huge argument um, with the owner of Nervous and my boss, Chris Thomas, uh, kind of like excuses me and is like, yeah, bro, it might get a little hectic in here. I think you should bounce. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I bounce out to the elevator bank and it's like one of these old school New York buildings where there's like two elevators 
and there's like 60 floors. Yeah, of course. And, and it takes hella long for it to go up and down. So I hit the button and I'm just waiting for like eight minutes. Yeah. And you know, I'm just listening to my Walkman, not thinking anything. And and I rate Buckshot Shorty and Druha come storming out of the office and now we're standing awkwardly <laughs> next to each other waiting for the elevator together. And Buckshot's like, yo, you was, you're an intern in there? And I'm like, yeah, I, I am. He's like, you fuck with Black Moon? And I'm like, yeah, it's my, like one of my favorite. That's why I'm there. And he gives me a boot camp click shirt. And I was like, holy shit, this is like a prized possession. You know, this is not something you can buy in a store. This is a promo item. They had just done their deal at Priority. That summer, I'm walking down the street wearing my boot camp click shirt on 18th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. And a dude named James Azor is walking by getting his lunch. And he's like, yo, where'd you get that shirt? And I'm like, oh, I ran into Buckshot in the elevator at Nervous. <laughs> After a big blowout. <laughs> I was an intern there. And he's like, yo, do you want to intern at Priority? Our office is like right here. And I'm like, sure. So then he has me up there again, calling retail, going to the Palladium, handing out flyers. And I'm watching. Bootcamp ran their whole operation. Uh, Duck Down was like out of that office. And you know, uh, I'm trying to think who else. Like Razkaz came by the office, Organized Confusion came by the office. Um, and you know, and again, so like seeing all of this happening at 16, 17 years old, you're like, yeah, this, okay. I, I, I think there's space Yeah, here it's possible. Yes. Yeah, that was like my biggest downside, like growing up in Florida. Okay. I grew up in Orlando. I didn't know anyone that made any money doing anything creative. Literally, really? like anyone that made money was like, oh, I'm like a real estate tycoon or like I, you know, I like have a nice car shop or something like it was no one was doing anything like I don't want to say it, like these were people that were like making it based off of what they could do and people were doing well. But no one was like, oh, I'm going to like be an artist or a producer or an A&R and make money in like entertainment. It just was it couldn't even I couldn't fathom that. So I kind of went a similar route as you were like from a young age. I was like, I'm just going to intern everywhere. And I'm curious your mom is like Wall Street, busy, yes. serious, like, you know, hardworking lady. Yes. Your dad is working in video games. Yeah. Was he more creative? Yeah. So um, my dad, you know, they, they both were um, uh, history PhDs. But my dad was sort of like, didn't really want to get into academia. He was really big at like in the 60s and 70s on board games. Loved like, you know, sort of like not risk, but like. Sellers like whatever, yeah, whatever like the next <laughs> level of risk was. So, you know, when the 80s happened, he starts, there was like a wave of historical simulators. Um, and he was like, well, I have the depth of history knowledge yeah. and I love sort of like game mechanics. So let me see if I can take what I loved about playing these games um, in the 70s and turn this into a computer game. Oh, that's cool. So he made a game about Vietnam called Conflict in Vietnam. He made one where you're sort of like... Um, where you're running the allies in World War II. And I also had to play all the games to like play test them for bugs and all that kind of stuff. So you were gaming as a kid, just like, hey, test out this Vietnam thing. Yes. And you're just like in the trenches, just like in a jungle somewhere, so my, I, <laughs> 12 I, years old. I found this the other day. My first uh, professional credit, which somehow has managed to be uh, immortalized on the internet, is play testing for a game called Airborne Ranger in 1987. Wow. Yes. Dude, that's sick. Did you like the game? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, that and that was just like 87. So I'm in like first grade. I remember this pretty clearly. Like I go down to Baltimore to spend uh, spring break with him. And of course, he, you know, at the time, game developers are not um, high earning people. So there wasn't like a lot of childcare situation sure. going on. Yeah. And so he just brings me to work for the two weeks. 
And of course it's like, what am I gonna do with you? All right, cool, I'm gonna park you by this station here and just like put in all the new games that we're working on and just play them and try to find bugs. I mean, it's like a dream. Yes, I mean, right? play, play, play video games for eight hours straight. Yeah, as a kid and like you're getting paid for it, you're getting credits for it. Yeah, well, I, I didn't even know that I was gonna get credits. That, I think he thought that that was like a funny thing to put me in like the booklets and stuff. Cause then when I did see them, I was like, holy shit, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, oh, that's sick. And were you guys playing board games a lot as a kid? Oh yeah, and, and my dad was notorious for knowing the rules way better than me or my stepmom. And so he would do the thing where he would like always pull out the weird random rule that nobody else knew <laughs> yeah. in the moment, in the last moment, and then like would beat us both. And yeah, we'd of course, be like, and you'd be like, dad, that's not true. And he's like, well, I invented the game. So actually it is. <laughs> and you're like, God damn it, dude, he got us again. But yeah, that was, uh, yeah, we, we, we did a lot of those. That's cool. Uh, there's something like romantic about that. The like, I feel like kids kind of lose now. It's just like, yo, game night. Yes. Like disconnecting, even like not even a video game, but just like, yo, like let's just sit around and like we're playing Monopoly. Like my family would do it all the time. We'd like play Monopoly or like, clue or shit like that no yeah i mean me and the kids we we play uno damn near every night maybe the all-time greatest game ever invented it is it's it's so simple because like that my well she's five now but when she was four my four-year-old could beat me and my wife yeah. at uno on a random night and like feel total satisfaction out of it but it's like a nice mix of like strategy but also random luck exactly no it's like perfect but i always keep the the collect four wild card in my pocket Yes. If I were to play with my little nieces and nephews, no way you're going to beat me. Because I got that little wild card in here before the game oh, starts. Oh, you have that like tough. Yeah, I'm cheating. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm a cheater. And so we'll play. Only if my little nephew's going to beat me. He's seven years old. Like You can't, that can't stand. Yeah, no, of course. Like, what is that going to do to his perception of me as a man, right? Like, we're in the middle of it. He's about to play, drop a green reverse card on me and win. Mm -mm. Skirt. Flip it under the table. Collect four. Gotcha. If you're playing a two-person game with the plus two, mm -hmm. can you double up on the plus two? Yeah, or? yeah, I stack them. Okay, I stack them. Are you not? Are you guys not stacking at the, at so, the Beverly household? My eight-year-old is adamant that that is a legal rule. Uh, I have seen, according to the Uno Twitter, that that is not a legal rule. And you, stacking is not legal. Not legal. The, oh my god! They had they had a viral tweet about this like a year and a half ago. I got to return all my trophies. Yeah, man. <laughs> You've been juicing the whole time. Yeah, I know, dude. I was like, no, you double it up. You got it. Now it's you now. Oh, damn. What about, you can do double reverse though. That's fine. Oh, if yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you red yeah, reverse yeah, on yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can green reverse yeah, back yeah, to yeah. you. Yeah, totally. Okay. Whew. You're about to blow my mind here. <laughs> we got to get your dad in here and like settle Let all me tell you about Santa Claus. <laughs> I feel like I was late when I, I figured that out on my own though. My parents never told me. Really? Yeah, I figured out Santa Claus. Because my dad would always dress up as Santa Claus. And I'd be like, yo, Santa and my dad have the same glasses. Like, and my dad would always have like giant red frames. Like, like he like worked in France a little bit, so like would always have like these like gaudy glasses. And I'd be like, bro, Santa doesn't have the the Hugo Boss red frames. I feel like my eight year old is onto it, but she actually is kind of leaning into the mythology and doesn't want to burst her own bubble. So yeah. she's like, kind of like, cause also my wife keeps it real vague. She'll be like, you know, oh, S Santa's as real as you think he is or something like, <laughs> she'll like hit her with a riddle when she asks like, hey, kids in school were saying Santa's not real. And she's like, well. That's a very esoteric answer. Dude. Yes. Your kids are just like on mushrooms basically now. They're like, what? This is real. <laughs> Nothing is real. Everything's real. What's going on? We're all connected. Well, who am I? That's wild. Okay, so now that was the other thing I was curious about. Your parents split, and that's yes. why your name's hyphenated. Yeah. Well, no, my my name's hyphenated because my mother was a uh, liberated woman in the seventies. Oh, fire! Also, my dad was her third husband, so she probably uh. had a good idea that that might not be the end of the line. <laughs> Got to keep the Callahan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. And so I'm curious: Do you hyphenate with your kids? No. This was a 
whole. I don't uh, want to bring. I don't want to ruin your marriage right now. No, no, no. You know, we. <laughs> she was like, well, how about this? I would be comfortable being a Callahan because Callahan and Maloney are like kind of essentially interchangeable. Uh, and I was like, well, I don't know how my dad's gonna feel about that, but I feel like he opened Pandora's box when he allowed the, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, when that dash got in there. Yeah, so it's like, you know, once you do that, hey, everything's on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. the kids are Callahan's. Okay, got you. And I feel like now I'm kind of understanding like the soup of you, <laughs> where it's like, okay, we got, you're growing up in this extremely multicultural place, maybe the most multicultural, diverse place on the planet. Like, certainly among them. Yeah, like Manhattan in like, this is like 90s. And so you're getting influenced by all these different cultures. You have a very like uh, focused, hardworking, analytical mom kind of like a creative, fun dad that's like kind of doing a passion project. And then you're around people that are like chasing their dreams and you're like, okay, this is cool. And then where did the interest in like the hook for music come from? Like, why are you even reaching out to Ego Trip? Um, I mean, it was just one of those things. Like my, my dad was always a big music guy. Um, Allman Brothers are his, that's like his number one. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, some music was always around the house. I can remember him like introducing me to the Beatles. When I'm seven, I get chicken pox. We like come watch. On, all the Beatles movies, that was like how we occupied ourselves for the eight days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so music was always like super important and also interesting. So he was on that wave and my mom being in New York was like much more trying to stay relevant in her thirties. So it was a lot of like Tears for Fears and like mm. even had the Beastie Boys and like whatever was popping. Depeche Mode and eight, shit. Yes, yeah. in 84, 85, 86, like she was still doing that. My dad will, always conceded i think sports uh by huey lewis that was his last album that he bought that was like a contemporary buy yeah and he kind of was like i'm 33 isn't that funny you just like hit an age and you're like well this is what i like yeah anything else doesn't matter <laughs> like biggie's dropping bangers and he's just like nah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to know about it. although i will say i did give him some diggable planets and some tribe in the early 90s and he was definitely got very into those tribe seems like a good uh like missing link yeah, yes. I mean, between like that old gen and the new gen, like. I think, he, yeah, he started to see like the connections of like how sampling worked because those samples were like close enough to loops that it he could. Yeah, it's great it. beats that he knows. Yes. He's like, oh, I remember this. Exactly. And then, yeah, and then he really liked the second Diggable Planets album. He he was like, they, they, they like got radicalized and like on their black nationalist shit. And he just found that to be like way more compelling than the first one, which is like more like beat poetry. Right. Yeah. 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 The passion. Yes. Yeah. They're fighting for something and everyone can get on board with that. Yeah. Like, All right, cool. That's sick. And then, so now so, you yeah. So then, so then that was, so that, that was kind of like, you know, music was always like omnipresent in the household. And then, so my first like rap experience was my friend, Kenny Birch, his older sister um, was probably like six or seven years older than us. Um, she gave us a tape that had, uh, License to Ill on one side and Criminal Minded on the other side because this is 87 and these were the most popping albums. She's in high school yeah. and we're in second grade or whatever. Nice. And I actually didn't even understand at that point that these were two separate groups. So I thought, like I grew up and then I heard like KRS samples like years later and was like, wait, that's a different, oh. And then I got Criminal Minded probably when I was like 12 and was like, oh, okay, I, yeah. now I get this. That's hilarious. I remember doing that, like getting like uh, burn CDs and it would just be like 12 random tracks. Yep. And it would just be like a bunch of dudes. I'm like, yo, this guy's amazing. Like it was like <laughs> literally like 50 Cent, Eminem, like Jay-Z, all on one CD. And I was like, this guy's good. Like, like he sounds very different in every track, but he's talented. Well, yeah, I mean, because when you're a kid, you don't even like, you don't process guest features or like, I was recently 
you know, with the passing of True Glory from De La Soul, like revisiting their catalog now that it's all streaming again and like realizing like, oh, like It's So Easy was like a True Glory solo song. Like, oh, I, as a 16 year old, I didn't even like, it was just a De La Soul song. Like, yeah. I knew who the members of the group were. I knew they had different voices, but like, I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is the solo work. This yeah. Is. And so you're in New York when like New York rap is like really getting a foothold. I mean, like, obviously, like, it starts here, but then you have, like, West Coast and, like, Bay Area guys that are, like, popping off. But, like, you're in the time when, like, Mob Deep and Biggie are all of a sudden, like, blowing up. Was that weird for you? Was it cool to, like, oh, be cool. that close to it? It was crazy. I mean, like, stuff like I remember in 94, uh, a kid I went to high school with who was a graph writer that I went out a couple nights with um, got a throw up in the background of the Grave Diggers Nowhere to Run video. And, like, again, just being like, holy shit. Bit. there he is like in a rap video it's so close yeah so then you go to nyu yes drop out yes that's crazy knowing your background you're like a smart dude analytical guy i'm sure you're probably a good student like coming up right i was i was good I'm, i was like the student who was like working towards efficiency not necessarily grades it was like what's the best grade i can get with the least amount of work ah uh, gotcha um and i was always like I'm fine with the B plus. That that, yeah, work, yeah, yeah. that works for me if I don't have to do any homework. Yeah, like zero work for B plus is pretty yeah. good rather than like five hours for an A. It's like I don't have just don't have that ambition. Yeah. So if you're not going to school, what are you doing like in the meantime, so, like growing up in high school and shit? Are you like playing ball? Or are you like No, I'm just hanging out with my friends, you know, being a fake graffiti writer, listening to a shitload of rap music, watching my friends DJ in my bedroom, yeah. you know. And so coming back to you dropping out. Okay. What was the impetus for that? So I'm going to NYU um the summer between freshman and sophomore year i get uh vibe launches a hip-hop magazine called blaze um i'm an editorial assistant for the first issue um which we get out right around labor day they put me on a uh, sort of retainer as a, a writer at large so i'm getting paid you know thousand dollars a month to like write a thousand words and then during the fall of 99 um a gentleman named Dante Ross uh, reaches out to me out of the blue. Um, and Dante, you have to understand, is a, a bit of a legend. Um, even saying a bit of a legend is an understatement. Um, you know, he A&R'd the first uh, De La Soul album. He A&R'd Queen Latifah album. Wow. He A&R'd, uh, he signed Leaders of the New School, KMD, you know, God-level shit. Yeah. Um, and also some of the most iconic and an important record for me, regardless of whether or not, you know, for me and my friends, that was like the shit we listened to um, religiously. And he calls me out of the blue and is like, yo, I've been hearing about you from a bunch of different people. Um, you know, people are telling me that you're like a young me. I need an A&R at my label called Stimulated that I have um, through Loud Records. We're just, we just started, you know, putting out independent 12 inches. Do you want to be an A&R? That's amazing. It was, and you're, yes. you're like 20 years old at the time? Um, yes, 20. I mean, that's... And can you explain like the role of the A&R at that time? Like, I think a lot of kids nowadays are just like, what even is that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this is... There's like... This is totally like pre-data. So it's really just like, are, are you plugged enough that you're on the like relative bleeding edge of what's going on in music? And are you, you know, are you nine to 14 months in front of what's being made commercially available. I remember I saw Most Def perform with uh, 
De La Soul in May of 96 at Tramps um, and was like, holy shit, this, I don't know who that dude is, but like he is gonna be a fucking superstar. Mm. He's amazing. So, you know, I was like at that point living to be like, you know, a music discovery guy. And also that became my role at uh, Vibe and, you know, at, at uh, Blaze. Like I actually got the Blaze job because during the summer of 97, I used to go to Fat Beats every Saturday. What is Fat Beats? It was like the independent record, like hip hop record store. Okay. It, it was over on 8th Street. Um, and my friend Alina was like, worked the register there. And so I would meet her on Saturday mornings. We would go have lunch together and I would just kick it in the store, hang out and listen to records and talk to people and whatever. I got the Lord Tariq and Peter Gunn's song, you know, Uptown Baby. Mm -hmm. It was a like independent, 12 inch with a red sticker that just said deja vu on it. Um, and I heard it and I was like, yo, this shit is crazy. Like, and I knew the sample um, instantly because my dad is a Steely Dan fan. And I brought it to Blaze that summer and gave it to Jesse Washington, who was the managing editor, who I knew was kind of like a amateur DJ on the side. And I was like, yo, this, this shit is crazy, you need this. And he listened to it and was like, yo. And so of course that ends up becoming a huge smash I, the whole ne a summer later but he taps me and it's like I always remember you were the one that gave me that Lord Tariq and Peter Gunn's uh, record like a year before it became a hit so you're accidentally becoming an A&R before you're an A&R like you're just so tapped in with what's happening and you have a great intuition it seems like I mean that we'll learn later like I mean I I I would like to think so. Um, I mean, I feel like you got a pretty good track record of being <laughs> like, yo, like we're going to put this guy on the first cover, this guy on the first cover. Like you've, I don't want to say found, but like you have like discovered these guys right as they're about to blow. I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I have like a good sense of knowing both like my own taste and like the taste of people broadly mm -hmm. and being able to like, both discern the difference between the two and also know where the overlap lies. Um, and I think like with Complex, it was about mining that overlap because all these editors are like in their late 20s, early 30s. You know, they love music and they're yeah. like way better writers than I am. But it's happening fast. But it's happening fast. And like they're, not, they're you know, they're inundated with like free advances and free promo items and all this shit. You know, the things that happen when yeah. you are part of the industry. And I'm still chasing it. So, right. and that clouds your judgment when people are just like delivering stuff to you. Because now you're absolutely. not on the bleeding edge; you're on like the kind of fabricated version of what's. Well, yeah, and you're getting you're getting pitches, right? Yeah. It's not what you're organically like. I'm going to Fat Beats, and I'm like, what are all the records that are coming out? Bring them over to Max Glazer, the DJ. Can you play them all for me? I want to like, okay, this one I'm going to buy. This one I'm gonna, that I'm not going to buy. This I'm going to buy. Right, and you were just obsessed. Yeah, I just, I... You weren't doing this for money. You weren't doing this because you're like, oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get here, I'm going to get here. Like, you were just like, I fucking love this. No, I mean, that that's, you know, I think as part of it is the culture of hip hop is about leaning forward. And so like me and my friends from being like 11 years old, it was like, who's the one that gets the tape first, you know, that puts everybody else up on far side? Who's the mm. one that gets the, you know... Oh, I got the Outcast tape. Oh, you don't even know about that shit. These guys are from Atlanta. They're ill. Yo, but they sound like they're from Native Tongues, but they're from Atlanta. And my friends being uh, like, you know. And so the A&R is basically bringing hot shit into the label. And then I'm, I guess the magazine, like if you're an editor in chief, you're not bringing the hot shit to the people. Is yes. that like a fair, like that's the connection between the two? Yeah, pretty much. Like in a very simple version. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 sort of a curator. Right. Um, so you the know. connection between A&R and like editor in chief is like pretty close. 
Yeah, I mean, you're yeah, because you're sort of overseeing a creative product. And honestly, so that was the thing for me. So, I, you know, I had this sort of like micro career in media for three years or whatever. Then I go work with Dante for a year and a half or so. And for me, it was like a revelation that I was like, oh, I I don't like this because I'm not a musician. So... I don't feel like I'm in a position of authority to tell, to dictate to an artist what they should or shouldn't do. Hmm. Um, whereas with making magazines, I can take a piece of copy or I can look at a layout and like, you know, like when I was at Ego Trip, I was like both writing and doing assistant stuff for the editors, but also assisting Brent Rollins, the art director, and like doing all the scanning, cleaning up the images, turning them into like bitmaps and all this kind of stuff. and like. Then he eventually had me like laying out the record review sections and stuff. Mm. So like I know how to use Quark Express and like. Right. So your lack of musical expertise kind of made you insecure to be like, yo, change this shit. But you have copywriting expertise and that's much more in your wheelhouse. Yes. So you're like, yo, I can just, I can, I can make the perfect copy and the perfect article, but I can't necessarily tell you how to mix the song to make it better. That's the thing. Yeah. So it was like, I can coach a young writer or I can look at a layout and see what's wrong aesthetically. I can look at a cover and be like, the logo's got to be in this color, you know, no, sh shift the crop, let's pull in on it or, no, change the image entirely. The typefaces need to here, go in this direction. And this um, goes back to your aesthetic thing. Like you have a good design aesthetic. And so you're able to use that and pull from that little, you know, back in the soup and then bring it into this. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, yeah, and, you can make a cool thing. And 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 I love magazines too. Like I also can, just- Can you explain like the, the importance of magazines at that time? There was so little national- television coverage of hip-hop like i mean I, I grew up in an era where like me and my friends had a like two-hour vhs tape that we used to record every time hip-hop was on tv oh like two live crews making the news so you're like we gotta yes we gotta get it because because there's there's no media coverage of this in that way so then the source comes along and the source is like oh this is written by real rap aficionados, people that know way more about the shit than I do. Mm. And so that became like the Bible. You know, th this is like, I lived in New York when uh, High 97 was a dance station, right? Like it didn't become a hip hop station until like maybe 93. Yeah, that's wild. So like other than Funkmaster Flex having like, I don't know, like the Saturday night mix show, like you didn't have even consistent rap on the radio. So there was no way to gauge like what is popular. It's hard for me to fathom because I was born in 96. So it's, it's hard for me to fathom that rap and hip hop was not the forefront of American culture. Like no. I never really existed in a time when it wasn't. Like when I was like, I don't know, eight, 10, I would turn on the radio and be like, what's hot? Lil Wayne. It's also just crazy to think that like these, there were artists who were going gold and going platinum without any of that infrastructure. Like NWA, think about the phenomena that they were in 88. Like how did I find out about NWA? I don't know. But like, I knew that this was like the edgiest shit and it like, I knew it was fucked up, but I also knew it was like totally magnetic and like I had to listen to it, Yeah, you know, in 1988. And this is with records that never got played on the radio, you know, eventually. It was just getting passed through like yeah. record shops kind of thing. And then, you know, someone's older brother, you know, older sister tells you this is the shit and you're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, literally just play it. And it's just like, fuck the police. We're coming straight from the underground. And you're like, these guys are crazy. Yeah. These guys like, got attitude. <laughs> I don't want my parents to hear this, but goddamn, this is the only thing I want to listen to. Oh, wild. Yeah, it's just insane that that, 
was able to permeate culture so much, even without mainstream radio play, that it was getting to the fabric of even like a kid from New York in such an intimate way. Yeah. And, and so then basically you go from A&R shit back to like so, now editing with magazines. Yeah, well, I, I took a little pit stop. I went and worked at MTV for a year or two. And I wrote a show called Direct Effect that was like, basically they, this is funny because they realized that hip hop, you know, they had killed uh, Yo! MTV Raps, I think in like 96, 95. Mm -hmm. um, that was just like another popular show. That, I mean, that was, the, that was the defining national like forum for hip hop in, in that period. And I don't, I don't really know why they got rid of it, but it ended. And then there was this vacuum for years on MTV where they didn't really have any dedicated programming to rap music. Then and they're, they, they're still a music station at this point. Like it's still like yeah, they still they still have like you know, and then they had like M MTV jams, which are sort of like R and B and hip hop together. And in two thousand, TRL becomes this you know, or really it was like ninety eight to two thousand becomes like this phenomenon. Can you explain TRL? Okay, Total Request Live. Carson Daly's the host. It was a live daily show at three p.m. or three thirty every day. Um, where they would count down the 10 biggest songs in America. And kids would call in to basically like vote for their favorite songs. And this was like, basically they broke the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, NSYNC, all that kind of music, which there had been like a, I don't know, I wanna say like six year pause on pop music as being like a cool thing. Like you had New Kids on the Block in like 89, 90, and like Paul Abdul and all that stuff. And then Alt Rock was like the, dominant thing uh, this and is like nirvana comes in around smashing time. pumpkins uh red Incubus hot chili peppers yeah, yeah all that shit uh and then that simultaneously with bone thugs and harmony tupac you know um all the death row stuff um and then eventually bad boy um and so for the whole middle of the 90s those are the two sort of like dominant forms of music and then lou perlman and the jive records guys hit a lick and i th i don't really know if it was the chicken or the egg but trl becomes a platform for these pop groups and they just captivate like a generation of 13 year old girls for yeah. the most part. And for two years or yeah, two years, that's just, I mean, they're crushing it. Is there an analog to that now? Like to contextualize this, like if you have the number one track on TikTok or some shit, like. I mean, yes, it's, that's basically what it's like to be trend. Yeah, trending on TikTok. Yeah, is, you are the number one song in America on TikTok today. It's yes. basically like the TRL. And it was like, and it was a battle and the fans became super engaged. And so there's like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids calling in every day to like vote their favorite shit up and down or whatever. Yeah, but TRL is not on MTV. It, it was. Oh, it was. Yes, this okay. is on MTV. And so MTV then in 2000 decides that they need to like figure out how to get into the hip hop space because they've realized that this is like, you know, they've, they've sort of abandoned this. And so they, from seven to eight, they decide they're gonna have a live daily hip hop show that's shot in the same studio as TRL and their hope is to like create the same sort of momentum where people stand outside or whatever. I, they end up tapping me to write the show. Um, and you know, and then I become sort of like the hip hop guy that can sort of explain to the more senior executives who are dudes like in their forties. I'm like, hip hop isn't about being a fan. It's like about being in the VIP. So like, that's why there's nobody standing out side uh, like waving signs because right. like this is a different culture yeah like you don't that's not cool to be on the outside looking in whereas for pop music that's like the that's way the that nature you, of it yeah, it's that, like there's this star and i'm a 15 year old girl and i'm trying to touch the star and i'm okay being on the outside yes hip-hop is the exact opposite <laughs> yes so i go there and i do that is that when you met sway 
Uh, yeah, it's funny. Sway and I started the first same day. So, you know, we had a very, uh, like, instant connection yeah, and bond. For anyone that doesn't know, Sway is, you know, Sway in the Morning, legendary radio host, a.k.a. Yes. How Sway, you don't have the answers. Yes. From the infamous Kanye interview. But what was he like back in the day? Was he... Uh... Same as he is now. Just, like, super thoughtful, very, like, kind, caring dude. Like, yeah. he's every, everything that he portrays on camera is exactly... Really authentic. Yes. That's cool. And you guys immediately just, like, kind of click up. And you're yeah. Like, we're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, two authentic rap guys in the same building, like, dealing with all this crazy corporate shit. Like, neither of us have ever been around. You know, this is MTV in 2000 is, like, at its apex. This is, like, the fall that Jackass comes out. Like, this is the biggest that that station has ever been, will ever be. So this would be crazy exciting for you at the time. You're like... Oh, it, it was amazing. I mean, you know, and you're just watching, like, there's a rotating door of stars and meeting everybody um i just wrote a little anecdote about this the other day and on instagram but like you know i'm at my desk one afternoon and fred jordan um rest in peace who was the um sort of urban talent head of urban talent um who you know sort of was the liaison with all the talent and the labels so one day he comes down and he's like yo you want to hear the new jay-z album and i'm like yes i do of course He's like, yo, come up to 27. So we'd like walk up the stairs to 27 to his office. He opens the door and Jay-Z is sitting in his office. And then Jay's like, okay, I got the album. It's on a DAT and it's a digital audio tape. Fred is like, oh shit. Okay, um, I know we have a DAT player in the building. Let me go find it. Noah, entertain Jay. And <laughs> I'm just like, okay. You know, and as as like uh, socially awkward as I am today, you can only imagine what I was like when I was 21. Around Jay-Z. I mean, at this point, he had already dropped Blueprint. Like This is pre-Blueprint, but this is, he, he's about to play us the Dynasty album. Okay. So he, but he's already done Hard Knock Life. He's, yeah. he's the biggest rapper in the world. We have a very funny, awkward exchange. What's the combo? What's the well, combo? he's just like, so Fred tells me you're the rap guy, huh? And then he does like his weird like hove laugh where you're like, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know if you're making fun of me or, okay. I'm like, uh, you know, I work on direct effect on the writer. And he's like, so, you know, what's your number one Rakim verse and what's your number one Big Daddy Kane verse? And I'm like, well, Kane is obviously raw. Rakim is a little tougher, but I'm going to go with the first verse of Juice. And he's like, you're correct on Kane. You are wrong on on Rakim, and I'm like, oh, I thought, okay, I thought this was just like a subjective thing. <laughs> and then he's like, no, 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 it's my melody, it's the Seven MC theory, and he performs the Seven MC line from Rakim to me, and uh, I'm just like, well, okay, you make a compelling case. Fred is still not coming back, so he's like, pauses for a second, and is like, all right, top five albums, and he's like, you don't have to put Reasonable Dad in there, but you don't have to not put reasonable doubt in there just because I, I'm here. And I'm like, well, full confession, I wasn't going to, but it's good. It's like, you know, it's, it's like right there, but it's for me, top five. And I list my top five and then he, we compare notes. Um, and we were, I would say we were aligned on like three out of the five. I think mine was like the first Slick Rick album, Nation of Millions, Low End Theory, Chronic, and Illmatic, and he was Biggie, Chronic, Reasonable Doubt, Purple Tape, and then maybe Slick Rick also. There's something amazing about him putting Reasonable Doubt third. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Yes, he was, uh, you know, he's a confident 
Yeah, yeah, but there's also something beautiful about it. Like most, like I feel like you'd ask rappers now, and they'd be like, "No, my shit's the best. Like I'm the hottest in the game, whatever." But he was like, "No, I I respect where I'm at at this moment." He was, yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he knew that his best work was still ahead of him. Also, frankly, and I think Blueprint is clearly that. Right. Um, there's a beautiful confidence in that, like where you don't have to inflate your own work to like impress someone. But at the same time, like. You're confident enough to put in the top five. That's really cool. Yeah. So then, thank God, um, Fred finally came back. Meanwhile, before, you're like, just so sweaty, just like dude, covered in sweat. I'm just covered in sweat. <laughs> you're playing and, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> you're like, oh, God. I'm just like, what am I going to say next? <laughs> We've almost run out of topics. <laughs> so then he comes back, and then you're, you're just like, bro, I just hung out with Jay-Z. That's crazy. Yeah, and then he plays us the, the Dynasty album, which is like fucking awesome. And... Um, what is the right reaction when you're listening? Jay, Jay is still in the room when you're playing it? Oh, yeah. We, I mean, which is, there is no more awkward thing than that. And what's weird, especially, is coming at it from being a journalist and a critic, like, you don't want to, like, fanboy out. But, you know, you want to have authentic reactions to it. And, and also, you want to respect, like, this is an artist who's made this body of work, and, like, they've put innumerable hours into, like, creating this thing. Um, and so you also don't want to sort of like stone face them, you know, in an effort to like try to be unbiased. Cause you're like, I just respect you as a human being. And like, you put a lot of effort into this. And so like, yeah, let me try to just absorb it. And, you know, and it's also tough because like, and I'm sure you've experienced this with albums, but like, sometimes you listen to something the first time and you're like, oh, it's cool. And then like four months later in the right context, you throw it on and you're just like, oh, this is fucking amazing. Yes, that's like almost, I don't want to say every, but like most Drake albums for me. The first run through, I'm like, it's good. And then all of a sudden, like the third, I'm yep. like, bro, this is, how did he do this? This is insane. And like, yeah, that's kind of the thing I want to ask you is like critiquing art like that. And a lot of these guys, some of them put, you know, some of them are just kind of like drunk in the studio, just like saying whatever. But other guys are like pouring their life and their energy and all their creative efforts into creating this album for critics just to be like nah this one sucked this song about his dead friend trash this song about his mom awful like how do you balance being an authentic critic while also still respecting that someone poured their life into something i mean that that i think i am really grateful for that opportunity to work under dante and like spend that time mixing records and like seeing how deliberated every creative decision was like particularly you know, being in the studio with him and Everlast while they're making that record, like they're sweating every kick drum. You know, I could see him and Gamble there. Um, John Gamble, rest in peace, was Dante's partner in production. And like, he was really like the technical one. And like, I watched Gamble EQ a snare for like two hours, just like tap, 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 tap. You get to understand that there's such a minutia um, to what, ultimately you as a consumer experience you know if you go back and like read my writing like everything i wrote from 97 to like 99 i was kind of like a little prick and then from 2000 on i was much more deliberate and thoughtful about what i was saying because mm -hmm. i really was like no like every every consumer has their opinion and that is valid because you are creating a product that the world is going to either enjoy or not enjoy and that is their authentic lived experience with it however as a music critic my job is not to be flip or 
try to score points with like funny little digs or you know what I mean? Yeah. Like my job is to contextualize this and try to frame it within both the artist's catalog and also sort of the larger landscape that they're creating in. I can have a qualitative opinion about the music, but again, like this, I'm not the 16 year old dickhead that I was that's like, you know, cause I, me and my friends, like we had like a very, we had we didn't have money to buy every album, right? So there was like a very uh, like hard and fast uh, sort of um, hierarchy where like one person buys the tape and then dubs the tape for the three other friends. And then if the dub, if the album is really good and obviously in the process is, is something that happened in a bygone era before you before you were alive um but each dub would degrade the quality sure. and so then you would have to decide i just uh, you know reasonable doubt my one friend bought the tape and was like yo this jay-z album now you have to remember jay-z did not come out with like a huge amount of he wasn't like the anointed one like nas it was like a damn near independent record that then got picked up by uh priority actually the summer of 96 while i was working there and even working in the priority office, it was like an afterthought for the people that I was working for. Interesting. And my one friend Justin buys the tape, and like a month later, is like, "Yo, you need, you should, you should really listen to the tape. I'll let let you borrow it." You know, I was like, "That's cool. Just make me a dub, whatever." Makes me a dub. I live with it. I'm like, "This is cool," but like, I I now need to own the like liner notes, and like, I have to like know who produced everything whatever so then i would go buy the tape get the legit thing yes so like and there then this was like further complicated by the fact that we had walkman right and so we had tapes with walkmans so you had battery life and so anytime you had to skip a song you were wasting battery crazy and batteries are expensive especially when you're 16 and you like work at a comic store one day a week you know i always i got to think about the 16 year old that has eight dollars you know 7.99 and there's four tapes that are dropping this week and he's got to pick one so but again there's a way to be able to convey that information without being an absolute shithead about it yeah so that's what you would say is the justification of the critic yeah like you have an obligation to the consumer to say hey you have a couple bucks in your pocket you're a kid you're gonna buy something what are you gonna buy yeah which i think and again like that's like all radically changed during my career because now everything's on streaming so there's no cost really to checking out an album or checking out a track like what is your thought on the current state of music criticism like the fantanos and needle drops things like that i mean i i I think that they serve a purpose i but again like this the purpose becomes not necessarily to tell you like good bad but more to be like how does this fit into the larger context of this artist's work what are they what are the sort of things that they are playing with you know in terms of like thematically or intellectually and then also how does this fit into the landscape of you know sort of like their peers and their competitive set yeah and you know and then i think there's just like there are a subset of people like myself who like enjoy good criticism like you know when you think about like the new yorker back in the day they would write like ten thousand word book reviews you know it's damn near a book in and of itself about the book right um and that adds a lot of value and context and there you know were were a subset of people who would like lived and died for those like new yorker reviews yeah artists create art and that can be interpreted in so many different ways and 
some of which the artist is cognizant of and you know creating with a sense of purpose some of which are you know uh sort of like projected onto the work by the audience um and so like a good cultural critic can like sort of parse all of that yeah exactly what's up people we're gonna take a break for the quick because i gotta talk to you about the good people at morgan and morgan imagine this if you can you're driving down the street all of a sudden you get rear-ended your neck hurts your back hurts your pussy and your crack hurts and now imagine you're trying to get compensation for your injuries. You go on the internet, you're looking up all these attorneys. You're like, I don't know who to pick. I don't know any of these people. This guy seems shady. This guy, yada, yada. His last name's McCreary. His first name's Miles. You're like, I don't want to get a, you know, an attorney that's an Irish peasant. I need a real attorney. But you don't know who to go to. You know what you could do? You could go to forthepeople.com and check out my friends at Morgan & Morgan. That's right. If you wanted to, you could go check them out. And here's why. Submitting a claim to Morgan & Morgan is as easy as like ordering food on Uber Eats. It's literally eight clicks or less and you could submit a claim and get checked out if you wanted to. You could go to the website, submit a claim, eight clicks or less. And then here's the cool thing. They don't charge you a penny, not even $1 unless they win your case. It's a pretty good deal. They want nothing of you unless they win your case. That's how confident they are. They say, hey, we're going to win your case. We're going to get you paid out. They have over $15 billion recovered for their clients. I mean, that seems like a pretty proven track record of getting their clients fair and complete compensation. So if you're ever injured, you can check them out at forthepeople.com slash gagnon. That's correct. For the people, F-O-R, the people.com slash G-A-G-N-O-N, gagnon. Or you can dial pound law. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. If you're ever injured, you could check them out at forthepeople.com slash Gagnon or dial pound law from your cell phone. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I understand so much the function of the creative, right? Like the creative, and as a creative, I'm like, yeah, I understand what the value is to the marketplace. I understand the value of the curator. It's like, look, I'm going to collect all the best creatives and put them onto the people and like amplify them. It does a service to the people and to the creative. And the critic is the part that I don't associate with the most, where I sometimes give people like passes or like, I try to see the best in what they're doing, where I'm like, oh, you know, like they're trying to go for this and maybe they didn't hit it exactly right, but like just, they still poured themselves into it. And so long as like I, and again, I'm not a critic, but like it's, so long as I see the effort and the intention and the daringness in the work, I'll kind of look over even like the quality because I'm like, yo, you tried something. Like, and I really respect that. Like, even like uh, Drake's uh, new dance album. Yeah. Uh, honestly, never mind. I was like, a lot of people were like trashing it, but I was like, he's trying a new thing and he's like trying to push the form and like, some tracks hit and some didn't, but I don't know. I, I sometimes feel bad just like trashing what someone does. Well, I don't know. So people are going to like what they're going to like. And so like I, as a critic, my job is not to tell people what they're going to like. Um, it's more to just kind of like try to put context around the body of work. And, you know, that will hopefully enliven the discourse and the conversation around the work and, and like make people think about it a little differently. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, like this became sort of like my default setting when people would like to try to dispute my taste on Twitter. And it's just like, I'm really happy that this album makes you happy. Full stop. Yeah. Like, that's great. That's the beautiful part about music. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's a good approach to criticism. Like, I mean, I guess on like a micro scale, we do that just all the time. Like you have a great rap education and you came up in like this time where like you really are qualified to speak on music. And 
if I listen to an album, like art is supposed to curate conversation and emotion and feeling. So it makes, it follows to reason that something comes out and all of a sudden I'm going to call up my buddy that I know is like a huge, you know, hip hop head and be like, yo, what'd you think of this? And we'll discuss it. And I think that's the nature of like movies we do that with. We do that mm -hmm. with like meals. We do it with every type of like creative endeavor, like, hey, conversation. And that's the purpose of it. So I guess if you can wrap the idea of like a critic is just having that conversation with a big audience. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, you're just trying to like keep the dialogue interesting and mm -hmm. like, you know, try to add on to the discourse and like create a conversation around, you know, either <clears throat> an album or an artist or a movement. Um, but a bad critic is someone that's just like good, bad. When we were writing about music in the 90s and early 2000s, it's like in the 90s, it would be like, Elliot, the music editor of The Source, hits me on a Thursday night and is like, hey, here's the new whatever album. Um, I need a review by Monday morning. And so like I have 48 hours to live with a record. Yeah, that someone put their life into. Yes, that someone put two two years of their life. Yeah, you know, and it's like okay, I have forty eight hours, or even worse. Then in the late nineties and early two thousand, once stuff starts getting bootlegged, you don't even get advances. It's like come to Columbia and sit and listen to the Ghostface Killer album in a fucking shitty conference room by yourself. One listen through. One what listen, do you think? One listen, and then it's like that's not fair to anyone. And then you have to turn around this review very, very quickly off one listen. And then you have to do all the writing without the music present. And that's the shitty part of like the commercialized corporate critique landscape is that it's like, hey, we need this out by this time. It's going to print this day. We need to have your feedback within this timeline. And I feel like that probably even happens on like the internet now where some guys like the album dropped, I gotta have a reaction the first one with the reaction might get the most clicks and most views. No, I mean, I, I, they also might be doing the worst service to the work. I, I lived through that, you know, towards the tail end of my complex time where it was like, yeah, it, it was like, all right, this album's coming out. Like David, Ernest, Rob, whoever, like it drops at midnight. <laughs> like, I hope you don't have any plans, you know, please listen to it immediately. And like, let's get something up by noon, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. So then it's like, they basically can listen to it one or two times go to sleep, wake up at eight in the morning and then hammer out some copy in five hours and then we get something up. Yeah, of course. So as like a creative, like I haven't put out a ton of standup. Like I'm both, I mean, standup is a kind of a different thing than music where like if it really requires lived experience, like there's no really like prodigious writers or comedians because it requires a life to, in order to talk about yeah. and perspective and time and the reps and all that shit. Whereas like music is a little different. Like you could be you can one live, you're able to talk about your lived experience, I think a little earlier with music. And then on top of that music, I think is a much more like natural human experience that like someone could just have insane flow when they're 16. Mm -hmm. like I look at like Kodak Black and I'm like, yeah, it's just awesome music when he's 15 years old. Like that's insane. Comedy doesn't really function that way. So I am kind of slow to put out material just because one, I want it to be good for the audience and like service, like the people that, mm -hmm. that fuck with me. But at the same time, like there is a fear of criticism and I do have sort of a, an anxiety of like, Yo, some comedy critic or whatever the fuck is going to be like, this guy sucks. You know, Schultz is opener, Schultz is boy, like it's trash. And it kind of plays in my head a little and like makes me anxious. So I'm curious, like from your perspective, eventually I'm going to put out a special and it's going to get reviewed and it's going to be critiqued and there's going to be online discourse, but also like professional discourse. What is the best advice for me in terms of like channeling and interpreting that criticism? Ignore as much of it as possible. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that the professional critiques are probably the most valuable because they're going to come from a place of someone that has done what you're doing. And so their notes are not going to be like, 
I found this funny, I didn't find this funny, which again is like a subjective thing. And, you know, I, I mean, with comedy, you know, music, live music, this is the case. Albums, it's a little less, di- little, little different, but like you can say the same joke the same way in two different rooms and it, sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like, but someone, you know, Andrew or, or Charlemagne or whoever, they've been through all of that before. And they also know the sort of like nuances that are the difference between, you know, success and failure, living next door kind of thing. Like there's like very, very small things that can happen that can change how something is received. Um, yeah, I mean, whether or not people like it, I don't know, I would just let the numbers dictate that. And that's mm-hmm. the, other, the other thing is that it's like, you know, particularly as the editor in chief, I can look at the like metrics of engagement and I can tell if people liked it enough to like read it, how much time they spent reading it, did they share it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a sort of like vocal minority that are like outraged about whatever list we did. All right, talk yeah. about it. Like, so that's cool. you would suggest just block out the, uh, just like block out like the, I don't want to say random, but just like, the comments and shit like that. Yeah. And maybe pay a little bit of attention, like 40% of my energy to like professional criticism. Yeah. I mean, also just because it's like, yo, you'll drive yourself nuts. We talked about like the people that you were able to meet and have like uh, chemistry with, but also like be able to see their greatness before other people, which is like so much of your role, both as a critic, but just as an A&R and just everything you've done in your career. Uh, and I heard a story that was cool. Like the first time, I think you were with Blaze mm-hmm. and you met Eminem. What is that experience like? So, Can you tell me that story? Okay, yeah. So um, I, like I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I used to go to Fat Beats every Saturday religiously, Bagels with Alina. One Saturday afternoon, uh, a very tall gentleman, um, I believe in a business suit, comes in and starts talking to the DJ, Max Glazer. And I see him and I'm thinking like, there's not a lot of people with suits that come in here. This is weird. And then I hear my name is play over the loudspeakers. And at the time, Eminem had a 12 inch single. The only, well, he had an EP that had not been released in New York. He had a 12 inch that was released on a like total independent Is that the Slim Shady? This was uh, Just Don't Give a Fuck, backed with Low Down Dirty and uh, Just the Two of Us. Okay. And so I had that 12 inch, that probably came out in like March. And then this is now mid-May. And I hear him, but it's like his voice is much higher. Um, and this beat is like really bright and the drums are really loud. It doesn't not sound like what the single, the single was very muddy and like underground hip hop and like underground Midwest hip hop, which is like a whole different thing from underground New York hip hop. And I immediately walk over to Max and this gentleman and I'm like, yo, is this Eminem? And the dude's like, oh yeah, this is. And I'm like, oh, my name is Noah. I work at Blaze Magazine. He says, oh, hi, I'm, my name is Paul Rosenberg. I'm actually uh, Eminem's attorney. Um, and I become, you know, me, him and Max have this conversation. Yeah, we just signed this record deal with Dr. Dre. He signed Aftermath. He made these two songs and he plays that and he plays Guilty Conscience. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, also, you have to remember, in 1998, Dre was walking off like the first misstep of his career. He had put out a compilation album when he left Death Row called After, uh, Aftermath Presents that was like very derided both critically and commercially. 
Um, it was really like his first miss. And then he made the Firm album, which was like kind of like lukewarm reception. Um, and I'm like, yo, these beats are fucking crazy. And like this dude is rapping his ass off. And all, and then, you know, Guilty Conscience like, is this crazy concept song. And it's- Yeah, that's that's him and Dre talking about like the girl they have like locked up or some well, shit. They, like, they're like the devil and the angel yeah, on yeah. these three different guys. Like it's three different stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, M is playing like the devil on his shoulder and Dre is like yeah, the angel. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, I yes. remember that. And then there's like the joke about D Barnes and like, just like, holy sh- like, yo, this dude, you know, he definitely was on his, I don't give a fuck shit on the 12 inch, but this is like ratcheted up to a whole nother level. Um, so me and Paul exchange information. I set up a meeting. I run back to Blaze and I'm like, we're working on the first issue. And I'm like, yo, this kid's this Dr. Dre is back. Like this, we have to we have to cover him. He's got it. You know, we had like a up and coming section with like one page story about a bunch of different artists. I'm like, Eminem has to be one of them. I get Paul to come by the office. He plays the records. Um, and also, you have to remember, this is a time where like we're living in like a post Vanilla Ice era. So like, being a white rapper is not like everyone on the staff is like, all right, dude, come on. A white rapper that's like really good and i'm like look trust me no one wants to be championing a white rapper <laughs> less than me yeah, as the yeah. 19 year old white guy on staff like yeah don't trust me though trust dre like i'm like but this is really special i swear so they bring the record up they play it every jesse the editor-in-chief was like no nah, that shit is hard all right noah you're going to burbank let's let's go do a story now this is what's crazy is that this is like i had a one-page story that was 300 words long and they sent me to la for four nights and so I'm like staying at the Holiday Inn in Burbank. Courtesy of the company. Yes, on Blaze Magazine. I'm 19, I've never been flown anywhere. And, and actually my dad was like, I know I've been kind of like muted in my support of your pursuit of this career, but like you're 19 and someone is flying you across the country to do a story, like this is real and you should take it seriously and know that like follow your gut. Like if this is the thing for you, then this is the thing for you. That's cool. So yeah, so I go and I spend a week hanging out with Eminem and Royce while they're mixing the Slim Shady LP. Um, You know, and like, it was a totally fucking surreal experience. I mean, you know, that summer he would come to New York once or twice and so it would be like, okay, Marshall's in town. Like, all right, I'm gonna go meet up with those guys. And like, this is how we end up getting stuck in the elevator at the Doubletree Hotel. Oh yeah, what happens with that? So this is like, that's in like the beginning of June in july m gets booked on the lyricist lounge tour um lyricist lounge was like a popular underground open mic thing that happened in new york they did an album on raucous records and then they did a tour with like artists who were on the compilation but also just like whoever was popping in the underground m is on that paul was just like hey man like i've been on the road with this dude for like three weeks like i need to go spend a couple days with my lady friend and like reconnect can you like entertain and you know just hang out with these guys i'm like all right yeah of course man like you know no doubt and um so i end up like running around new york city with them and royce um you know they performed at uh what was it um the tunnel and performed at the cooler for us audience of probably like 27 people um how are those performances amazing like the thing is with eminem is like i don't know there's a certain charisma that some famous people have that is 
just extraordinary. And it's like Method Man has it. I'm sure Jimi Hendrix had it. Like a person walks in the room and everyone can't not look at them. And Eminem was like that from the first moment I met him. It was just like, there's there's a weird energy around this dude that is not, and you know, for me, I at that point probably only interviewed five or six underground rappers, you know, who were all like normal guys that I could have gone to high school with. And this was like, no, there's something totally unique and special about this person. And I can't even really articulate what it is, but he's fucking hilarious. And he just commands every room that he walks into and people are drawn to him like magnetically. Um, And this is before the bleached hair or like any of the things that you would think of or the earrings or that were like his hallmark sort of like brand identity. It was just him. And it was just, you know, he, I think it was, I'm sure that it wasn't always like that, but like once he found his groove artistically and he started to sort of create on that level, I think the confidence just started to build. So even when you were running around LA, like you could sense it, like, oh, there's oh, something unique here. Yeah. I mean, cause he just would like engage with like, you know, we go to Taco Bell and he would like put on a show for like all of the people that were, you know what I mean? Like the people that worked at, like he just like start trying to like kick it to like the girl behind the register and it would be, and he would like start rapping and you know, and then all of a sudden like everyone that works at Taco Bell is like huddled around like him and Royce and me, um, you know, or like he goes into the fucking 7-Eleven and like pretends to faint and like falls down in the middle of the aisle until like everyone that's in the thing is like checking on him and he like does like a whole fucking routine. Um, you know, uh, eventually he would like go on this like rampant crank calling uh, spree that was like, I think it was on like the Slim Shady LP um, sampler tape. They had, they like had these freestyles and then him doing like a bunch of crank calls, which again was just like him entertaining himself. But it was like, he's like moving in and out of all these different voices and characters and whatever. Yeah. Um, Extremely animated, but but still kind at the same time. Yes. No, and, and yeah, and, and super like thoughtful and, and just like a, a nice dude, but also interesting, like he is obsess, obsessive about his art, but he doesn't talk about it in the way that like music critics like or music nerds talk about music. He talks about it like an artist. So it's in this sort of obtuse and oblique way, but he's obsessed with every like where his words fall relative to the snare like on every like micro scale um you know he just like has an attention to the detail like at the time he would rap and he would always do this and i was like what are you doing and he's like i'm counting 16th notes and i was like oh okay he's like that's how i stand on beat beat you know he's like like, 16th and so anyway so sorry i got derailed there but he comes to the city um in like july and he is he does the show um him and royce and i are walking around times square because they're staying at the double tree on 47th street and i think we were going maybe to quad or one of those studios that's like right right around on 49th street and they're doing the bad meets evil 12 inch um which at the time was basically just like I had introed Paul to John Schechter, who owned Game Records and was also one of the founders of the Source magazine, um, who I'd become friends with as just like a young, obsessed 
hip hop kid, the ego trip dudes introduced me to Schechter. And so I introduced Paul to Schechter. They do a deal. M is at the point of his career where like, you know, $5,000 is like a shitload of money and like makes a big difference. Um, and a couple funny things happened. One, Eminem got beat for $200 by a three card Molly dude. Even though I told him specifically, this is a scam. It's like, you're, ne- you're not gonna win. And he got beat and then we chased the dude like five blocks um, and eventually they got away. Um, the other funny thing was- You're we talking wa- the card thing? Yeah. Like he said that, I was like, oh, I got it. Yes. And this is where like, they'll have a ringer where like, it's like some yes. dumb white chick that's like, yes. oh, it's under that one. And she wins once and then- And then loses two and then and then they're like, oh, you want to try? Yes. And then they hustle him. Yes. He got hustled for 300 bucks. 200, 200. That's a lot of money though, especially at that he, time as a- he, he, was, he was like, you know, it's not my last $200, so fuck it. It's not, it's not the end of the world, which I, you know, I was glad that it didn't ruin the whole day, but, um, and then we like got heckled by some black Israelites who were like, started like saying crazy shit to Royce about how, you know, their whole shit is like white people are like the offspring of like pigs and dogs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so they start like heckling Royce about like walking with these two devils and Royce just grabs like a wad of cash out of his pocket and just starts throwing money at them and being like, this is what you want, right? This is what you want. Why don't you shut the fuck up? And what did they do? They were just like, they couldn't, they, you know, they weren't ready for that Detroit energy. Yeah. Um, oh, that's fire. And uh, yeah, no, that was that was mad funny. And I was just like, holy shit. Because, you know, when growing up in New York, when you hear people saying crazy shit, you just kind of like zone yeah, out. Keep and, walking. Yeah, keep walking. So I wasn't expecting that, but Royce just like, I don't know, the D came out and he just snapped. Oh, that's so um, funny. One night we go out to get dinner at McDonald's, we go get food and we're coming back up in the elevator, me, M and Scam, me and Scam walk in and Scam is a, a illustrator and rapper um, who was also from New York and was kind of like a friend of Eminem in that early period. Um, he did the illustrations in the Slim Shady LP, like the zombie dude with the p- being chased by the pills and all that yeah. stuff. And I'm walking with my back to M and all I hear is like, y'all play corners in New York? And then I feel like someone's elbow and forearm like jam me into the corner of the elevator and the whole elevator rocks back and forward and then stops. And we are stuck for like two hours at like, this is like 11 p.m. to like 1 a.m. on a Saturday night. And it's you and the scam? Yes. <laughs> All because they shoved you into the corner of the elevator. <laughs> so now you guys are stuck like we're just stuck and then like what's Eminem's first what's his first reaction he's like yo I played corners like a million times and this shit never happened how the fuck I'm like I don't know man so you know we're hitting all the buttons and stuff and then eventually like we hit like the call button and like we talked to someone and they're like okay yeah we need to like get the you know the service dude come but it's like Saturday night at you know 11pm or 11.30 um it's probably gonna be a minute and we're like okay well at least we got the food so that's good um and then we just sit there but then we're like we also have the drinks and we're like nobody drinks anything because you got to pee (laughs) that's that's gonna be a serious situation yeah so we eat and just sit there and wait for them to finally come and it's hilarious too because we like start having a conversation and like i don't know that like somehow we're talking about like some girls that we know and like you know whatever it's three dudes having guy talk yeah yeah. elevator talk yeah (laughs) it's like locker room talk it's like locker room talk (laughs) 
<laughs> and then the woman from the double tree like is like hey guys just so you know i can hear you <laughs> <laughs> we're like me culpa sorry so evan was in there he's like yo this girl was sucking my dick i was like uh guys would you mind cleaning it up and <laughs> wasn't quite that randy but you know it was definitely two yeah. hours of talking you're like bro we've been wired the whole time yeah so we we're just in bro. there just bullshitting yeah i mean and then you know and, and of course like anything you have to go from like okay first we're just talking about how funny this situation is to then like all right we have to like gamify this and then it's like best albums of this year what about you know who was the best rapper at that time or you know whatever like just to like pass the time did did he have any music takes that like annoyed you not not that annoyed me like that dude is just a like encyclopedia of rap that like i don't think people necessarily understand or appreciate like I have watched him rap along to the entire 1993 album by Naughty by Nature, like 20 years after its release, like word for word. Knows every single word. Wow. Like he is a student of the game. Hmm. And so you guys were just going back and forth. So yeah, so we're just like talking, you know, you know, was, was Grand Poobah ever the best rapper alive? You know, like all that kind of, you know, just like, Yo, but I don't know. Drez was like really nice for like six months in 1991. You know, those types of conversations. And so that's how you guys connected. Like, yeah, I mean, we're pretty much, yeah. yeah. Literally just like passion for rap and hip hop. Like, let's get into it. Yeah. So two hours in the elevator is just like greatest rapper, hottest chicks. <laughs> like, and that's the game. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, and then just, you know, M talking about his career and like where, you know, the things he wants to do and like. Was it prophetic? Yeah. I mean, he. I, I, it was I'll, I'll say this that was a really interesting and precarious time and it, it's interesting to see like how um, you know the discourse around him is now 20 years after he's been like the biggest rapper for you know forever you know he's whatever people him and Jay-Z are you know basically the top right mm-hmm. um, but in that moment it was all very precarious and like it all could have gone sideways at any moment. You know, there was no, like, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Like I said, like, when I pitched him at Blaze and Vibe, everyone still was like, you know, had PTSD from Vanilla Ice. And there was this real feeling of like, no, like, this this is not, we can't even entertain this. And, you know, and so he was like, I just want to go gold. If I can just go gold, I will be so happy. I can provide for my daughter and I can have like a career in this for a few years. That's the goal. Interesting. So when he was talking, his his uh, ambitions at the time weren't like, I'm gonna be the biggest ever. I'm gonna be the greatest. Oh, no, not not even remotely. It was like, I wanna be respected by my peers and I want to be, um, you know, commercially successful enough that this is a viable full-time job for me wow. you know he's this is he's still coming from like having just worked as like a bus boy at like a fast food restaurant and like you know yeah in a trailer park in detroit like yeah I, it's i mean it's interesting i even see i don't know if you would agree but like similarities in what you were saying about jay-z like there is a confidence but still a humility about where they're at early in their career Definitely. where they're like do you find that there's a, a similar mindset amongst the greats that you've met early on in their career where you go oh, he has the right aptitude. He has the skill, but there's a lot of people with skill. But like the right aptitude and work ethic and mindset that will take them far. Definitely. I mean, you they they all have to have, 
a relentless ambition. Like it takes, and, and to your point, a work ethic to just put the creative process over absolutely everything else in the world. Um, and yeah, like M in that moment, like was, this was like a make or break thing that was, you know, going to be a life-changing, potentially life-changing event. And I think also the, the other thing with both him and and uh, Jay-Z, what they have in common is that they both put out their first records in their mid-20s, you know? And if you compare that with like someone like Nas, who was like 18, 19 years old, like it's different when you're, you know, like Jay-Z put out his first 12 inch in 1986, um, you know, as a group, part of a group called High Potency. And like, he doesn't put out Reasonable Doubt till 96. So wow. there's a 10 year span where he's like sort of trying to rap, getting features on songs, be, you know, but then also living a life in the street and like- right, he's still in the dope game and yeah, shit. Yeah, having like this whole other experience um, but again, it, it's not like, this did not come easy to him. This was not like, oh, you made your first record, you know, whereas like say Nas, you know, did a one, you know, verse feature on the main source album and everyone was like, holy shit, he's the new Rakim. And you know. That's what you mean by like anointed one. Yes. Like, and then you it was the like. You are the darling, you are the, the chosen one. He does that and you know, within two years he has a album on Columbia with, you know, every one of the best producers at that moment you know, and he delivers on it with a level of introspection and thoughtfulness that is like preternatural when you think about him being an 18 year old and like having these observations yeah, about- Truly prolific. Yeah, humanity and, and you know, the sort of like human experience. Um, but yeah, but I think, you know, Eminem, the same thing where it's like, you know, you can go on the internet and you can find like tapes where he's rapping like Naughty by Nature in like 1991 you know part of a group trying to figure it out it's like dirty dozen time before all of that oh wow he was in some other i can't remember what their name was but like you know they made some songs locally i don't even know if they ever got pressed up then he makes the infinite album you know in 1996 um which is again was like a local release that there's like 12 inch and i think probably like maybe a thousand cds that exist in the world where he's rapping like nas and az and it's all very like upbeat and like I just had a daughter and I'm happy to be here and like and then you know he hits that point of frustration of like I've been doing this for a while now I've been doing this really for like seven eight years seriously and I'm not making any headway and I'm not seeing any progression and that's when the Slim Shady persona is born and he just is like fuck everything i'm like upset i'm gonna say everything that i like my entire my entire internal monologue that i've been like selectively picking from i'm just put it all out there and how old is he roughly do you remember 25 wow you know I, yeah i think he was like yeah 25 when he put out the first album, maybe 26 somewhere in there wow which um, i guess in my perspective now like is kind of old for rappers, like so many rappers now are like 18, 19, 20 when no, they're popping on SoundCloud. Oh, I mean, dude, well, the same thing, and if you think about the early 90s, like, you know, Q-Tip was probably like 19 when they put out the like first Tribe album. You know, Nas was 19 when they put out, when he put out Illmatic. Brain Nubian guys were probably like 20 or 21 and Puba was a little older, maybe like 23, 24. Like everyone in rap, you were washed by the time you were 27 and you were definitely washed when you hit 30. 
um, I always think about, this is the one that bugs me out, is like special ed, um, who you may or may not have heard of, but had an, a massive hit in 1989 called I Got It Made, which is highly recommend if you have four minutes to spare. Um, it's a fucking perfect record. Huge hit um, for rap in that time. Puts out a gold record. He's 16 or 17. By the time I'm in high school in 1994, he's launching his comeback on the Crooklyn Dodgers song. And it's like, oh shit. Like he had like put out that album that was huge. Then he put out another album that kind of bricked. And then he was like lost. He like lost his deal and whatever. And at the time I'm 16. So like him being 24 or whatever, he was 23, seemed like, okay, he's like a grown up. Very mature. <laughs> at 43, I'm like, I can't imagine the psychological trauma of having been like, one of the most popular rappers in 1989 and five years later having fallen off having like, fa- like having to come back at 23 and, and that's like how the press is framing it that is how everyone like you know that's yeah it sucks there's a there's a trauma that goes along with like getting seen early especially like i mean you can't really be ready for it when you're 17 like even if you are musically talented and you make an album that slaps like you still are an immature human being and you still have life experiences and mistakes to make. And so now you're getting judged at 20 when you're still fresh. Like you probably, I don't know. I'm curious, do you think it is prudent for artists to kind of like hold off and, and hone their craft? No, I mean, I, I think you gotta like strike while the iron is hot and like if it's flowing, it's flowing. And but But I think the larger thing would not even be like to hold back, but more to understand that like things are going to connect at different times and like yeah you might be a like teenage phenom or you might need 10 years you know what i mean like jay-z was probably fucking really psyched in 1986 when he got that first 12 inch back from the press and was like yo i'm rapping this is fucking amazing like it's gonna happen for me and then a decade goes by a decade goes by and you know he had like and multiple eras music rap music changed like six times in that 10 years and then finally in 96 like he happens to be at that perfect place where he is now like one step in front of the zeitgeist and he drops reasonable doubt and all of a sudden it's like yeah and and also he had 10 years of his life in the street to draw from where you know some of his contemporaries were like kind of making up you know mob stories and like right pretending because they're spending their times in studios and whatever they may got like a little advance money so they were able to get out of the hood and, and now all of a sudden they're not living the life that no and he can talk about like you know trafficking dope from new york to you know down south and like holding up in a hotel room and like all of these like weird details that you know resonated with other hustlers that were his contemporaries who certified him and like broadcast to the audience that this was credible and this was real Mm. but also there's just a richness of storytelling that you can't fake that like that's that's a great lesson you know like i'm 26 and i feel like i'm I'm falling behind you know what i mean like i feel like i'm like i'm not 
doing enough like and i think that's really prominent especially amongst my generation even the generation younger than me like especially with you know the internet and the idea of personal branding and stuff it's like if you don't have your brand figured out by 22 if you don't have you know views by the time you're like 18 like there's no hope for you and i don't know it's kind of a good lesson like stop trying to rush life experience like I, I talk with comics about this all the time where they're so focused on like grinding and like they had like a good look when they were young and they don't live a life worth talking about and as a result like their material becomes like derivative or it becomes like uh, too meta because they're spending all their time in comedy clubs and not observing the world and actually being present and I don't know, I feel like even with, with Jay and M, it's like, yeah, they got to live a life and they, you know, Eminem had a kid, Jay-Z was in the streets and they were, they had source material. Well, I mean, yeah, and that's the thing is that like you think about the arcs of their career and like, what was it about M that made him so successful? Like, yes, he is incredibly dexterous and his wordplay is amazing and he had Dr. Dre producing him who is probably the greatest producer of a generation. All those things helped, right? But the thing that had makes people like tattoo him on their chest is his personal narrative. And, you know, the fact that like he reached rock bottom and hit a point where he was like, I'm going to say the like weird, uncomfortable shit that like people don't say out loud. Like I fucking hate my mom. Yeah. And like that candor resonates with people. And I think, you know, in a sort of different way, you look at like Reasonable Doubt and, and Jay-Z's catalog and it's like, he talks about like the the like gross parts of the dope game. Like you listen to the evils and it's like, he talks about falling out with his best friend and like tying up like the, the daughter and like, there's like weird kidnapping shit going on, you know, or like regrets where he's talking about, you know, um, just like, all of the ugliness that's involved in that world or, um, you know, you must love me, you know, shooting his brother or like selling, you know, I think in that song he talks about selling dope to his mother, which I don't think was actually a real story. I think it was, but it was a family member. Um, and like that kind of humanity, like it takes not like, first of all, it takes real intelligence to be able to like, hone in on these moments and be like this is the fucked up thing that is like making me not sleep at night and like this is the thing you know and these are guys that weren't going to see therapists at this time um this is the thing that is like making me a crazy person this is why i'm paranoid this is why i sleep with a gun underneath my pillow and then being like i'm gonna put the the darkest parts of what's inside my head into the world and let the rest of the world consume this. Yeah. And that is like a brave, ballsy thing to do, but that's why they connect with the audience in that way where people, you know, they have like weird stalkers and I mean, I mean, I wrote a whole fucking song about it. Yeah, literally. Like, Another <laughs> banger. Yes. But it, it's one of those things where it's like, you can't just jump to that. I don't think. No. Like, I, like that required 10 years of putting out a happy track, I'm happy to be here, putting out a fun thing, a party song, to then be like, all right, I've done all the shit. Fuck everyone, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and have my own voice. And uh, yeah, I think that happens with some, like any great artist. I think 
Like you can't have WD-40 without all the other WDs. You know what I mean? Like, and you can't just jump to it. You can't just be like, oh yeah, I will make the right product. It's like, no, I have to make all the iterations before it in order to get to the thing. And for me, at least, I need to take perspective and be like, yo, the shit that I'm writing now or the shit I'm doing on stage is fine. It's good, but it's not my best shit. But I need to do this. And it's essential that I do this in order to get to my best shit. Because yeah. I can't just go there. That's not that's not how this game works. Like you have to iterate and build. I don't know that much about stand-up comedy, but I would imagine also that it's, it's you know, you have to you learn every single time you're on stage. Yeah. about the audience and about the sort of like micro parts of your performance. Yes, it is I've heard people say like the first time you go on stage there's a brick wall in front of you. And every time you go up you take down a brick. And only when the brick wall is gone are you truly authentic on stage. And that's when the audience really connects with you. And that's when you're able to connect with the audience. But when you first start, and I think it's like music, like you're just doing what you think you're supposed to do. And then you get pretty good at like the fundamentals. It's almost like playing sports before puberty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you understand the mechanics of it, like how to shoot a basketball. But then you go through puberty, you get muscle. And the muscle is the life experience. And that's when you're actually able to ball. Because then you're like, I know how to move my body. I know how to use the fundamentals, but also use the athleticism. And you can learn how to flow and how to rap, but unless you have a life we're talking about, and you can learn how to write well, no, jokes, I mean, but unless you have shit to say, it's not going to resonate. That's what I'm saying. Like you listen to the stuff Jay Z was putting out in 1994, he was like rapping for the sake of rapping, and yeah. he's he's clearly very talented. But you don't walk away from any of those records being like, oh, I know anything about him, except that like he can juggle syllables really, really well. Exactly. And you see that with comedians where yep. it's like, oh, they have great jokes, but who are they? Yes. What, is, what are you getting from them? They got great one-liners. They have this like silly observation, but it's like, who are you? And you can do it through observational stuff, I think. Like, mm -hmm. I think you know who like Seinfeld is by watching him. But if you're just doing like silly misdirects or like knock-knock joke type shit, it might be funny and you might get the audience laughing, mm -hmm. but they're not going to walk home and be like, who was that guy? I got to know about him. I'm drawn to him. Because you're not opening yourself up. You're not putting yourself out. That brick wall is still in front of you, even if you're getting laughs. And I think music is the same way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the comedy thing, and I also think comedy, so much of it is in the performance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you watch like Chris Rock's most recent special, and it's like, he has certain like tics and like uses of repetition and things that, you know, having watched all of his specials, I'm like, oh yeah. But it like, he is like, continues to lean into the particularities of his sort of performance stick. Yeah, the essence of what makes him funny. Yes. And that's why he'll get laughs on shit that aren't even jokes. Well, I was gonna say, yeah. And, and it he's able to like crank up things that are like, you know, some of his jokes are absolutely hilarious and some of them are like, okay, but the way he says it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't not laugh at it because it's just yeah. like- There's nothing funny about saying you motherfuckers, but if you go, you motherfuckers, it's like, you're gonna, it's like just funny. His essence is funny. Yeah. And that you can't write down. That's not something you can just like have. I mean, some people have it, but you have to hone it on stage in order to connect. And that is when you're, in my opinion, at like the apex of your game. When it is just like you and the material are working together to create a performance. It is ultimately performance art that is just like, locked in with the audience and sometimes it doesn't even come through on like recording or tv and i think probably i'm curious if you think rap is the same way like are there some musicians where you see them live and you go wow there is an energy when you're in the room with this human being that doesn't come through on the record yeah definitely i mean you know there like 
these aren't people who I, I, I would like discredit their recorded material, but like Busta Rhymes is a, a phenom on stage. He's a great rapper yeah. um, with a, a, a really great body of work, but he can like upstage almost anyone with his presence and his energy um in his prompt you know krs1 is an example of like someone who like even today you know having not been like a really active rapper in you know quite some time like his voice booms on a mic in a way that is like unfucking real like i went to the memorial for fife dog when he passed and you know they had it, it was one of the more, I mean, it was obviously a very somber moment in many ways, but also one of the more incredible hip hop moments that I have ever experienced. And like, they all had the same mic and everyone's, everyone else sounds normal. Like, okay, cool. They're like loud in the mix, but you know, you hear the music. KRS gets on the mic and it's like the music, like you can't even hear it. Like he's just so, he can project his voice and command the room in a, in this way that is like, oh, this is, He's just been sharing the stage with like a litany of icons and this is like some whole other shit. There's a level to his essence where you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think Chappelle's the same way. Like you watch him live and you're like, just in the room, like there's so much tension that's built in through like interpersonal contact where like you're just listening to him. So have you seen Chappelle live? No, I don't think I oh, have. Oh, you got to. Man. It's, a, it's a cool experience because you're listening to him. You're like, wow, there is a energy in here where everyone's just like, what's gonna happen what's he gonna say and then he breaks the tension and all of a sudden it's just like eruption and then brings it back in it's like masterful and he knew it from a young age where like he would smoke cigarettes and the cigarette i mean he probably likes cigs but like he's doing it no that's part of effect. yeah the, the washington dc uh comedy central special where yeah. he's smoking on literally stage. Yeah. and it's a it's a i was actually i forget who it was i think i was talking to neil brennan who co-wrote Chappelle show yeah. with him, but he was like at a young age he was telling me like in his 20s, like, oh yeah, the cigarette is for building tension. It's like set up, set up, set up, little tag, laugh, tension, tension, <sighs> punchline. But like, it's all built into the rhythm of what he's doing. And that is where the experience comes in, where it's like, yeah, you can write all the words you want, you can write all the funny jokes you want, but it's like <sighs> that type of rhythm and performance where greatness separates from goodness. No, and I mean, look, even just the gentleman that we were talking about, both Eminem and, and Jay, it's like they both started off with very, very, you know, extraordinary pieces of work. But like you look at the way Eminem would grow both as a writer and as a performer from Slim Shady LP to the Marsha Mathers LP to the Eminem show to 8 Mile, you know, like it is hard to believe that the guy that wrote my name is also wrote lose yourself right yeah. like they are totally different songs in almost every way you know yeah but that's uh, the range yeah and that and that, but that and that was the part of like the obsessive investment in his craft and not and being like no i can do it better like yeah. i heard a story about eminem that he would like treat it like a job like when he would go in, he would like be up at like nine, nine thirty in the studio recording, and then around five, he'd be like, "All right, I'm gonna go home." That is definitely my, I, you know, he, he obviously um, sort of like operates in his own world at this point. But like my my impression is that yeah, for the last like ten or twelve years, you know, once he sort of like downshifted and then also like became sober, um, 
and like decided like i'm not good i don't want to like do world tours like every quarter and all that kind of stuff yeah that he just was like i'm gonna like get up take the girls to school go to the studio write rap songs all day at the end of the day i'm gonna go pick up the girls from their after school thing come home do dinner watch tv with them go to sleep rinse like, repeat yeah and just like and it's I mean, that's amazing work ethic and i yeah i don't say as a job is like a slight i say no, it's no, like no. he found like i think so many people think rap and maybe some rappers will get in there and just kind of like yo i'm gonna get drunk and high and just like freestyle some shit and like kind of come in when i'm feeling inspired but he's like no every day i'm working on it sharpening the sword no he i mean i i literally do not i can't even fathom the number of records that he has in the vault because he writes every single he's writing and recording every single day yeah and we get an album you know sometimes they're back-to-back years and then sometimes it's a four-year right spell and but that's also like the level of sort of precision and self-scrutiny that he puts onto the work is like when it's a four-year drought it's not because he hasn't made 700 songs yeah. it's that he hasn't felt like he's found the thing he wants to say or the sound he wants to go for or he's like you know obsessing about making sure that like the kick sounds exactly like how the kick sounds and you know yeah, that's so impressive just to be like yo this is not meeting my threshold of what's good and it's not i'm not going to let it tarnish my legacy to put out some shit even though the shit he's throwing away is 90 percent of musicians best shit yes absolutely and you know the the very little that i have had uh the, you know the opportunity to listen to is like this is yes this would be on many people's best best work yeah yeah, yeah. track one on most people's albums. but but yeah but you know but he takes that kind of you know he takes his craft like that serious this far into his career every detail of every thing and i think you know and he applies it across the board to every part of his business and his brand and mm-hmm. his performance did you see him much after the after the elevator incident yeah i'm um, so then you know i'm trying to think after that i saw him at the they had a platinum party for um marshall mathers lp the week that it came out because it sold like a million records first week um at one of the like big clubs on the west side um, we, we we chatted for a second. And then the next time that I saw him was um, I wrote a cover story for uh, XXL with him, Dr. Dre, and 50 Cent. Um, and so I interviewed the three of them on the set. They were shooting simultaneously in the club and um, sing for the moment. Mm. Um, it was crazy. They had like this giant, like Lazy Susan, where half of it was the um, club scene from in the club, and then on the other half was the backdrop, uh, the like black backdrop for Sing for the Moment. But they were filming on the same set, at the same, not like at the same time right, time, but like, but like basically it was like okay, we have to switch stuff out for the in the club. Like, oh wow! And it's your time to like. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, so so I interviewed him there, and then. I'm trying to think. Then I interviewed him again for Complex in like 06. And then again, um, right in between 
the relapse and recovery albums in mm. 2009 um it must be cool to catch up especially over time like you've seen all the iterations of 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 him yeah and, and then because of you know I, when i was working at def jam i worked for paul rosenberg um he was the chairman um i got the opportunity to catch up with him when he headlined coachella um and that was also awesome and, and again at this point it is just like you know it's funny he calls me noah from blaze still <laughs> and like but it is this kind of like surreal thing of like I was like 19 and you were like 24, 25. And now we're like grown ass men and you're- Yeah, titans of our own industry and shit. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would compare my <laughs> career to M&Ms in, in, in any meaningful way, but yes, like we're still in this and we're still active. Yeah. But I mean, I can remember interviewing him like in that, okay, so in that first, in 1998, one of the times he then came back to New York in October and he played or either October or end of, it must have been end of September and he played me um, forgot about Dre and Kim the really fucking intense song um, about killing Kim and that was I, I, I mean first time you hear Kim like what like, the fuck is it, happening it's, yeah it was literally like I don't even know what chamber you've taken this to but this is like almost like opera yeah level yeah but like but more visceral than that it's not yeah it's raw it I mean you know everyone in the room it's like it ends and he like looks around and like everyone's just quiet and it's just like he's like yeah so I made that <laughs> I was really upset you might have been able to tell I don't remember what they had some, you know, their sort of ongoing beef. Um, something had happened and it inspired him. And then I was like, oh, I got the advance of the new Jay Z album. And this was volume two. And so I played him uh, Jigga What, Jigga Who, um, the Timbaland record where he raps on the bounce beat. Yeah. And it was like, yo, that's so crazy. Like, Jay Z just did a bounce record and I just did Forgot About Dre where I'm rapping on a bounce beat. Like, uh, yo, there's something in the air. Uh, that's so cool. Damn, that's wild. And now I'm also curious, like, so Eminem, Jay-Z, and then you spent a decent amount of time with Kanye. Yes. I'm really curious about that. that which obviously I know, I'm actually curious your perspective. I don't want to like put, insert my feeling about like what's happening with him now. But I'm curious if you have like deeper insight as to. I mean, I, you know, I'll say this. Like I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about Kanye right now just because he was at one point someone who I really would call a friend and mm -hmm. like you know we've like we went our separate ways not in any sort of like beef thing just like you know people like yeah. have kids and get married and like, life gets busy yeah exactly and like also you know and if you're not a person with like a predilection to like chase celebrities like they have very busy lives with lots of people in their orbit and whatever and I'm yeah not one to be like hey man like What's up? Like, yeah, are you thinking out? about me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so like, I don't know. I the mo His most recent situations, I kind of feel like I'd reserve that conversation to have privately with him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I did, I met him in 2002. Um, like basically I was working at MTV and a young woman named Yasmin, who I was very good friends with um, at MTV News, uh, 
we were like just commiserating about how great the beats on the blueprint album were and she's like oh my friend kanye did a couple of them and i was like oh you know that dude i'm like my roommate's from chicago he told me he's like a chicago dude that from like the late 90s was putting out indie stuff and she's like yeah you know when he moved to new york we became friends um i actually just pitched uh you heard it first on him um to like you know the bosses at mtv news i think they're gonna let me do it whatever she connects me with him i end up writing um a story about him for what was my first issue of uh mass appeal as editor-in-chief um mass appeal number 18 um and this is funnily this is like gets documented to some degree in the genius documentary on netflix um they show like the photo shoot because i guess he had a videographer on set for the photo shoot yeah and then they have him in la like at like some fast food restaurant and like his friend comes to like, yo, I got the mass appeal and he puts oh, down, yeah, he, like flips that. through and he's yeah, like, yeah. yo, look at that shit. Da, da, da. Oh, that's cool. Um, which was like a, yeah, really like cool moment to see, you know, I had no perspective on that. But what was crazy was we have the whole, we do the whole interview um, and you know, he was like, you can tell from that documentary, everything that he is, he was that in that moment. He was like, incredibly ambitious incredibly inspired incredibly self-confident um a contrarian um not like again it was kind of like the eminem thing where i was like you know i, I sort of went in because there's like a certain set of like rappers or producers who like talk about music in the way that music critics talk about music um and then there are artists who are they're just artists and they like don't they don't process it in an analytical way they just feel it mm -hmm. right and like Kanye was definitely that where it was like I'm like oh so like you grew up you must have grown up like loving like Travel Quest and like De La Soul and he was like you know Tribe was dope but um you know De La like I like them but like you know I liked MC Hammer better yeah can play and I was like it's not what I was bringing up, but yeah. I'm like, <laughs> what? He's like, yo, the way Hammer stage show was, and like, yo, the costuming, and did it. And I was like, you make like underground rap, bro. Like, I'm confused. But like, again, because I did, I went into it with my own sort of like predisposition of like yeah. thinking that the height of his ambition was to make tribe music, right? Not knowing that his like he wanted to be Michael Jackson. Yeah. And so to him, like MC Hammer was pushing rap in that direction yeah it was making like the biggest rap records of all time yeah and had this enormous entourage and this enormous stage show with all these dancers and like it was like a whole production you know, yeah and a cartoon and all this kind yeah, of but stuff but you're looking at this producer with with his mouth wired shut and you're like what are you talking oh, no, about this is <laughs> so this is before that was the other crazy thing so i i interview him write the article and then yasmin calls me and it's like yo yeah he just got into a car accident um you know he's going to be okay, but like, he's in the hospital, da, 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 his jaws wired shut. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, yeah, should, you know, should I call him? She's like, she's like, well, no, I just got called by like someone on his team is literally his jaws wired shut. He can't even really talk right now. Um, so, you know, I was like, okay, cool. We'll let him know, you know, hope he's feeling better or whatever. And then I think that was kind of also why in the documentary, when he gets the mass appeal, in his hand it's like feels like such an achievement because it's like i'm like overcoming adversity and now i've got this yeah thing. that's that's the most impressive part to me about him and his career is like and the documentary on netflix really showed this like he 
is growing up in like, you know, not a super wealthy family in Chicago and like with his mom and then is making great money producing for Rockefeller and like making beats for these artists and could do that for the rest of his life. He could have a check to like potentially generational wealth and like changing the trajectory of him and his family's life if he just sticks in his lane and just keeps on making beats and is an amazing producer objectively. And that could just be it. And he chose to risk everything and be like, nah, fuck that. I'm not the best producer. I'm the best rapper. It's an insane leap to go, especially in that time. I don't know if people really even realize, like, because now I think a lot of people are like rapping and producing. It's a little bit more common. Yep. But for him at that time to make that leap and to go, no, I'm not satisfied with this amazing life that is like tenfold what I grew up with. I need more. And going for it and then really doing it. I look at that and I'm like, wow, like that ambition and that drive and that vision for himself is like really aspirational. Yeah, I mean, no, he like he had he knew what he wanted to be in a crystal clear way from the very outset of his career i mean i remember at some point i did a story on for vibe about him and i, I spoke to no id um who's a you know very accomplished producer um who got his start working with common so he was kind of the man in chicago and i remember like no id's mom and kanye's mom were like friends or something like that so you know as a teenager Kanye gets to like sort of like come hang out with No ID and like see how he makes beats or whatever. And No ID told me this story about like, you know, Common's popping. He's like the guy behind the boards for Common as, you know, Common becomes like, okay, he's getting a real swing. He's like, so, you know, we get a meeting. I get a meeting at Sony with Donnie Einer, um, who was kind of like the number two under Tommy Mottola. And they fly me and Kanye out. A limo picks us up at JFK or at LaGuardia takes us to, you know, uh, 550 Madison. We go up in the top of 550 Madison. We're in the uh, conference room. And like within like five minutes of the meeting starting, like Kanye, and this is pre-Blueprint, Rockefeller, all this other shit. Like this is like 1998, maybe, maybe 99. Um is moonwalking on the conference room table telling Donnie Einer, no, you don't understand. I'm the next Michael Jackson. And no ID was like, remember how I told you how we got this limo to take us to LaGuardia? He was like, suffice it to say, we didn't have a hotel booked and we ended up having to pay for our own cab back to LaGuardia that night to fly back to Chicago because, you know, your man is your man. Yep. Like that's, he, but he saw it and like, the rest of the world was not ready. And that's kind of the thing we talked about with M and like Jay, it's like he could see it, but frankly, you know, he, the music wasn't even there yet. Like he, you, I've heard a lot of the underground stuff he was making in Chicago, you know, in 96, 97, 98. And like, it's cool, but he was still growing, growing and figuring out his voice and like learning, learning the physicality of rap. Like that dude went from being like, again, when, you know, those those first demos he's a you can see the promise of how he's rapping but you cut from that to like dark twisted fantasy and he's like legit among the best people rapping in yeah, 2010 maybe one of the best albums of the decade like insane yeah and but that but again that was like that was 10 years of 
being committed to becoming the best rapper and like honing his craft like a fucking maniac and you know that's the like you know he puts people like steve jobs and walt disney on this pedestal but like that's the way that he moves Mm -hmm. and that's the way that he you know he he applies that pressure to himself and he applies that pressure to everyone that he's works with yeah can you tell me about my beautiful dark twist of fantasy yeah and your involvement with the with the record so you know he and i um after having like a little bit of a contentious relationship at the beginning um of his career why was it contentious um because like i i wrote so like a lot of the press that had been written about him up until that point was very like um just like effusive praise because what he was doing was amazing and i spent time with the dude and basically my analysis was like this guy makes incredibly bold and incredibly daring music and also it can sometimes be really grating to be around him because he is a lot and he is very self-confident on egotistical yeah I, that would be one for, way to phrase it yeah. and and I was you know and but I also like rationalize it at like look like you have to have like an incredibly outsized you know personal confidence to make to like in an era where everyone is making like Swiss beats on and keyboard beats to be like no I'm going to take the knock from Swizz and Dre but I'm going to use samples like Q-Tip and yeah. B-Rock. Yeah, let me take an Etta James track and I'm, fucking speed it up. And like, yeah, and like do things that like people like RZA and Muggs were doing successfully in the early 90s, but by the late 90s, that was not a popular wave. You know, you listen to the first, whatever, four Jay-Z albums. It's like, you know, I mean, or excuse me, outside of Reasonable Doubt, two, three, four, he's going a different direction. Yeah. And so was all of rap. Yeah, and he was leading the way. Totally. And... Yeah, people wanted like Rough Rider Anthem and like, you know, that that Triton sound was like what was dominating. And like Kanye had this vision for like, no, I'm going to like take the things that I loved about this early 90s hip hop, but I'm going to just give it that bottom so that it knocks in a car, so that it moves on a club, you know, Mm -hmm. a dance floor. So it still fits in, but but it's new and old at the same time. And it has that soul and it has that musical richness. And I don't think people realize how hard it is to sample at that time. Like nowadays you sample, you rip some shit off YouTube, throw it into Ableton, you're crate digging. Yes, this is, yeah, pre-LimeWire, like you are going around the country finding records in weird record stores. Someone passes you a vinyl and you're like listening to it on a shitty fucking record player and you're like, that part, that little drum break. The other thing that's crazy about Kanye too is just that like he a lot of the stuff that happened in the early 90s was like very much like loops like okay take a two bar loop and then throw some cool drums behind it and maybe like an 808 and now you have a song Kanye is like chopping up shit and taking you know Dilla was on the same thing where it's like you're gonna take little bits of something and totally recontextualize it so that it sounds almost unrecognizable yeah. from what the original source Blood material is like Billie Holiday is like a classic example like I'm taking this track and if you listen to it obviously you can hear it but like it's well, just random parts of her vocal that's well, chopped he, up he's marrying it with like the horns from the Sea Murder song like there's like all kinds of shit going on in in 
so many of the records that he was making. Um, and yeah, some of them were like a little bit more obvious and like, you know, Heart of the City is Heart of the City. But some of them, you're like, yo, that's crazy. I didn't like, I wouldn't have recognized that sample if I didn't like AB them next to each other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my, that was kind of my like thesis on him, which, you know, no one likes to be called a dick. Like, so he took exception to that. We had some heated conversations, but you know, he's also like a fucking thoughtful, rational person. And like, we would argue. And eventually it was like, I like you. I'm not happy with what you said or like, or I'm not happy with what you said. Maybe because some of it rang true. I don't, you know. Yeah, I, do you think he respected your honesty? I mean, a lot of people I mean, around him might be telling him what he wants to hear. He's never said that to me. Um, he has conceded that the writing was good. Um, <laughs> people do that for jokes. Sometimes after a show, they'll be pissed off and they're like, I mean, the jokes were good, but like what you were saying was fucked up. I didn't like it or whatever. But like they'll always concede that, like a little part. <laughs> that was literally, yeah. Like we had, we got into this heated phone conversation that was basically to that effect where he was like, you know, yeah, the writing was really good, but like, you know, that was fucked up that you said that. And, and I was like, look, man, like this is, this is my job. And like, I'm not trying to take personal shots at you, but like. It's what it is. Like I'm, and, t- I'm writing what I feel like. And, and I honestly do feel like you couldn't do what you do if you weren't exactly how you are. And so like, you shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed or like that. And you know, Steve jobs was a maniac, but also a genius. Yes. And he needs both in order to be Steve jobs. Yes. He's not Steve jobs. If he's not like, you know, working 18 hours a day and screaming at people and and perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And so that we went through that period. And then I, when I got to complex by that point, we had sort of like ironed out our differences and we became pretty, you know, I would say like friends, you know? Um, and we talked frequently and, you know, about music, but also about life and just kind of like shoot the shit kind of thing. Um, and so I did a few stories on him in that, like he like guest edited the magazine in 2007. Um, and again, like that, which was a very hands-on, that guy does not, it's not like a, oh, like here, I'll throw some ideas at you and then like sign my name. It's like, I'm gonna be up in the office like, like five or six times. Typing away. Yeah, send me all the, PDFs, oh, no, wow. no, no, change the layouts, whatever. So we went through that. That it's was like Eminem with his fucking every beat, every snare, like same thing. Yeah, and well, that, and that was the thing was that even back then, Kanye was like, I'm much more than just a rapper or a musician. Like, I have a vision for the world, and it like includes stage shows, and it includes magazines, and it includes fashion, fashion, and, and sneakers, and everything. Um, and so I did that, then another interview probably in 2009. Anyway, or no, in 2008, around heart, 808s and Heartbreaks. And then on New Year's Day at like eight in the morning in 2009, he calls me and I like wake up, obviously having been out quite late and a little hungover. Um, He's like, yo, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm I'm laying in bed. I'm like, he's like, yo, I'm in, I'm I'm in Hawaii, and you know, this is we had sort of not to get into a, too much of a tangent, but like during the uh, or no, I guess it was yeah during the fall of I guess 2008. Um, 
Or no, sorry, I'm trying to remember the, the years here. Fall 2009, um, this is like we're talking pretty frequently. He has the Taylor Swift moment. We talk about that afterwards. Um, and then... What was his perspective on that? Did he feel kind of regretful or like he got misinterpreted or... I think he, like, every time I've talked to him about it, he's in a different place. Yeah. Like, I think there's parts of him that feel felt remorseful. There's parts of him that were like, yeah. yo, it was a fucking entertaining moment I in pop culture. famous. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I think there's like, the parts of him that don't, doesn't think it's that big of a deal. Parts of him that just think it was like a fucking funny thing that a drunk guy did that yeah. was stopped the world for a second. Um, and in, in that moment, you know, I like, obviously, again, like not an ambulance chaser. So I like didn't immediately call him like wait like three or four days. Hey, man, you good? Like just being a friend, checking in. Yeah. Because like also because to me, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I just thought it was like a crazy, funny yeah. thing. But, but it's TV. I, like people are making moments and like that's what it is. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, he's not the first person to do something crazy at the at an award show, yeah. um, particularly the MTV awards this is not like yeah. and you also know him personally so you're like that's Kanye like, yeah yeah like yo he was like having fun and acting crazy yeah um and then he so right around the same time oh this is the other reason that I didn't call him was I was diagnosed with a brain uh tumor the like right around Labor Day I didn't know that of that's, 2009 that's wild yeah so um, this was crazy. Go to the eye doctor thinking I need to get new contacts because my left eye is a little blurry. Three hours later, I'm being told I either have multiple sclerosis or a uh, pituitary, uh, pituitary adenoma. Um, Bro. Yeah. Which was a little, you know, at the end of the day, ended up being like a strangely not that big of a deal. It was in, benign? Well, it was benign. And yeah, they just like, I had surgery and I was in the ICU and I was missed four weeks of work, but like- It got removed? They removed it and- That's why you got that white patch, bro. That's what <laughs> that is. It's the, it's the tumor just fucking it, it knew. bleaching you out. Um, That's crazy, man. But yeah, so then we have this conversation. He's like telling me about all of his shit. And then he's like, yeah, man. So uh, like, what's up with you? Everything okay? And I'm like, well, <laughs> funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> this is what I'm dealing with. And he's like, oh, fuck, man. Like, yo, I'm so sorry. Like, da, 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 da. And I'm like, it's cool. Like, I'm, I got surgery in like, whatever, three weeks. They, you know, at this point they've ruled out multiple sclerosis. So they're telling me that this is a like tumor that is like 95% of the time benign. And so they just got to like go excise it. And I don't know, the surgeon tells me he does like 50 of these a year. So like, don't stress it. Um, yeah, which I'm like, it's easy for you to say. Yeah, bro. Yeah, you're gonna be alive eating Pringles while I'm getting my head split open. Yeah. Like, are you crazy? Also 50 is a lot. But also not a lot, you know. What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of brain surgeries, if he was like a thousand, you're like, all right, I can live with that. Fifty, fuck, man. So, I sort of like, you know, he's kind of going through it, getting dragged through the media at this point in time. I'm obviously preoccupied with my own sort of personal dramas, of course. And then um, in November, he calls me, kind of just to check in, like, hey, man, like yo, I know you had the surgery recently. Like, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm like back at work. I've recovered, um, you know, shit's good. I'm like, yo, what's up with you, man? Like, where are you? He's like, well, I'm in a limo in, um, in Italy. 
me and uh, Virgil are, are interning at Fendi right now. Like, fuck this rap shit. Like, I'm not trying to make music anymore. Like, I'm just, I want to go fully into fashion. Like, this music shit, like, I, just the way this whole Taylor thing has gone down. Like, I'm, I'm not fucking with it. Whatever, whatever. We talk and we talk and I'm, you know, hearing him out. And I'm like, hey, man, you know, just for what it's worth, like, you're still one of my favorite artists. Like, I, you know. Yeah, you're pretty I, good at this music thing. Yeah, I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I don't think you should, like, fully put it down. And then, you know, and then he's like, oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, again, like, Kanye's like an artist. Like, he has to move by his own impulse. And so, like, in any given moment, he like many artists that I've dealt with, like will tell you something is, he's doing something or something is happening with 100% conviction and will like wake up the next morning and like not even remember ever having said that that's the case. So like even through this conversation where he's like gone for 45 minutes about how he's completely over this, he's moving out of the country, he doesn't want to be involved in celebrity pop culture anymore, blah, 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 blah. And then by the end of the conversation, he's like, yeah, so I made this one song though with, with Hove and Jack White um and i like try to make like drums like havoc on um you know hell on earth like and he starts like playing it over like the you know the like stereo system of this and i'm like jesus christ this is fucking hard as fuck this is great um and he's like yeah i don't know well i don't know we'll see i'm like again hey man i understand if you guys take a break but like just as a fan i just want to i want you to know you'll be missed like and your contribution to music is really important to a lot of people he's like no no, no I, I i feel you i just you know, i gotta do this fashion shit right now he starts talking about red leather and gold and blah, blah 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 anyway then i don't hear from him for about two maybe like six weeks eight weeks um and i get a call at the crack of dawn <laughs> relative um for me yeah, uh new year's, on, day, new year's day yeah crack of dawn at eight and he's like, what's up, man? And I'm like, oh, I'm good, you know, just been out and chilling. Like, what's going on with you? And he's like, oh, I, uh, I'm in Hawaii. Um, I'm working on the next record. And I'm like, how's it going? And he's like, it's good, man. I'm like, I'm really dialed in. I'm just like, I'm surrounding myself with like all the like hip hop energy so that like, I just, I know what this record has to be. And I'm just like, you know, I'm bringing Pete Rock out here. I'm gonna bring Q-Tip out here. I'm gonna bring, um, you know, DJ Premier out here. I'm gonna bring uh, RZA out here. And you know, I'm I'm just like, I'm really trying to get back to to the sort of core of what I do, and just have space to work with no distraction. Like I can't. I tried to work in LA during the fall. I came back from, and it was like. There was just too much shit going on, and like too many motherfuckers like coming to the studio, and I just couldn't focus like LA I can't work in LA it's like okay um I'm like, I mean 808s and Heartbreaks was a product of Hawaii and like whatever it was clicking for you I get it and he's like I'm, I'm flying to New York in like next week um to shoot a single cover for one of the songs come by the come by the, the shoot in Latang and so I, like a week later I go by he's shooting like a like naked centaur like a naked centaur woman i don't know nothing that the world ever saw um and he takes me into the like uh his escalator oh sidebar 
he's in New York for 12 hours. So he flew 12 hours from Honolulu to New York to shoot from, like he did the overnight, you know, you leave at like 3 p.m. Honolulu time, you get here at like six in the morning. Yeah. He's shooting and then he's getting on the late flight to fly directly back to Honolulu that night. Like, One day. Literally just 12 hours. 12 hours. I'm like, dude, I don't know how you do this. He's like, it's all good, man. I, you know, I, I, I sleep best on flights, honestly, at this point. So he's like, you know, that tour life just like makes it like that. I'm like, okay. I guess, you know, and this is also back in the day when like you didn't have Wi-Fi on flights. So right, like, you were locked in. You were just like really like, and so I think for someone whose mind is moving like a million miles an hour, it's like he could just, um, and he plays me like a like mumble track of power, uh, a song that ended up on Rick Ross's album, Live Fast, Die Young. Um, what was the other? Um, the song from Twisted Fantasy that had Ra Raekwon on it eventually did not have Raekwon at the time. Um, and maybe like two other songs. And he's like, yeah, this is like, this is where I'm going. And I'm like, yo, these records are really good, man. Like really, really good. And like also having just come off of like a singing album, which I was like, I like this, but like you're you're not doing the thing that I like. I'm here for the rapping. Yeah, I you have an incredible gift for melody, and like your some of these songs are really awesome. It's just not my personal thing, um, and it's funny because you know again this is and this is where the criticism thing is. It's like that's probably the most influential album on the direction of popular rap music, like of the aughts. NBA Youngboy, Drake, like none of that shit happens, Kid Cudi, without 808s and Heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and he's like, okay, cool. He's like, yo, do you want to come to Hawaii? And I'm like, to do what? He's like, just for the vibes, man. Just like, yo, we're just like, it's it's so ill, it's so peaceful. And I'm like, yeah, just come and hang for a week. And I'm like, you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I'm like, all right. So I'm like, Go to complex and i'm like look i'm gonna go to hawaii to spend a week with kanye like i don't know what's gonna come of it or whatever but i'm just i have to do this so i go to hawaii and um i just you know i, I witnessed the process for a week and it was like again you talk about that steve job shit it wasn't every single day was basically exactly the same um so we would meet at 10 in the morning at his house he had a professional chef there who would make breakfast and so like i'm eating breakfast with like push a tea the rizza consequence q-tip you know um steven victor my friend would go on to become a very successful record executive um you know virgil and Doncy. like this is the table and we're all just talk, talking rap, talking about the stakes of this album, talking about what he has to accomplish. And, you know, he is like a, a an executive in so much as like nothing happens that he, nothing, nothing creative happens that he's not 100% behind, but he also likes to sort of build consensus and like sort of mine the room for ideas and some I, it's funny because like people always talk about like oh he has ghost treasure and stuff and i'm like more than anything 
he makes other people throw out ideas so as to like illustrate what he doesn't like. It's almost like he's filling in like the negative space. So like people are tossing ideas out and he's like, that's horrible. No, I hate that. It's like a sculpture. He's taking away the bad parts. Yes. To find David. And like as that happens, his vision is like sort of coming into focus. And um, and so anyway, we'd have amazing banana pancakes. (laughs) Then everyone would go back to their hotel room, change into gym gear, meet up at the gym. Everyone who plays basketball, not I, um, would play ball for an hour and a half. Me and the, the Rizzo would go like work out on like lift weights and run on the treadmill and shit. Um, everyone would go home and shower, meet back at the studio at three and basically work from 3 p.m. until Kanye falls asleep in the chair. And like nobody is leaving until Kanye is like knocked. Wow. And like, and, and mind you also, he's got three studios running at the same time. So there's like, he's got Q-Tip upstairs working on the drums on Lost in a World. He's got, you know, um, Consequence and Rhymefest in this studio writing to this beat. And then he's got him and the RZA are working on, uh, you know, Dark Fantasy in the A room. And he's just moving with his own inspiration like checking in on everybody, like seeing where it's at. And literally like, you know, and I'm just kind of like either shadowing him or just floating and like going and hanging out with Q-Tip, which is like the fucking most amazing experience of life and getting to pick the brain of the guy that like, you know, made the records that made me want to do all of this. Um, And yeah, and then Kanye would like literally work until he fell asleep in the chair sitting up and I remember there was one night where like you know like Pusha observed more like traditional like he's he's like what we were talking about Eminem like Pusha is like a get to the studio work do the work and leave kind of guy like he's not trying to like hang for the vibe and the conversation or whatever and I think even knowing him like in his real life it's like write the song at home in the leisure like it in the comfort of my own crib, go to the studio to do the work, finish the song, and leave immediately out. Clinical. Yes. And like, whereas Kanye, it's like more of this sort of like omnipresent volley of ideas and thoughts. And we're watching, you know, weird art movies on a giant screen while the music plays at like deafening levels. And like, he's talking, you know, he's writing power and he's like, going around the room being like, what does power mean to you? What does power mean to you? Like, and like, people aren't like saying lines. They're just like ideas that he might grab onto to then like formulate something. Um, and this one night, like it's now like four, four thirty in the morning, like everyone has cleared out. But me and Steven were in the A room with Kanye and like, he's completely like knocked out like cold asleep like snoring and this is like uh instant messenger days so i'm like i i messaged steven who we're staying at the same hotel i'm like yo do you think we should get a cab and he's like i think he's asleep and i'm like okay cool he's like yo we got to be quiet though like okay so i like close the laptop and i'm like and like the the sofa creaks and kanye's like what yo 
oh shit, no, what, what are y'all doing? Y'all aren't leaving, right? I'm, I'm still working. And we're like, oh no, I was just going to the bathroom. <laughs> you got your backpack on, you're like, yeah. oh yeah, it's cold in here. I was just trying to you know, warm up, take it off. And yeah, and we end up, and we end up sitting there with him for like another hour while he like, and that was like his thing was like, he would like fall asleep at like four or five, sleep for a couple hours in the studio, either like literally in the chair or like on a sofa. And then we'd probably wake up at like eight, work for another hour or two, and then meet us at his crib for breakfast at 10 or 11. And during the like whatever five nights that I was there, the dude never slept in his own bed once. Like he was, that was where he slept. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it's just that Steve Jobs like level of like, you know, drivenness and ambition and like relentlessness. Like this has to be exactly how I want it to be at all costs. It's insane that level of focus and dedication. It really is Steve Jobs level. Like I'm sleeping here. I'm not, I can't leave until it's done. And so you were there, you did that pretty much every day for what, seven days? Maybe five, I think. And did he stay longer? Like, he was, yeah. He, that was kind of like the, I think probably like the the middle end of it. This is probably March. Um, he probably wrapped things up in April, like end of April. Um, in general, like my relationship with him during that period was like, he would call me, like he would, there would be a moment where the album would come into focus for him. And then I would get the call, like, come, come through. Mm. And the irony was that like, often it was still like four months of like laborious work from actually being done or six months. Yeah, but he knew where he wanted it but to But it was go like, and... okay, I now have the songs that I want. Okay, I can see this. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, like he had kind of, you know, the bones of the record, a lot of songs where it was just a beat or it was a beat with a chorus or, you know, like a skeleton of what we would actually eventually hear. Um, and then he came back to New York over the summer, dropped power, and then finished the record at Electric Ladyland um, during his whole like Rosewood movement where he had like wore a suit to the studio every day and like made the engineers wear suits. It was felt bad for Mike Dean and and Noah, um, the engi his, his engineer, because um, he really had those dudes like in a suit at the mixing board for like 12 hour. Like necktie, the whole deal. Couldn't take the jacket off. And what was the rationale behind it? Do you remember? Yo, this is just what we're on. We're on some suit and tie shit. Yo, this is the Rosewood movement. Like, wow. Like, this is the thing. And it was just like, all right. And yeah. Do you have a different relationship with the record now that you hear it and you got to hear it in its genesis and as it was forming and like you can feel Virgil's fingerprints, you can feel Push's fingerprints. Like, th how does it resonate for you? I mean, that was one where, yeah, I, I, it's just like, it is one of my favorite albums ever. And and I, I think empirically it is that great, but also just like to have spent, you know, because then when he was in, Electric Ladyland, I probably dropped by, I don't know, half a dozen times during that just because it was like, yo, come over after work and like hang out for a little bit. And so like I watched him like record the and like write the power remix verse with like, while he's getting a haircut with like, you know, me and uh, Consequence or what's his name? Um, Sci High the Prince, like sitting there throwing lines at it, 
at us. Like, so, you know, there's like, when you get to see art made like that, there's definitely like a level of personal investment that, and yeah, and like, I can't listen to that record and not be taken back to those moments. And like, the yeah. The smells, I mean, the feeling, like everything. Imagine 16 year old Noah is sitting at a breakfast table with Q-Tip and the RZA and Kanye and Virgil and Doncy and Pusha. Yeah, the kid from Ego you know, Trip. Yeah, just like, hey, and we're all just talking about rap. Yeah, it's insane. Do you ever listen to it and, and notice like your contributions? Like, obviously he's asking you what you think about power and you're giving your answer. Like, I mean, I don't know. Cause the thing is, is like, I always try to like, there were times that we would, he would ask opinions and stuff. And my thing to him was always like, you're the artist and your natural instinct is what makes the art as great as it is. And like, again, I can tell you what I like or what I don't like, but like when it comes to the create these creative decisions, like I don't, I almost don't want to be involved because I don't want to sully like your genius at work. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of goes back to the A&R thing where you're like, Yo, I don't have this like musical genius. I just kind of have taste and what I like and what I don't like. So I can't, I don't want to contribute like, oh, fix the snare here, fix this 808 because yeah. that's not my bag. No, I mean, like a perfect example is like all of the lights when he was playing it in Hawaii, it had like those, all those like crazy horns and crazy drums. They were all like off of like a synthesizer. So it's like these crazy loud like horn stabs. Like, yeah. And it, and it was like, super abrasive and like noisy and i was you know like yo i don't know about this one and i feel like i don't don't remember who one of the dudes in his sort of like inner circle like i had a like moment where i was like i don't know about that one they were like yeah it's, it's a lot there's a lot going on there and but then like kanye has the vision right like all I'm hearing is just this like really loud, like Triton cheesy keyboard horn stabs and this like really fucking abrasive drums that it's like drowning out his vocals. And then cut to like four months later, he's got like a symphony playing the horns section. And it's soft and it's like- And he's got Rihanna and Fergie and Cuddy and like all these other people like layering vocals and like, you know, and you're like, holy shit. like. This went from being like almost unlistenable to like one of the strongest songs on the album and one of his biggest hits ever. ever. And it's like, that's a perfect example of like, this is why I don't give feedback. Cause like- But you did give feedback. Yeah, yeah like you were like, but it was the exact feedback that you give, which is like, I don't know about that. But I didn't, to him, I did not say anything. To him, it was just like, you know, I just, also, you know, artists are sensitive. So like, I, I just lead with what I like and sort of like, yeah. don't address the rest, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yo, but I really love what you did with, you know, that shit, what you replaced the P-Rock thing with, yo, that was crazy. Or, you know, yo, that loop, the Curtis Mayfield shit that Pete did was crazy. And like, oh, or this line is amazing or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Because I just feel like someone that is operating on that level 
is like playing like fucking 4D chess with themselves and like I don't yeah I'm here to aid that pursuit and not try to inject myself into it yeah cause I don't like I know him and again like he he turns the corner and then he knows what it's supposed to be like he can hear it it's sort of like you know and I feel this like somewhat as a visual artist right where like I'll have an idea for a drawing like I, I did a, a single il illustration for a, this artist Errol Holden and like I like send Errol like this like super quick like two minute like sketch of what I want to do and Errol's like uh, I don't know man okay I guess like see it through but I'm like in my head I'm like I know what it's supposed to be and I hope you can get on my wave and see where it's going but I just wanted to show and you and then it becomes what it finally was but it there was still 75 hours of drawing that had to go between this like quick little like marker rendering yep. and like what is now in you know Spotify exactly and like the same thing with, with Ye where it's like yeah he knew like no but I'm gonna get real horn players to replay these horns and like I'm gonna go get Rihanna to sing that melody that like it's me doing a high pitched voice which is you know what I mean like imagine oh, really? him, like these yeah like it's him doing all the parts and like turn up the lights yeah and it's just his voice it's his voice wow. like not auto-tuned like you know and he's like singing is not what he does right? right I mean he can he uses machines to like get him to where he needs to be but like but he knows where he needs to go yeah he just he could hear all of that stuff in advance before anyone yes wow um yeah I mean yeah like you know not to to digress but my other I'm gonna give you all all the great stories here please but like um a year later he hits me up and it was funny because I I like just flown back from being at a conference in um Australia and again he calls me like first thing in the morning like 7 a.m and it's like yo what are you doing tonight and I'm like yo I literally just got off a flight from Australia like I'm probably gonna sleep a couple hours and go into the office what's up me and Jay are here and we're finishing Watch the Throne um I got it I got the album I know like we put out Ham and all that shit and like it's not that that's not what the record is but I got it um yo come come, come by tonight we're, we're at the Tribeca Grand so I'm like okay sure you know whatever I go sleep for a few hours go to the office do my thing and it's like 7 p.m. and I've like kind of like memory hold this conversation because I'm just so like spun upside down by the jet lag and whatever and I'm walking to the train to go home and then I have this like fleeting thought of like oh, I did say tell Kanye I would go to the studio and I'm just like thinking about the like being up until like midnight or something and falling asleep in the chair and, and I'm just like oh fuck all right you know I mean not that I'm I'm not so jaded that I'm not excited about yeah. the idea of... But it was a long day. But it was just a long day. And then my phone lights up and he's like, yo, are you done with work? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like literally standing at the mouth of the, you know, uh, F train on 23rd Street ready to go back to Brooklyn. And he's like, cool. Um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head over to the studio right now. So like, just meet, just meet me there. And I'm like, all right. Fuck it. You know what? I'm like I, I can't say no to this. Like this is like the two 
of my favorite rappers ever working on a collaborative project together and he's invited me to the studio so like yes okay i'm gonna go and i go and first of all i get there and it's just jay-z and mike dean and jay's like you know again i don't he certainly didn't remember me from mtv but i think he kind of like knew of me as the complex guy because at this point i've been editor-in-chief for like four years or five years um so he's like oh what's up oh yeah you're yay's boy from complex okay yeah, yeah what's up and so we like chit chat and it's like a very you know awkward quiet thing then kid cuddy comes through and a cuddy i know so that kind of like breaks the ice and starts moving and then eventually kanye shows up maybe like a half hour later um but what was crazy was that night, so I'm there from probably 7 p.m. until about four in the morning. They record, well, Kanye records his verse of, for Paris. They finish recording um, the song about having kids, the RZA the record. Mm-hmm. Um, then at some point, like at 10 o'clock at night, Swizz Beats comes by and plays beats and then jay hears welcome to the jungle actually no it, was, it had to be earlier than that it had to be like more like eight thirty nine. because i'm i remember he's playing all these records and swizz is like an amazing salesman uh, like he like plays it and like gets everybody yeah, yeah, all, yeah. you know and i don't mean salesman like he's anything cheesy it's like it's vibes though he's not, yeah he's not he's just not gonna let it be a flat vibe yeah. he's like no, I've, seen, I've seen Timbaland do that where like he'll play the track and like him and Dre are like going crazy and it's like or uh, him and Jay-Z are going yeah. crazy and it's like oh yeah he's like showing you what it can be yes and so he's like doing the like welcome to the jungle and like and then like Jay is like yeah I like that one and then Swizz is like alright but I'm not gonna leave until you guys put vocals on it because I have to go to my cousin's birthday party and but like if y'all don't put vocals on it I'm taking this beat with me and so kind of like all right, all right just like give us a sec whatever and like Jay is watching it's the NBA playoffs um the Bulls are playing in like the second round and he's just like sitting there quietly just like head nodding and just like zoning out to this and then like after like 30 minutes just gets up and is like all right give me the mic and in one take he does the like blocks the nose that does it the like like just beginning to end entire verse like the whole like yeah i don't write things that like that is it was like magic wow and no two takes no over like just and he's done then Kanye you know who's like a little bit he has like a totally different process he like does kind of like usually does like sort of mumble tracks and then kind of like fills in the words as he goes the chili pepper shit like let me get yeah. the flow and then exactly like he, he finds like his own sort of rhythm in the track and um and so he does that Swizz leaves what did he say like after Jay just one took like I mean you know they're, they're, all, they're all used to it they're just like oh that like 
this dude's a savant. Like, that's what he does. Bro. And I'm just like, yo, you were just watching the game. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wasn't, I didn't even know that you were paying attention to the music in the background. I mean, you know, he was like lightly nodding his head. Watching the third quarter, just like. Yep. Locking in an insane verse. And then does it. Then he does, then, oh, then they're like, oh, Pharrell came by yesterday and he, he brought four beats and they skip through and they get to the gotta have it beat. And I'm like, yo, that one's crazy with the James Brown shit. And they're like, yeah, that's the one we like too. And then the two of them, you know, that's the one where they go back and forth. Like the, you know, I just got off the PJ and Privé, Puerto Rico three day. And, you know, ain't that just like D-Wade? Whatever. And they like are just literally like whispering in each other's ears back and forth for like a half an hour. And then they have one mic and they just sit there and record the two verses just like basically passing it back and forth like in real with, time yeah like with a table like this like two chairs also mind you we're in a room in the tribeca grand that is half the size of this room like it's like they've taken the bed out it's part of a suite they've taken the bed out and so mike dean is at the end with the mixing board they got like a little table like this with like a mic on it there's no vocal booth or any shit like that and then and then like there's like me, Aziz Ansari, uh, Beyonce, and like, I can't even remember, like two or three other like random, very famous people that are like just in the room hanging out. And they're just like, yo, we just knocked out that song. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah, pull up that, that, that Paris record. And then like, there's like a whole debate about whether or not the Will Ferrell part should stay. Oh, really? Like, is it too self-indulgent or is it really funny kind of thing? And what is the debate? Like, I just think, you know, it, and I don't even remember, it wasn't like a him versus Jay thing or anything like that. It was more just like a, like, is this awesome or is it like- Kind of corny. Kind of like over yeah. the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, yo, it's, I mean, it's fucking memorable, man. And like- what, what was your take? Do you remember in the moment? Oh yeah, I mean, I just thought it was, I mean, I, I, I love that part of Kanye's personality, the like, the part of him that loves goofy comedies is like that's that's one of the things where we are like you know very aligned and yeah and it was just like they settle on that and then like jay's verse was had been recorded the night before and that was done so kanye goes in and he had like done maybe half of the verse and then he finished like the you know, I would have married Kate and Ashley and all that stuff that night. Then I think they they work on and then oh and then the last bit was um the RZA record and I think again Jay's verse was done but Kanye was not quite there and then Kanye finished his verse for that. And then it's like four in the morning and I'm like, yo, I've watched these dudes create not four songs from scratch but basically two songs completely from scratch and two other songs that were like halfway done got finished and all of them are like fucking classics wow and um, what's everyone else doing like what's like what's Aziz doing like what like just I mean, everyone's just vibing and like listening and you know people are like having some adult beverages but nothing crazy no one's going you know it's like not a like party scene it's like right but their it, contributions are kind of like, oh, that's fire. Like, oh yeah. man, y'all killed that. Like, it's just like energy. Yeah, it's just positive energy. And like, 
again, different perspectives. Everyone, you know, everyone has different ideas about, you know, oh yeah, that I really love that part or wouldn't it be cool if, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and do you have that same intuition like back in the day when you're at the record store and you hear my name is or whatever and you're like, oh, that's heat? Is it yes. the same thing when it's happening oh, def- in the room? Definitely. Is it more tangible? Well, what, what, what was funny to me was this was, a, and this was a moment again where like I had a feel like, so if you remember that the way that record rolled out, they had put out a song called Ham on the blogs in like February and it was met with really mixed reactions because like, it was like a bounce tempo, Lex Luger beat. Mm-hmm. And I think coming off of Twisted Fantasy and like the, him and Jay rapping on the, the Pete Rock record on the Good Fridays, like the audience wanted like some like soulful hip hop shit. And then they came with this kind of like down south bounce tempo. Mm. And it, you know, it's funny in retrospect, I think him is a fucking great record, um, but whatever. It just, you know, you, you tell a joke and it lands funny sometimes. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And, and it's also a weird time where it's like still fairly early Twitter internet days where like, you know, like people aren't, they don't even have the time to like go listen to it in the club. Like, you know, you think about how many records you heard. I like, I mean, I remember hearing Over by Drake. The, it was the first single off of his first album and hearing it like on MacBook speakers and being like, I don't know about this. And then literally that night I go to like an industry function and like the DJ plays it at like 11 o'clock and I've had like two drinks and I'm like, oh. yes. Oh, this is, yeah, this is going to work. This sounds fucking great in this context on these speakers in this environment and so yeah they threw this thing out and like you know and I'm, i and again when you talk about like imagine spending the amount of time energy and conscientiousness that they put into making this record for a bunch of people to listen to it on macbook speakers and then make a fl- you know snap judgment and yeah. jump in the comments on not right and so I think there was a lot of concern that maybe it was the fact that it was like it was the the, the bounce thing and that like people wanted something that was like a little more like roots hip hop and soulful. And so I'm like, yo, you got like that's the one. That record is crazy. Um and they still they ended up continuing to work and then they made Otis which ultimately was the first record that they led with because I think they felt like Kanye felt like that has the soul that's got that soul and that energy it's, it's undeniable like it's up tempo you could play it in a club but the nerdiest most cynical rap nerd cannot deny this yeah, song it it's is undeniable like elite level rapping with a chopped Otis Redding sample you know it's, it's just got everything yeah it's it, perfect it's perfect and that ended up being the first single, and then they went into Paris as the second single. Yeah. Um, and again, because I think there was, you know, also there was just a tremendous stakes for them artistically, commercially, like Kanye's coming off of, you know, the most acclaimed album of his career. You know, Jay-Z has been number one for- Ever. Yeah, like, yeah. 10 years at this point or whatever. And it's like, Oh no! This can't. This is not a throwaway record, or this can't be just like something we like throw together and toss out there. Yeah, like it has to live up to both of our legacies. Yeah, in my time at least, I I consider them the greatest rap duo of all time. 
I mean, in terms of like producer, rapper, production flow, singles, album, like even going back to like blueprint shit. Yeah, no, it's I'm, it's the greatest. I think they're the greatest two creative forces in rap and hip hop ever. When you put them together, the magic is just undeniable, and they they make each other better. Yeah, you know, and and like I don't know if it's like. A competitive thing i don't know if it's you know kanye is sort of like the little brother like pushing himself to want to like equal or please jay or whatever the i don't you know the sort of interpersonal dynamic is but it's like it's just perfect whenever they work together yeah. um but yes yeah, so that was fucking amazing but also it was a testament to like watching the two of them work also was just interesting because they have such wildly different processes yeah like it's cool to see like it's it's easy i think to see someone do something in one way and then you go oh that's the way it should be done but when you have two of the greats doing it simultaneously you go oh there's a lot of ways and there's ways that fit your personality and can cater to what no. you do like jay just has ultimate confidence he just give me the thing i'm going to think about it and then i'm going to do the thing and i know that you know, my virtuosity as a musician, this is going to be phenomenal. And he just does it. Yeah. Kanye will, you know, he sat with power for three months before it was done, you know, thinking about every word choice and the phrasing and like, you know, and it also ends up being phenomenal. Like he just has it's just a different approach to things. Yeah, I'm, I get overly analytical where I'll look at things and I'll like dissect a lot and overthink and think again and, and months will go by on like a joke or on a thing I'm working on. And it makes me feel good because sometimes I'll be like, oh fuck, I should be more in the moment. I should just feel it. I should just kind of stop thinking and just go and flow. And there's times where that happens, but it makes me feel good to know that there's a lot of ways up the mountain. No, I mean, me and my friend Ben as a contemporary of mine as a you know hip hop journalist, we'd always talk about our processes and like he like every sentence that he puts down into Microsoft Word is like the sentence that will appear in the magazine, you know, pending edits or whatever. Sure. But like it doesn't like leave his brain until it's like perfect. Whereas I have to like erupt word vomit <laughs> and write thirty thousand words and then get to like the last paragraph and be like, Oh, I found my lead. This is my thing. And then like all this gets deleted and now I have my story and let me work it that way. Yeah. Yeah. What other lessons have you taken? I mean, you've been around so much greatness and this is just a couple examples, like it's Cuddy, fucking everyone, but you've been around a lot of greatness. What lessons do you apply? Obviously you're not rapping, but like to your creative process. I mean, you know, Kanye, I, I, I credit because that sort of like relentless pursuit of perfection both from himself and from his collaborators like i think like he has that steve jobs thing where it's like at the end of the day the consumer doesn't care they don't care about whether or not you burnt out your art director or you know your head of ux hates you or whatever the thing is like they care if the iPhone is fucking perfect. Yep. And, you know, 
I sort of like, I'm definitely not that level. And like he and I would have arguments, you know, where he would like critique like the art direction of the magazine. And I'd be like, dude, I hear you, but like I have to make a product and it has to come out on a regular cadence. And also like, so I have to keep people employed because this is like a cyclical process. And like, if I, every employee that I run through, I then have to like, go interview six other people and retrain and exactly get the vibe and like so like i have to manage these relationships like i appreciate that you will like drive a relationship into the ground in the pursuit of perfection and then just move on to find some other collaborator you know or maybe and you know to, to kindness credit he often will circle back with those people after everybody's like gotten over the sort of rawness of whatever experience was yeah and but like but but i will say that like seeing that is inspiring and it does it does make you just go like no i have to demand excellence because like you know if if you set the bar here with the expectation that the person is probably gonna like under deliver by a little bit Mm -hmm if this is actually what I want, then I have to actually set the bar here. Yep. You know, and like, you know, people will, like people respond to these, this kind of stimuli, you know, from leadership. And like, so I definitely like, would say that from him, I've gleaned a lot of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many people that I work with, you know, I mean, Paul Rosenberg is like, an inspiration in so much as he just like he knows what M's brand is and he will never ever compromise it under any circumstances for any reason because he knows that that brand is the most valuable thing and like when I went to work for him at Def Jam it was funny like I ended up like having a Somehow I ended up overseeing the brand partnerships team there. And that meant like organizing the Grammy party and like selling it to a sponsors. And then like, I don't, and I don't do events. Right. Um, but this got dropped in my lap, like one week after starting the job, you know, you, know, you get a job and then they're like, hop to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we, we told you that it was going to be all this stuff, but we also actually need you to do this stuff too. Um, and so we put together an event and um for the flyer i get there's this famous picture that jeanette beckman um took of slick rick where he's grabbing his nuts with a bottle of champagne and a fendi bag at his feet and it's one of my favorite hip-hop photos of all time it's just like everything is great about rap in like one image and in fact my wife got me a poster size print of it from jeanette for my 36th birthday and it hangs in a very ornate uh frame in our home oh that's dope um that's a good wife yes (laughs) um and but so i put that on the flyer and one of the advertisers box and is like this is too crude like we don't want our brand associated with this and so i'm like coming from you know 10 years of working at complex where like the sales team really their goals were very very aggressive to be fair to them. So there was a lot of bending over backwards to please the client. And um, so I go into to Paul's office like with being like, yo, I, 
client says that we need to change out this art and like, you know, it's $75,000 and, you know, it's like half the money for the party. Um, you know, sh- should I swap it out? And he's like, no, fuck him. Like, <laughs> I love that. Like, this is the most Def Jam image possible. If you don't want to stand next to this image, like you don't want to be in business with Def Jam. Like, that's it. And I go to the client and I say, look, like, the chairman feels very strongly about this image and, you know, we don't think it's particularly racy and we think it's like pretty iconic and core to what we do here at Def Jam. And the client was like, well, just take our name off the flyer and we still got the $75,000. Wow. And it was like, to me, such an instructive moment where it was like, Paul understood the, the leverage that the brand had and was not going to compromise the brand for this like small, you know, relatively small amount of money on, on the grand scale. Yeah, of, but so know. clearly saw what it was and saw what it needed to be. Yeah. And if, and if you don't want this, you don't want us. So like you can walk. No, and, and I think you look at like all of the choices that they've made with the M&M brand and it reflects that. It's like, no, this is Marshall's vision it has to be exactly that. Like there's no room for negotiation. We're not talking about it. No, you're not gonna throw your ideas. Yeah, what if we can get him to do this little jingle? No, fuck that. No, it's like, this is this is how you can, you know, I mean, it's the like, you know, Cause is gonna make 10 paintings this year. If you'd like to have one, you can get on the list and you could be lucky enough to pay him some very large sum of money to get one of them. There's not gonna be any commissions. There's not going to be any feedback. It's what it is because this is the brand. Because this is the brand and this is what he does. Yeah. And, you know, so I definitely, from that experience and working with Paul, was like, oh, like, okay. Do you see that with artists now where, like, you'll see them make a move? Like, not anyone you're close to, but just, like, someone randomly. And they'll make a move and you're like, damn, like, you're devaluing your brand. Like, you are affecting your perception to people because you sold out for 100K. Totally. When your I mean, brand is worth multi-millions? No, you see it all the time. And, you know, I mean, it's weird because sometimes I think the audience is, like, growing up in the, like, 80s and 90s, like, there was such a premium put on, like, selling out and, like, um, you know, like, even just, like, advertisements versus editorial content were, like, clearly delineated in any magazine you flip through it said like this is an advertisement like in big letters and now we live in a world of like branded content where like everything is it's all blended and so like on some levels i think the audience is very forgiving and like there are definitely brand integrations and partnerships that i've seen artists do that i'm like yeesh but and you know sometimes they step in it and sometimes it just slides by the audience and goes yeah. unnoticed and they get some huge check from some random yeah i would even see audiences sometimes with like a rapper will do something that seems out of character but people be like get your mountain dew bag yeah get your doritos bag like and they they understand more of like the artist economy because now rap is an institution yes. i think people kind of see it that way whereas back in the day it's like no we are the underground and you're associating with these corporate suits and fucking up your brand so fuck you yeah and i, I, well, I and i think also I mean, even, you know, with the stuff that I deal with, with idea generation, it's like, if we're giving you free content and, you know, to put together a four camera shoot and have an editor cut it to music and like, this is not a cheap endeavor. Right. 
someone has to foot the bill for you to be able to enjoy this content, you know, on Bloomberg or on YouTube or wherever you consume it. So there might be a branded moment that hap- that pops up in the thing. And like, I do think in general that the audience is like, if this doesn't feel inorganic or like totally distracting from the product that I'm making or the product that I'm enjoying that, well, that's the value proposition. Yeah. I got it for free. So I have to receive some messaging along the way. Yeah. I think your approach to just media in general is like, like so sharp. Like I was watching the combo with you like 12 years ago and you're like, the way you consume shit on mobile is different than how you consume it in print. And it's different than how you consume it on computers. And you were like intuiting that like a decade ago, like even more. And that is to me, I always talk about that with like comedy and shit. Like people are watching stuff on their phones, like make it for the phone. And if you make a recut for like TV or Netflix, like that's a different consumption habit. And I'm curious, like with your stuff now, do you consider how things are being consumed and what the medium is? And totally, I mean, yeah. And, And I look at it, you know, both in sort of the value proposition to the consumer and also when I'm talking to, to the sponsors, it's like, it's gonna be a total number of impressions because I'm gonna do this long form thing that is gonna be really elevated and you know very sort of wrought and thoughtful. Um, and that can live on television, on Bloomberg. It can live on YouTube as, a, as like sort of a long form thing. And then we're gonna do these cut downs that have virality on social and you know, the video might get two or 300,000 views on YouTube and it might get, you know, I don't, I don't even know how, some hundreds of thousands on on um, Bloomberg, but then it might get like a million views across four social clips on. Yeah. That's that content funnel. Yeah. Like short form is going to get the most and then mid form will get less and then long form will be at the bottom. Yeah. And, but with each one of them, you're reaching like a different level of engagement with the audience. So like, the people who sit through a 40 minute interview with Alchemist like are the most highly engaged and like also frankly the most grateful to the brand when this comes to conclusion they're like I'm really happy that Shop- Shopify you know mm. made this possible yeah and that's the core and they get it yeah and I mean and I've been very fortunate in the sponsors that we've worked with that they are incredibly light touch and like hands off about these things. Yeah, that's cool. Um, does the TikTokification of content and music specifically, does it bug you? Um, No, I mean, look, like, the future always wins. Technology is technology and like, you know, people are going to like consume where they want to consume. Um, I think the key is to like, to, to, you know, what you were saying earlier is like, like optimize the content for the platform um, and to sort of like understand, try to understand what's driving the consumption, um, you know, and understand like, like why do people like this and what, it, you know, what's driving this sort of interest and animating them to utilize this platform. Um, and so I think like, you know, it's, there's been like this like renaissance in like uh in the interview format because of these like short form clips and i'm sure you know as a podcaster yeah you know the Schultz I'm, show like you've seen it where course. it's like you guys have these moments that go viral you know i saw you with whitney cummings yesterday yeah, yeah, yeah. um cracking jokes yeah. <laughs> with an aussie accent and like <laughs> yeah, yeah you know but i didn't watch the full 
episode, but it was like, that was a totally enjoyable exactly. 75 second moment out of my day. Right. Um, so I, I, I just think it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a natural progression. I, I will say like, there are things that I, I do observe as like a cultural critic that are interesting and some of which I can get with and some of which are less my palate, but like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like rap songs are not longer than two minutes now. And like, it's it's interesting. They've like excised everything except for like the most hooky elements yep. of them. Um, and it's like chorus, one verse. I mean, like Lil Uzi Vert, I Want to Rock. Phenomenal record. But the first time I heard it, I was like, oh man, something like he, someone leaked this amazing demo. Interesting. And then I, you know, and I'm like, but then it's like, you see the kid's reaction to it and you're like, they don't care that this is like, you know, whatever it is, 90, 90 seconds or, you know, it's like Literally. two minutes. And it's like, but you know, that's sort of the thing like we we're talking about. It's like, there's no specific reason. Like, I don't, do you ever read the David Byrne book about music? Mm-mm. Okay. So like he, his whole thing in, in this book is that he talks about like, the context of music and that basically music is he's like we put this incredible premium on sort of the genius of individuality and that like these sort of like human oracles like go off into the woods and they come back with these masterpiece songs and he's like i think that's horseshit music is the product of its of its context and he's like for example like you know native african music centers around the drum why because a lot of it happened outside. You don't have walls, you need percussion to like make the music carry. Okay, cut to in the same period, why is the music in uh, like sort of like traditional Catholic church music, all of these slow chord progression organ songs? Because the organ was the loudest instrument that they could find and they're playing off of uh, stone walls and so if you play an organ really fast with stone walls the way that it reverberates you can't hear anything you know cut to Mozart and the harpsichord they're playing in small rooms with low ceilings you know so that's what the harpsichord works perfect tight tight rooms low ceilings um, you know even going to jazz there's an interesting this is a moment where like recorded music starts to take hold and like He's like, people in New York are recording jazz in live clubs. And the recording process is obviously very crude at this point because it's like, you know, the 20s or 30s. And they're pressing up vinyl, you know, or lacquers of these at the time, uh, 78s. And jazz musicians in St. Louis are getting these recordings. And then they've never seen New York jazz players play live. They're now playing to sound like this facsimile of a recording. It's literally telephone. Yes. And like, and he's like, you know, back then, like they would put the drummer sometimes in like a separate room in the back of the house because if the drums were too close to the microphones, they would wash it out. Yes. Take over. And so he's like, you know, he's like, so then, so then you have this whole wave of like St. Louis jazz that's like, trying to sound like what recorded New York jazz sounds like, which is now a totally trippy other thing. thing. And then you get to sort of like the invention of radio. And so like, why are songs three minutes? 
Is it because that's like the natural length of like a perfect record? No, it's because pop radio stations wanted to play three songs between commercial breaks. So if you were three minutes and you have three choruses, two verses and a bridge, you're perfect. And so that's becomes, you know, and the same thing, hip hop starts because, you know, DJs are spinning breakbeats. They notice that people on the dance floor are dancing to the drums. So they start looping the drums. And then the guy who is chiding the crowd to keep moving starts talking rhythmically over the drum section. And now you have rap. Wow. So all of these things are not because like... Some genius went away and had this epiphany. Yes. They're just in a context creating, you know, to the most efficient manner to communicate to their audience. A hundred percent. I mean, I think the same way with comedy and I even think rap in a certain way where like East Coast and West Coast is so different, even in standup. Yep. And I think the nature of the rooms actually dictate the style of comedy. Like in New York, you're in basements. Yep. It's a little room, there's 60 people and it's just like joke, 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 joke. The laughs are hitting the back of the room and coming back to you. And then you go out west and you're in these big rooms. You're in like a brewery or some shit. And it's like tall ceilings. And you got to perform big. And the people in the back got to see you. So you got to do a crazy face and an act out and do a silly thing. And the nature of the two styles of comedy are completely different. And you'll have a guy that like is known for like big act outs or whatever. And if he does the same act in a basement in New York, the 25 people in there are like, geez, bro, chill. What the fuck? Why are you screaming? And then the same guy with the tight one-liners that goes out to this big room out west. And they're like what is he saying? I can't even hear. Like he's so monotone and just zinging you with jokes. Like what is even going on? And the nature of the rooms themselves change the art. And I wonder if it's the same thing with rap. Like, oh yeah. I mean, look. Rap music in New York is like so dude, quick. We we listen to like, you know, Nas or Mob Deep. That makes sense when you're riding, you know, the N train on elevated through Queens, you know, in February on a headphones, right? But like, and I learned this, like, I remember uh, around like maybe a year after I did the Eminem story, I went back out to Cali and I interviewed Exhibit and like spent a day with him and we drove around in like some crazy car. Of course. You know, like low rider type shit. Um, and like the immersive sound was like, oh, like, yeah, we're like driving through his neighborhood and he's banging the shit super loud and the car is fucking bouncing and shit. And I'm like, oh, this, I understand why Dr. Dre and DJ Quick like made the records that they made and then why they were so different from- That's what you want. When yeah. you're cruising around in your car, you want to be sipping on gin and juice. Like, you want, and you want a certain BPM. Yeah. You want a certain bounce to it. You want like, you know, like a fullness, a richness. You know, New York music is like very aggy and aggressive and like, you know, yeah, hoodie on, walking through the street, bumping into people. Like well, it is, and it's it's funny. Even like from a style perspective, like I remember when I got to Ego Trip, two of the dudes from Ego Trip, um, uh, Gabe and Brent were from LA, and they were like talking about how they had observed. They're like, look, like this is you know 1997, so this is long before like sneakerhead culture has like a thing. But he's like, yo, the way you guys care about your sneakers, like we, no one in LA gives a fuck about what they're wearing. Like, that's why when you see like Mac 10 and all these guys, they're wearing like standard jeans and a long white t-shirt and like who even knows what yeah, sneakers they're wearing. Scuffed up Keds or some shit. Because like. they're going to get in their car yep. and their car is the showpiece. Yes. And he's like, for you guys, it's about the Tims, it's about the Air Force Ones, it's about the Air Max 95s because that is how you are communicating what you're about to the world. That's your car. Yes. Literally. And like, you know, so you have these sort of like, I think, you know, 
context does breed culture in a lot of in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And I think it's important to like contextualize it. And maybe that's the the hope for the critic is like, yo, if you're trashing this shit right now, well, listen I, to it in your car. Go I, like I mean, and that and that's the whole thing with with critics and I think, you know, the challenge and you look at like there have been times where hip hop media has sort of been out of step with the consuming audience, right? Where like, you know, when all the magazines were based out of New York, and then like the West Coast is on the rise and like there's like this tension of like, is this really dope? Like, you know what I mean? Like the Chronic got a four and a half mics from the source. Like if that's not a perfect album, you know, but again, you can't judge those guys like Sheck and Reggie Dennis and them. It's like they're listening to it probably, you know, in a fucking literally like 150 feet from here in some little loft in you know Soho and they're like yeah shit is cool like you know yeah but it's not bars though yeah yeah. exactly you know he said I drop bombs like Vietnam what a cliche (laughs) you know like and that's sort of the and and so there's been that tension I saw it you know at Blaze like as the south rose where there was like definitely this sort of like still like coastal bias mm. and you know we were fortunate like and to his credit jesse washington the the editor-in-chief like had staffed up there's a woman sharice nicole who had was from the south and like a few other staff members i think um mahmoud was from the midwest who like had like different ears and were like no 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 this cash money shit mm. or like D- dj screw paul wall yes like, mike is, jones there's, like, there's something going on here yeah that's its own thing yeah i mean yo i so I, there's another really random rap story, but like in 1999, I get invited on a, on a press trip to Orlando. Let's go, 407, um, people. For the 69 boys, uh, for like whatever their second album, um, the one that didn't blow up. Mm-hmm. But we spend the day in Orlando, we go to like a car show that's like their video shoot with all these crazy cars, whatever, and they're playing like DJ Screw music and stuff. And you know, I'm whatever, 19 at the time, I've never seen anything like this. Then they take us to a club that's like the craziest shit I've ever been to in my life where they have like a giant smokehouse barbecue in the back. I love that. And like, I for like an hour and a half, they play like record straight records I've never heard. And I'm at that point like rap nerd of all rap nerds. Yeah. And then they get to Juvenile Back That Ass Up and they played Back That Ass Up for 45 minutes straight. <laughs> Like they did, it was just over and over and over and dun, over again. Dun, dun, dun. And just oh, and and as soon as it would end, run right, it back. right back. And the audience, like the the kids that were in there, went fucking apeshit for it. And again, this was like a moment for me where I was like, I remember getting the advance for this juvenile thing, and then everyone being like, "Oh yeah, this guy Dino from Universal just gave these guys like this huge like I don't know they, they had some like ten million dollar label deal, which at the time was like a fucking huge yeah, check." Insane. Even now, it's insane. Yeah, but in my they, opinion, <laughs> it is. They throw, record labels throw a lot of money around these days, yeah. but at the time, it was like that was a huge deal, and all of us were kind of like, okay, like, yes, you know, some of this music's cool. Like, I don't, we'll, like, I don't know if it's going to be that big though. And then I watched that and was like, oh, I totally get it. Like, yeah. And that was the first time you heard a win. Yeah, that was. I mean, yeah, that because that was they played that, and they might. I don't know. if they played bling bling yet but like yeah i mean that was like the beginning of that whole movement and then you put them on the cover of uh 
complex, right? Oh yeah, Wayne. That was yeah my first cover. Yeah, that's that's a wild one. That it was a that one sold like fucking crazy. It was like the first time that a complex sold like over fifty percent um, on newsstand. Um, it was just like total kismet. Yeah, but that's quick thinking on your part though. Like that story is crazy. Yeah, well, it was you know I, again like making magazines. It's like you're always trying to just make lemonade and like that i forget i i basically i i'd like lined up it was supposed to be a men of next year cover and i had um my initial idea i think was like timberlake um ari from entourage and nas because they all had like entourage was coming back timberlake was i think either he just done oh he just done sexy back but he had that movie um which we call his first like movie movie oh. where, about LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. They killed the a kid and yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um and then Ari and Timberlake fall out. I end up getting Travis Barker and I was think like trying to get the third person. And I get the call from I'm like flying to LA to shoot Nas and and uh Travis together. And I'm at JFK and I get a call from Nas's publicist being like, yo, so I got bad news. I'm like, well, what's up, man? He's like, uh, Elliot just called me from XXL and like somehow he got wind of this and he's offered Nas a split cover with Jeezy and like he said he's going to pull the cover and he's like, I need Nas to get an XXL cover and I also can't have Jeezy get the solo because they're both signed to Def Jam because then this dude's going to look at me like crazy, like, how did you drop the ball that now he's yeah. not going to accept that Elliot pulled the cover or whatever. And I'm like, Gabe, what the fuck, man? I'm like at the gate about to get on this flight. And he's like, ah, I don't know what to do, man. Sorry. So I'm just like, shit. So I get on the flight anyway. This is like the broke days of complex. So we have a layover in Dallas and I'm flying and I'm listening to dedication to and I have an advance of like father, like son, the Birdman Wayne album. Yeah. And I'm just like, yo, all right, if I'm 16, Nas is old. Who is my favorite rapper if I'm 16? And then I'm just like, it's motherfucking Lil Wayne. What am I doing? Like, I'm literally yeah, listening, listening to, to, to the, the guy. I'm listening to dedication to like, this guy is having a renaissance moment right now. He's fucking rapping his ass off and he has all the momentum in the world. I land, I call this woman, Wendy Washington, who's the universal publicist. Um, I happen to catch her right before she's left the office. I'm like, I'm shooting Travis tomorrow. Will Wayne do a... She's like, yeah, Wayne loves Blink-182 and he fucks with Travis. Oh, that's actually cool. I didn't even realize that that link up. They had like, I don't know, they had met in passing and somehow she knew that just yeah. like in general. And shoot Travis and then I shoot Wayne and then Wayne is very uh, cranky uh, in the morning we shoot it's like a 10 a.m. shoot and he has not smoked any weed yet and so he's very cranky and the day before that he had dropped um, the Drought 3 mixtape where he raps over or no no not just Drought 3 um, Louisiana mixtape where he raps over Show Me What You Got and he kind of takes shots at Jay-Z and so I like tell the writer Toshi um, yo you have to ask him about this and you also have to ask him, you know, because he's been like 
um, there's been this back and forth between him and the, the Clips dudes ever since they did that record together with Birdman. Um, you know, and you know, I, with that kind of thing, like you never know if sometimes people just shut it down or they just like play it off like, I don't know what you're talking about or whatever. Dude was feeling a little aggravated at the world in that moment and just fucking went off and was like, I'm the best rapper alive. And like, yo, I'm tired of these old men talking about how like rap is dead. Like rap isn't dead. I'm making the best rap music right now. And like, I'm sorry if it feels like, you know, there's no place for you in this fucking house. But I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was basically like, I'm in your house and like, my feet are up on the couch kind of thing. It was a little crasser than that. Um, and we drop it and it just fucking goes crazy. And yeah, it sold like inc incredibly well. And like it ended up being like this real pivotal moment for Wayne. And for Complex. And for Complex, yeah. I mean, certainly for Complex. And for you. And for for like, me, I went from like, you know, no, you have to imagine this whole flight I'm thinking like this is my first cover and it's falling apart like I'm 26 years old I somehow gassed the publisher Rich was very smart very nice guy but I've like sold him on my ability to run this magazine and he's put all his eggs in a 26 year old's basket which is you know now again in retrospect is props <laughs> to Rich because that was crazy but also the right move it worked out great for both of us yeah um, but he, you know, and I'm like, this is fucking falling apart. And like, what am I going to do? I'm going to lose my job if I don't pull this together. And we do that and it works. Um, and yeah. And, and then, you know, and then uh, me and Elliot actually had lunch like last week and we we're talking about this whole story. And then Elliot, basically I alley-ooped it to him because he then came back with Wayne on the cover the next month responding to the review, like following up on the interview that wow. we had done. So it was a double up. So he, yeah, so he won with it too. Oh, that's wild. But that's like, you're through the wire. That's like, you know, my mouth is wired shut. What am I gonna do? Make a banger. It, I, I got very fortunate in that instance and the, the other, my next cover, I had Rosario Dawson booked for the Tarantino movie that she was in. Um, I think, what was it? Death Proof? Yes, Death Proof, exactly. Um, and I'm, it's like May, I mean, it's like December 7th or something. Just shortly before this, I had had this serendipitous moment where uh, Nick Cannon was in the office with Mark Echo. And Mark has just given him a sort of a tour of the office. Mark also created Complex, Yes, right? Mark is the, you know, the founder and the, you know, yeah. He also, you know, this is part of his clothing empire. Started as sort of like, you know, an ambitious vanity project and turned into like a real business. Um, and Mark brings him by. He's like, oh, hey, this is my guy Noah. He's the editor-in-chief here. Chit-chat. And sort of like in the like weeks leading up to this, me and some of the senior staff, you know, we're like paying attention to the Us Weeklies and all this kind of stuff because like, you know, like one, we have to book the thing with Complex. We always had a guy cover and a girl cover. So it was always a split. So, you know, I have to pay attention to like celebrity culture and like what's going on with actors and actresses and all this more, you know, beyond just rap. And my dude, Donnie, um, who's still at Complex, he and I were having a conversation. He's like, yo, have you ever noticed there's like this super beautiful woman who's like always in the pictures with uh, Paris Hilton? 
Um, I saw one where they identified her. I think she's Robert Kardashian's daughter. Hilarious. And and then we like do a little more research and we realize like, oh, like she was dating Nick Cannon, whatever. So this is just sort of like something in the back of my head. So he introduced me to Nick and I, we chit chat for like five minutes. And then I'm like, hey, Nick, before you go, um, I have a weird question. I hope this is not like out of pocket. There's a young woman you used to date um, who I really would love to put in a magazine. Um, is there any way, like, do you have a contact or could you, should, you know, put me in touch with someone who could put me in touch with Kim Kardashian? And he's like, oh, Kim? Oh, man, don't worry about it. No, she's the best. Like, you know, yeah, we don't date, but like, I love Kim to death. Absolutely gives me her AOL um, address. And Donnie, I pass it on to Donnie. Donnie cold emails her and she writes us back and is like, yeah, I've never done a professional photo shoot, but I'd love to. So I shoot her probably like, I don't know, December 10th or something like that. And then in like the 11th hour on like December 17th, Rosario's publicist calls me and we've been like going back and forth on dates and like I have to ship the magazine on January 7th. Like that's full stop. Full stop. And I'm like trying to work, I'm like trying to work with the art team to be like, okay, like what if we shoot on like, January 2nd, can we like flip it in five days? Like, is it possible? You know, they're like, it's gonna suck. And then the publicist calls me and is like, um, so I hate to say it, but um, Rosario's extended her va- her Christmas vacation. Um, so we're just gonna have to pass on the cover. And I'm like, fuck, <sighs> shit, all right. And this is really, really frustrating. And so, you know, I'm just like one of these, like, in the face of that kind of adversity, my go-to is just like, all right, I'm just going to like work my way through this. So the Christmas comes and I'm like still going to the office because I'm just like, I have to solve this problem. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and mind you, I had gone to LA. We'd done the Kim shoot. She was one of the most beautiful people I'd ever like witnessed in real life. She was absolutely lovely and like sweet to everybody and just like great vibes on set and super cool. And also had that thing that I was talking about Eminem having where you're just like- Magnetism. There's everyone in this room is staring at this woman and like, of course she's a beautiful woman, but there's something, you know, we shoot a lot of beautiful models for this magazine and like, they walk by and like, you know, the crew's just kind of like, whatever. There's something about her that is just so magnetic and charismatic and so winsome. And just like, she's also just so nice. Like the type, type of person who like says goodbye to like the grips, like every single person on set, like, hey, thank oh, you so much dope. for this. This was great. Um, and we've gotten the pictures back and they are very compelling. Um, and uh I'm like, I go into the office on the 26th um, of December because I'm just like, I have to pull, I, 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 against all odds, I pulled the rabbit out of my hat last time. I don't know how I'm going to do it this time. Like, and I go on to like Egotastic or like one of those celebrity blogs that was popping at the time, Perez Hilton or whatever. And they have like a headline that's like, 
some woman you've never heard of has a sex tape with Brandy's little brother. And I'm like, oh shit. And I'm like, ding. All right, I got a cover. Wow, that's crazy. So we call her and we're like, hey, so we want to bump you up to a cover, but we're going to have to ask you about this. You know, are you comfortable with that? And like, she was like, yeah, look, it is what it is. Like, we're dealing with it, but yeah, you know, I think at the time she denied that it, like, whatever, that either that it had, I don't know if she denied that it, it, that it was real or whatever, but she just like, you know, did her PR thing and we ran with Sex Lies and Videotape as the cover line and, you know, it was a moment for both her and for us and, you know, by the end of, that was, that came out in February of 2007 and by like the fall of 2007, Keeping Up With The Kardashians is on E. Explodes. So was that her first cover? Yeah. Wow. It was her first professional photo shoot. Yeah. She had never done a professional photo. She's like, oh yeah, sure. I'll try it out. That is insane. Yeah. Like she was still had like her uh, clothing boutique. That she like, was like styling Paris or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know. That is so insane. And you, I mean, that's just is like, that's the intuition though. That's what I'm saying. You got to tell these motherfuckers what you've done, bro. This shit is crazy. <laughs> I didn't even know all this shit. That's wild. It was, I mean, dude, I, you know, but I don't know, but it's, you know, serendipity. It's like, whatever you. But it can't be serendipity a hundred times in a row. Like, no, but you you have this intuit like this intuitive gift where you can see things as they're happening and see what the trend is. And like you said at the very beginning, like I know what I like and I know what the people like, and I'm able to see the Venn diagram, and then I execute. And you did it over and over. I mean, you did it, like you turned complex and built it to this little magazine that like I never heard of to mm-hmm. all of a sudden like this media company that is like popping all over the internet with shows and like, and it all stems from like that that gift like that gut of being like yo what is Thank popping you. i mean it's insane do you still have it do, like can you listen to like ice spice you heard munch and you're like oh yeah. that's a hit definitely i mean i you know i mean when i was at def jam pop smoke came up and you know dudes came in my office and were like yo this is a kid from brooklyn yo he's like a young 50 you know they show they play me um PTSD and welcome to the party. And then they show me, have you ever seen the video of him knocking the dude out? I don't think I have. This is amazing. There's a video early in his career. So I guess when he was like 13, some local dudes had jumped him. And so, or 13 or 15, maybe it was when he's 15, he gets jumped when he's still like a little kid. Yeah. And when he's 18, he is like becoming like a sort of like, you know, local pop and rapper. And somehow he ends up seeing the dudes that jumped him in the corner store. And he's like, gets his boys obviously to like, yo, grab your camera phone. And the dude is like paying at the register and he just fucking one time, like cold cocks him and the dude is laid out. Gets his get back. And yeah, exactly. Just, and like, I'm listening to, PTSD, which has like all of the things that I love about 50, like the melody, the aggression, the sort of introspection. And then I'm watching this video. And I'm like, yo, this dude does not fuck around. Like that's. Yeah, he's hard. Yeah, he's hard. He's, he's the real deal. And then he comes to the office and we sit there and he's talking, you know, to a group of like 
senior executives where I'm probably like me or Steven is probably the youngest youngest person there and we're 40. And I just remember the dude sits back in his chair and puts his feet up on the Paul's table and uh is our like so why should I fuck with y'all? Whoa, makes you sell to him. Yes. And I'm just like, yo, this dude is 19. I fucking love this. This is amazing. Wow. Like this is this is it. That magnetism. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a you can't help but look. It's like No, there's like a specialness, you know, some some I don't know. It's like I'm a magpie or whatever, but like, yeah, sometimes you just see the shiny shit and you're just like, that's the thing. And do you ever feel that need now? Like, obviously, you're not in that direct business as much anymore. But like, you see someone like kind of bubbling on TikTok, or you hear a SoundCloud track someone sends you, and oh, you're like, I mean, I gotta hit this guy up and just like tell him, like, like, do you ever connect people? Yeah. Like, well, so like last season, um, I did an episode with uh, a young man named La Russell, mm-hmm. and I had seen La Russell. It was just one of these things, and again, like, it's just this sort of like, um. I saw him freestyle, I think, on like the LA Leakers and it kind of, you know, it was like a clip that went through my feed and I was like, oh, you know, yeah, this kid could rap really good. And then, um, and then he was up at the Breakfast Club and he did another freestyle that was like really good. And I'm like, okay, that that's interesting. And then like two weeks later, oh, wait, and then I'm on like a group text with my friend Dart and my friend Emil and Emil sends a clip and Emil's a producer. He produced Runaway for Kanye yeah. or with Kanye. Um, and he's like, yo, y'all fucking with this kid? Like, this shit's crazy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him freestyle on, on one of these morning shows. And Dart's like, yeah, like, nah, he's he's the real deal. I, he's been on my radar for a few months too. And then like a week later, I'm watching Dwayne Wade's stories. And Dwayne is like through my wife, a friend of ours and a friend of mine. And... I don't, you know, Dwayne loves music, but he's not like a, like, lean forward, like, that's not his thing, like music discovery or whatever. Sure. And he's, like, rapping along to this freestyle in his car. And again, it was just sort of like, my gut told me I liked this. My two friends who work in music, whose opinions I respect, are both on it. And now my other friend who I know has an ear for just like, you know, Dwayne has great taste in music. And like, even though he's not chasing like the next shit, if it's landed on his radar and he has the confidence knowing that he's got 30 million followers that he's going to like put this on his stories, there's like a mass. There's bubbles. There's, there's something bigger here than just like, oh yeah, like some kid that can rap. Wow. And so I... And then this is the crazy part. I go to DM LaRussell. Oh, no, you know what it is? I comment on Dwayne's post. Like, it wasn't stories. It was on a post. And I comment, like, LaRussell's out of here with, like, rocket ship emojis. And then I get a DM, like, four hours later from LaRussell. It's like, yo, what's up, man? I love Idea Generation. When we when are we going to do an episode? Bro. And what's even crazier is I then look and I see... January of 2018, he's like, hey man, uh, I know you just left Complex to go to Def Jam. I'm a young artist out of Vallejo. Um, here's my, la- my my first album. Check it out when you get a chance. You know, respect your ear. We'd love to, your feedback. 
And so I hit him back like, first of all, mea culpa, I never even saw this DM from four years ago. However, you're fucking murdering it. I love what you're doing. I think you have a great story. I would love to do an episode, like, let's figure it out. And he's like, bet, you tell me, come to the pergola, we'll shoot out in Vallejo, I'm ready. Wow. And you know, his he at the time, he might've had like 70,000 followers. He now has like 750,000 followers. Unreal. You I know? love that. I, I love that, bro, I'm telling you, every guy, I mean, you probably know this, but like every guy that's popping, there is an unread DM and some guys, some executive, some curator in their Instagram that they never saw, but they were like hustling and they were like, yo, I'm going to get it. And mm -hmm. I'm sure people, you're getting unsolicited messages all the time, but like, though, like that's what it takes. And I love hearing stories like that where it's like, yeah, they're going to get on. Like, I love that where it's like, yo, I hit this guy up every single day. And it reminds me of your story. Like, yo, I'm calling these labels trying to intern. I'll call you a hundred times until you Dude, let me in. Like, when I got my internship at Ego Trip, I called them every day from basically like January 15th to February 7th. Yeah. Every day I left a message on their voicemail because it just went straight to voicemail. And eventually um, this woman, Vicky, who was like selling ads for them was like, guys, this dude will not go away. Just take the meeting with him. And their, their thing was that I, I wasn't going through, all their interns went through City Ads School. Yeah. So there was kind of like a, there's a funnel or something. Yeah, and like, you know, you had to be somewhat reliable if you were, this was, you were getting school credit for it or whatever. So there had, you know, there was checks and balances. Yeah, but you're and 16. It, I'm, yeah, and I'm just like, some random kid that's just like, no, I really want to do this. And so finally she says to me, I remember I go on Valentine's Day, 1997. They interview me and they're like, all right, cool. Like, and I'm like, you know, I think I had spring break the next week and I'm like, I, I can start, you know, in like two weeks and they're like okay cool two it's weeks it's you the russell that's what i'm saying you're always you were always gonna make it like i would do that we're like bro i i would go so like when i was in high school i wanted to like intern somewhere like i said i didn't know anyone that did anything in entertainment or like even creative or anything so i was like maybe marketing could be my lane so i learned in orlando they do a bunch of conventions there yeah so that is like the epicenter of like all these conventions like you're a big marketing company so there was the biggest marketing conference in the whole world basically they did it in orlando so I was like, okay, cool, cool. I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna put my name in like this little, you know, submit your resume like portal because like that should get lost forever. I'm mm -hmm. not that exceptional on paper, but if I can get in front of you, I think we can make something work. So I found a guy that posted a picture of himself at the convention through the convention's hashtag, and it's him with the lanyard on his neck, and the lanyard says his name and it mm -hmm. has the little logo and then it has the date and it's just like a regular lanyard. So I go in Photoshop, make my own lanyard with my own name and a fake company at the bottom. And the company is Analysis Technologies. Oh, nice. And for short. Very clever. Anal Tech. So I literally just have Anal Tech on my lanyard. And I pulled up to this marketing conference wearing like this gaudy, like red suit, like some like crazy bullshit. And I'm just like walking around. And like these marketing conferences have crazy budgets. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden they're like, ladies and gentlemen, please report to the banquet hall for whatever, whatever. There's thousands of people. We all go in the banquet hall. All of a sudden Seal is performing. I'm like sitting front row and I'm like watching Seal like this private event. I'm like, this is amazing. He just kissed from a rose. I'm like, fuck yeah. And then he leaves, it's like an open bar. I like steal a little drink. And then I'm hanging out and all of a sudden I'm like talking to some guy and he's like, dude, where'd you get the suit from? And like, we're just like talking about the suit and he's like the CMO of McDonald's. And then I talked to this other guy, he's the CMO of Coke. And like, I'm just like talking with all these guys. And then I tell them the ruse. I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm 17 years old. I have a fake lanyard. This is a, a bunch of bullshit. And they were like, that's awesome. 
So literally that night I left with a stack of cards of people being like, yo, hit me up for an internship. And I hit all of them up the next day. I was like, mm -hmm. hey, the title is just red suit guy. And then there's a whole message being like, I would love to intern. Here's my resume. I'll, I'll fly out like this summer. I'll be there like May 1st, whatever you need. And a bunch of them got back to me and then I ended up doing one of the internships and then it just bounced. And it was like that same thing where it's like, I got to figure out a way because I'm not going to do this portal thing. I'm not going to like stand in the line because yeah. I realized there is no line. It's just a crowd. Yeah. If you can kind of like get your way to the front of the crowd, you can make something happen. Yeah, no, but it, that, so like I'm working on this podcast and like, it's like, yeah, I get up at four four thirty in the morning and I'm just like, I have to, I want to re-record the VOs to make them better. Like mm. I, di I didn't hit them right last night. You're on your Kanye shit. Yeah. And like, I just go in there, like sneak out of bed. My wife doesn't notice. And I'm like set up in our like battle station home office. And I'm like hitting the VOs from like 4.30 until like 6.30, just redoing them. And then like me and my guy, John, who's my producer and, you know, who's editing the, the, the pod um, or doing the production end of the editing of the pod, like us sitting into script, editing the shit until fucking midnight. And it's like, neither one of us wants to tap out because we don't want to be, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm like, in it with someone that wants it as bad as you. Yeah. And it's, it's literally team shit. It's like, you're playing ball. It's like, all right, fourth quarter. Like, who's got more? Like, let's fucking, let's no. go. And it's just like, and you know, and I, I respect every, like the sort of like interest in work-life balance and all that. You know what? I have family and kids and yeah. like. How old were you when you had your first kid? 36. Okay, cool. Um, And you know, yeah, I would say that I, from, 17 to 36 did not have any sort of work-life balance like yeah i just worked and i was like and especially a complex during as we grew the digital business because it was like you know it was it was like the internet is a game is or and like or like the internet is like a team sport and every day is a new game it's like the mlb <laughs> there's 365 games a year not gonna win them all yeah but the team wants to win. Let's try to win today. Yeah, we're gonna try to win today. And I would, you know, check site meter the first thing in the morning to see what was moving on the site. And I would like get into bed with my laptop and look at Google Analytics and like- You like, like the data? Yeah, I I always love that part of- Me too. Just like seeing why, what moves. Bro, it's my favorite shit. I was telling, we had Mr. Beast on the show, on Flagrant. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah, your, kids, your kids probably got you on him. I, he is- like Steve Jobs level, or they're almost like Bezos, where it's like the way he approaches content. But me and him were geeking just on like, my favorite shit to do is like drop an episode. I worked hell long on the thumbnail to try to get like the click-through rate to go crazy. Yep. And then I'm looking at like the intro to make sure the retention is good, to tease people for the end, to kind of keep people engaged and show the best parts of the convo that way they want to stick around. And my favorite thing was at 10 a.m. the episode drops, I go to the gym at like 10, 15. And then I do like pre-workout. So I got like caffeine going. I'm like feeling jazzed and I'm like working out. I'm getting endorphins from working out. And then I'm checking YouTube analytics. And every like 10 minutes I'm checking. And all of a sudden it's like one out of 10. The episode's mm -hmm. killing. And all of a sudden it's our biggest episode. And it's like going crazy. And I'm just like getting this rush from like seeing the data, working out, getting the endorphins. And it's like my favorite thing ever. And then going home and just like checking it throughout the night. Oh, we got a hit when it hit Europe overnight. And while I was sleeping, all of a sudden I got another bump yep. and like changing the title because it wasn't actually that good. And like trying to tune and tweak things a little, it was like an obsession, nonstop. First thing I did when I woke up, it wasn't Facebook, it wasn't Instagram, TikTok, it was Google or YouTube analytics. What is popping? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how we, me and particularly uh, my partner, Joe Lapuma, um, He's were, who you did the Rap Radar interview with, right? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. We were like obsessed 
with the numbers and like and not about running it up but it was like about making the best product and then optimizing it and i always used to say this to like the complex team but i'm like look like any anything you guys make there's like three stages where either it goes right or it goes wrong and it's like either you have your idea you have your execution and you have your marketing and like if it worked all three of those things were aligned and then it'll go mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work you just then it's like doing a post-mortem and trying to figure out like where do we drop the ball yep. was it a bad idea was the execution of the idea bad or to your point about like did we title it wrong was the thumbnail bad yeah. like the autopsy is almost more interesting what yeah was the you know was the tweet bad like what do we do that it didn't connect yeah and it's a balance of like you, is i've found myself in the situation where like the numbers will kind of obfuscate the goal of like what the product is and so i think it's really important for people to look at the numbers but balance that with the creative vision and yo we might get more numbers if we do this title but like is this title really genuine to what we're doing is this thumbnail a little too egregious like can you still make it true and still hit the metrics that you're trying to personally hit like how did you balance trying to top out numbers and beat yourself every time but also like yo let's stay true to the vision i mean you know for me it was always just sort of that yin yang of like gut you know like i said in so many ways complex was an expression of my personality and so i'm just making the things that i want to see in the world Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm ranking the lists based on my taste, maybe a little bit of like, you know, trolling, tuning, like knowing, okay, maybe we, we take this person that was at 30, 47 and we put them at 50 because we know that's gonna like- Kind of get a combo going. Yeah, make things a little spicy or whatever, or move, move this person up or whatever. But you know, for the most part, it's like, this is like my genuine thing that I, I want to exist in the world, you know? Um, like, and most of the things that we did that really, really worked, were true to that. Um, And we're like, all right, like, you know, our sort of corner of the universe is driving popular culture. And like, that was, you know, that's the thing, like, and why I try not to take that much credit for sort of the overall success of Complex, because it was like a confluence of things, right? Like, Mark had a vision that was sort of about this convergence culture where like people of from different parts of the world you know physically and also mentally converging around certain interest points and finding that commonality um and then that sort of like you know being perfectly aligned with what guys like particularly kanye were about to do where they're going to like take daft punk and recontextualize it into hip-hop and then take it onto the pop charts um and you know and and also kanye's whole aesthetic was like a little bit from japan and a little you know yeah a little bit from the hood and like all all these different influences you know he's listening to like uh you know indie rock out of brooklyn in 2008 and you know what i mean and like pulling all the you know a will ferrell sample like, yes what are we talking about <laughs> and insane. and so like there's sort of this you know we happen to be the right idea at this moment with all of these things sort of lining up with us. And then, you know, Rich, who is the publisher, um, you know, was incredible at 
packaging and selling the thing and also had just like a vision for the landscape and like he could see when it was time for us to pivot to digital and when it was time for us to pivot to video and he and I had the relationship where he had the trust in me to know like if I tell Noah what the goal is I he can I can let him figure out how to get this brand there in an authentic and organic way and I trusted that he knew where what the goal was yeah um and then you know and then we had Moksha who was the head of sales who was a just fucking unrelenting beast that just pounded the pavement you know um a thousand hours a week yeah um and like the confluence of all of those things together really led to the success mm. um and yeah you know and when we got to to the the internet age it was sort of like I just loved it because it was like, now I have data that I can that can help inform. I'm not just taking shots in the dark. Yeah, dealing with these covers and you're just like, are they gonna buy it because a cool person's on it or not? It just seems like so, like, I don't know. I know it was the time and you didn't yeah. have another choice, but it just seems so frustrating. Like, no, I mean, it, it was super tough. And also like at that point, you know, to, to what you said earlier, like we were in fourth place. So like I wasn't getting premier bookings. I'm like making lemonade out of Little Wayne or Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian. Yeah. And like, I'm catching these incredible lucky bounces. Um, you know, then I did Seth Rogen and, and RZA for, I saw Knocked Up at a preview screening and I was like, this this movie is going to fucking go. Yeah. And Rich was like, wait, the dude from fucking 40 Year Old Virgin that had like six lines, you're going to put him on the yeah, cover? Freaks and geeks. And yeah. I'm like, yo, Rich, yo, me and Justin were in the theater fucking laughing till we were crying. He was like, all right, man, I trust you. Like, you know, you that's the gut. Yeah, you did it twice. Go for it. I'm like, I'm gonna get him with RZA so it'll like still make sense to, because he had just done an interview with some like art house magazine where he was like wax poetic about how he loved RZA. But, but again, to your point, like all of these were, you know, not, you never know how they're gonna land. Yeah. And once we get to the sort of like complex.com internet, it's like, oh no, like, first of all, I can experience the rush in real time of watching something connect authentically with an audience and see people arguing about it on, you know, the internet, uh, on Twitter. You can see them hating us, loving us, calling us idiots, whatever it is, but they're engaging with the content, um, you know, and then, and that was also where we like started leaning into the list thing. And this was yeah. sort of, again, came from, this is where I say like, it's all sort of builds, right? Like, you know, I work at Ego Trip. Ego Trip writes the big book of rap lists. Right at the same time, you know, the next year after that, and I was kind of like just there at the very nascent stages of that. I wasn't really there when they put the thing together, but like, you know, I loved it. And lists were, you know, something that were sort of part of the magazine while I was working there. The next year after that, I go work at MTV. Once Direct Effect falls apart, they send me up to news. And now I'm writing countdown shows, hip hop's mm. blingiest videos, like, and I'm like talking to these people and I'm, it's like, oh, talking to like the executives and they're like, yeah, um, look, if we do a half hour block of just music videos, it will do a point four every single time. If we recontextualize that half hour block into a countdown of 10, a top 10 list, it'll do a point seven every time. Yeah. And like, all you have to do is write interstitials that like tech money or whoever will like read 
and like helps pick out the right videos and organize them. And then boom. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. And I'm like, yes, I get it. People love lists because there isn't a more gratifying experience than having your taste confirmed or disputed. Yeah. Because either you walk away being like, I should be able to work there because I fucking know that too. Or you're like, these people are fucking idiots. They're professionals and they're getting paid and I know better than them. Yeah, literally. I mean, this is TRL's whole thing, right? Like, yes. It was like, yeah, the top 10 tracks, what's, what's popping? And then you're able to dispute it and then you get the personal validation and you have to see what happens at the end. You can't, you can't log off. No. You got to see what is number one. What, what is it going to be? It's a, very, it's a very compelling proposition, you know, in terms of content. And, yeah. and also like, there's just, you know, as, as the internet grows, there is more and more and more culture happening and more and more music being released and more movies being released on more different streaming platforms or whatever. And like, we'd have to organize this. Yep. Normal people don't have time to listen to like 17 albums that come out on a Thursday night. Mm. So, so like- The more that's out there, the more there needs to be curation. Yes. So let's let's curate this. And then, you know, and, and that the list like became complex as bread and butter for years. Yeah. And then what is that like that transition phase for you? Like that departure, going to Def Jam, like settling into family life, maybe a little bit more. Like what is that phase like? Um, well, I mean, so, okay, we, we sold the company in 2016, mm -hmm. um, to Verizon and Hearst and, you know, it was a tremendous life-changing opportunity for all the partners in the business. Um, but it also was very challenging because we're sort of like part of this joint venture with two companies that have very misaligned objectives. Uh, Verizon is this like behemoth publicly traded company that if you're not putting a billion dollars up annually, you don't, you're not even worthy of getting mentioned on the call. And so you, you really are a rounding error. And you know, you see with like, they spent whatever, 1.6 million, $1 billion on like Go90 and folded it in 18 months and just like kept it moving, just like. Insane. So from them, the challenges grow. Like we need you to scale this business. It, it's cute that you're doing $100 million in revenue or whatever we're doing. But you're like, bro, we've been growing as fast as we can. <laughs> like, but they're like, yeah, they want you to grow. And then Hearst is privately owned by the Hearst family. And so they want dividends for the ownership. Yep. So they're like coming around at the end of the month, like with their hand out, like, what's up? Where's the profits? So it becomes very challenging to navigate that because you're like, well, dad is telling me that I got to scale the business and mom is telling me I got to be more profitable, but I can't scale the business without reinvesting the profits in the yep. product. Which so, is it? So yeah, so what are we doing? And, you know, in that, you know, the, sort of the confluence of that plus, you know, whatever, I walked out my earnout and I just got to a point where it was like, you know, I don't know. And I also like being totally candid, like I'd watched two or three generations of editor in chiefs at magazines across the spectrum of genre getting dragged out, you know, with their fingernails in the carpet. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah, like, do I want to be the old guy, like... I yanked. I want to. I want to leave on my own terms. Yeah. Like, and and ideally, I want to leave at the top of my game. You know, like, 
don't know if I would like frame my exit as like game six Jordan, but like that was always like, okay, this is, if I have my preferred and that would be what I would like. Yeah. And, you know, we had a tremendously successful 2017. We like birthed everyday struggle with Joe Budden and DJ Academics. Of course, love Academics. He's great. Uh, I mean, both of them are incredible talents. Um, you know, sneaker shopping was cooking. Hot Ones had just crossed over and become like... Oh, yeah, that was a first we feast. Yeah. Which owned by Complex. Part of our... Yeah. Which is an insane show. I mean, Sean and Chris are incredible. Yeah. And like, yeah, I mean, that, you know, was an idea that like, I remember Chris grabbed me in the hallway and be like, yo, I want to do a show where we make uh, celebrities eat hot wings. And maybe like, I love the idea. I don't know how you're going to be able to book it, but you definitely have my blessing if you can get it done. And it kind of goes into like the countdown list format, sort of. Yes. Like, yeah, we're going to build. No, There's it, like a it has continuation. A, a narrative element. And, yeah. and it was those, a perfect format. It's such a good show. It was perfect. And then on a random, whatever, like Thursday, Tony Ayo stops by the office and my music team, for whatever reason, was not interested in interviewing him. I don't know. You know, it was sort of late era G unit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the booking people are like, we got Yayo here. Like, does anyone want to do anything? And like, Sean and Chris are like, yo, will he eat hot wings? And as I, I recall, I feel like he actually may have insisted that Sean eat the wings with him. Oh, because originally he wasn't? I, I, this, I need to ask those guys, I, you know, memory is fuzzy about 2015 or whatever, but I feel like originally he was just going to ask questions while the celebrities ate the wings. And then Yeo was like, I'm not doing it by myself. Oh, that's fire. And then that... It, make, it makes it so much better that he also does it. Oh, it's I mean, perfect. embodies that shit. Yeah. Like, I love the episode where they're like, nah, let me taste what you're tasting. And they're like, whoop, that's it. Like, I honestly have no idea how Sean does it every week. It's fucking crazy. Like, I thought he was picked because he knew how to do it. Or like, he, no, he has an insane palate or something. No, the, the sort of lead up to it was, okay, so Sean had started as a um, sports aggregator for us, writing a little like 200 word reviews uh, or, you know, news pieces about sports. And I feel like we needed like a correspondent for some branded content thing that was gonna be sort of like local to him in the Midwest. He lived in Chicago at the time. And uh, one of the guys that works, worked for me, Jack, was like, oh, Sean Evans, you know, I think he would be good on camera, like, you know, whatever. I'm like, all right, some branded content thing, sure. So he goes and does that. You know, we all end up watching it. And it's like, oh, cool, yeah, he, he was a good host. And so right around that same time, we decided to launch uh, Complex News. And so I had met Jinx um, through, he was like a um, editorial assistant at Mass Appeal or something like that. And we had met a couple times in passing. And I, I love Jinx's energy. And I was like, okay, I feel like Jinx could actually, he could be the like sort of the Kurt Loader of this. And then my friend James that worked um, from Throwing Fits. Um, oh, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. the style editor oh, at the cool. time. He was like, yo, there's this Canadian woman I know who has like this Tumblr. I'm like, cool, like tell her to send a video. She sends like a little quick time video. It's Emily Oberg. Wow. Um, and then there was a gentleman named Hanuman who was our video game editor who now it does the, he's been like the face of alternative rock on uh, Apple Music for like, oh, wow. I don't know, eight years now. Bro, so that. many people came out of Complex. That's crazy. I didn't realize how big it was. And then, and then I was like, all right, so we have our alt rock dude We've got our Kurt Loader. We have our style correspondent in in Emily. We need someone that can handle sports. 
And Jack was like, yo, I think Sean would be great for this. And so we fly Sean in. Sean initially doesn't want the job. Um, I think whatever he was doing in Chicago, he was like, I'm good. Jack ends up taking him out for a drink at, like on his way to LaGuardia and is like, I'm just telling you, like, really, really think about this. You know, I just think this is like perfect fit, whatever. Sean thinks about it, comes back and is like, all right, you know what? I'll, I'll move to New York. Like, I'll do this. And so for, you know, maybe, yeah, it was probably about 18 months. They're just doing the stand-ups, um, you know, to camera, getting better and better each time. Um, and then one day I'm coming to work and I see on Twitter um, The Rock, someone has posted The Rock's diet. And it's like, he has to eat like five pounds of cod in a day yeah, or something. Yeah, I've seen that. And so I get into that, the editorial meeting and I'm like, Sean, bear with me, but here's what I want you to do. I want you tomorrow to do the rock diet. Like get up at four in the morning, eat cod. He's like, bro, I hate cod, I hate cod. I'm like, I really think this could be funny. He's like, no, 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 I'm with it. Like, I get it, I see, I see, I see your vision. So we shoot that and it's like, becomes like, a, I don't know, three or four minute piece, goes viral, The Rock retweets it. Um, and I don't know, if, like all of us kind of like saw like a new side of Sean beyond just- The hosting. Yeah, the hosting, whatever. the standups. Yeah. Now he's a personality. Yeah, we're like, yo, he's really, he was really funny and he really carried this. And then him and Chris and, you know, so first we feast like operate, you know, like, Chris's brother, Nick, worked for me at Complex. When we wanted to start a food site, he's like, my brother would be the perfect person. Um, I meet Chris, I loved him. We bring him on, he starts first few feasts, but it's all working out of the same office. There's no like yeah. walls between any of this stuff. And I guess him and uh, Sean become friendly. And so Nick and Chris have been talking about this like hot wings idea for like, I don't know, at least a year. And somehow, Sean gets involved and then there's this moment of just like things coming together. Yeah, we're gonna do it. And you know, don't worry, it's not gonna cost anything because we're just gonna have a black background and like just like minimal props. And I'm like, cool, like, you know, if, if I don't have to like go in and argue for budget, like yeah. let, if you think it's gonna be cool, like give it a shot. Let's do it. And they do it and it's funny. And we're all like, oh, this is pretty good. And they do probably like six more and but it's still getting like 10,000, 20,000 views, like nothing crazy, but we're all like watching it and everyone, in, you know, we're like, yeah, this is, this is good. Like, and then they do, they link with the PR woman from Comedy Central and Key and Peele are promoting that cat movie. Oh yeah, what was it, Keanu? Yeah, Keanu. And he gets Key, Key and Peele there and like, Jordan Peele has like the fucking meltdown in the middle of the episode where he's like starts sweating and he like zones out and they become, and like I just remember it was like they launched on like a Thursday and like by like Friday when I leave work, it had like 80,000 views or 100,000 views and like something that I was like, whoa, that's yeah, pretty that's crazy. Moving the needle. And then I'm like watching Meter and, and Google Analytics over the weekend and, and, or whatever, the YouTube analytics. And all of a sudden it's like at like a million by Monday morning, somehow it got on Reddit and like over that weekend, it just went crazy. Went crazy. And then the combination of like 
this Reddit audience discovering it and then going back and watching the previous, like, because, and, and all the talent before that, you know, it was like a baseball player who, whose name I can't remember, Machine Gun Kelly, um, maybe like Ja Rule. Like, it, it was really just like who they could convince to eat, to hot, eat wings. hot wings. And that combined with then all of a sudden, like, um, this Comedy Central PR person and then a couple other comedy PR people being like, oh, this is the perfect vehicle for funny people to like do an interview, but to like really G off. Yeah. And all of a sudden the book, the friction starts coming out of the booking. They start getting more and bigger names. Yeah, Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, that's the best yeah. one. Oh, I mean, yeah. And then, and then, and then once we get a few comedians like the Bobby Lees of the world, yeah, and again, yeah. now, and now they're Pressure starting. came on. Yes. Yeah. And also, and I would give credit to, um, Sean and and Chris because the two of them fucking understood YouTube and so like any week where they didn't have like a, a like really solid celebrity booking they would go find a like a level YouTube person um, often who I'd be like yo who you, what yeah a Minecraft kid and, like, and he they they just be like yo trust me they've got like two million followers on YouTube and then of course that person shares it on their community feed and. And now all of a sudden the show, every episode is getting 300,000, 500,000. And then, and a few of them are going to the millions. Wow. Um, and it was like, and then all of a sudden it becomes, you know. Synonymous with culture. And then they get, yeah, Shaq and Kevin Hart. And Kevin Hart does like 4 million in a week. Yeah. And it's like, holy Out shit. Like, and that was kind of, yeah, the levy broke. Wow. I mean, it's just so insane to see it all happening. Like, and to be, I mean, you've just been at the front of so many moments like that. I mean, even that show I, is just like a great format, but like. I mean, look, I have to give all credit to those dudes. Like, Yeah, of course. But even just being there, like you get to see the process. Like you've seen the sausage get made time and time again. Like, I mean, it's just like, you know, you find super smart, talented people and you put them in a position to win and like. They're going to figure it out. Yeah. And back to fuck up and let them do what they're doing and like get out of the way. Yeah. I mean, um, that's unbelievable so you're at complex and all of a sudden it gets acquired and now there's conflicting corporate needs yeah and, and it like, just oh, let me let me bow out it just was like yeah the it was like this is not that fun anymore and yeah. like you know and also and it just was like i really did feel like in a lot of ways like we are at this apex like hot one is crushing hot ones is crushing it joe lapuma is sneaker shopping is crushing it he's doing multi-millions every week with that show, you know, everyday struggle is, you know, at that point to me, had it was on the trajectory that it was going to sort of supplant UMTV raps as probably like the most important hip hop show, mm -hmm. you know, full stop um, in history. And, you know, and it just felt like This is all this is all so fucking great and I love doing it still but I don't know if it's going to like if I can continue to like one up from here and you know and it's also just yeah like the corporate pressures and all that stuff were just like not that fun and then one of my good friends Paul Rosenberg becomes the chairman of Def Jam and is like yo let's go do Def Jam together. And it's him and Stephen Victor, who, you know, I've been friends with since yeah. 2005 or 2004. Okay. And it was like, 
great. This is like a new opportunity, something to wrap my head around. Um, you know, it's an, like an opportunity for growth and change. And it's a way to sort of like exit while this thing feels like it's like really at its pinnacle of, you know, this like 12 or 13 year journey that I've been on with. Yeah. It. And that you've grown with like, I mean, there's just so many wins along the way. What, like, do you have any standout like fuck ups or like formats that you're like, oh, this is going to go or like those times where your intuition was wrong? Um, I mean, there's like a million of them uh, that we got wrong. I mean, you know, a lot of it, I think it was like a process of iteration and like, like, for example, like we did a show called No Debate um, in 2014 um, and it was like, again, like, all right, I, I have this idea that we need to figure out how to sort of like do what ESPN does, but for hip hop. Mm. And like, but I didn't really understand casting and like, so like, it just was like too many people that got on camera and they all agreed with each other. And yeah, so you, like- You need a Stephen A and a Skip A. Yeah. Like, you need that first take energy to make a, a dynamic show. And that was the thing was like, yeah. And, and like, you know, you knew with Budden and academics, like Budden has extremely strong opinions and they're like well thought out and he states them with absolute authority and will never back down. And then, but also he's like an older dude. So his perspective is coming from, you know, at that point, probably someone in his late thirties. And meanwhile, academics, is like 22 crushing it on YouTube and like, you know, super arrogant and like, you know, very like full of, you know, piss and vinegar with a lot of opinions coming at it from a young person perspective and also not going to back down. Yeah. And it's like, this is the right chemistry. Like so was that not doing what the what ESPN was doing? Like Well, so no debate was the first version, which was just like uh, a bunch of guys in the office. And it just like we did like three of them. I don't even know if we posted them online, but they just like And was like, yeah, Drake's pretty good. Yeah, it was just <laughs> sort of like you know, like people would have dissenting opinions, but then they would like argue each other and they'd be like, you know, people would like be won over by the argument and like it ended up much more like the McLaughlin group than it was like first take. Yeah. You know, yeah. or yeah, you they know, didn't have the fire. The like you need the fire. Yes. Yeah. And you know, same thing. We, we had a, a great sneaker show. Um, it like we had, you know, two of our, our things, which I like were qualitatively great, but like arguably ahead of their time. Um, in like 2012, we did the combat Jack show as sort of like a late night, um, talk show mm -hmm. um, and you know I, it's the kind of thing that like probably in 2016 would have absolutely crushed and like when you look at like the stuff that like Math Hoffa is doing and like all, you know it's like it was the right idea our production value was too high hmm. you know because it was like a four camera setup and we had a studio out in Williamsburg that we rented for like a month to tape all the episodes Um and you know this and the sales machine wasn't like we weren't at a place where we were ready to like sell sponsorship around something that's going to cost i don't know whatever it was but like twenty five thousand dollars an episode or something yeah. um and that did one season and like 
they you know jack was great you know premium pete like it was yeah, a, of course it, it was P- the right Pete's product it was just like two and a half years too early in a variety of ways same thing we did a sneaker show called quick strike with um russ bankston and and uh clark kent and like two of the most credible authorities on sneakers ever but again they didn't they don't have a contentious energy they're like two guys who are pretty aligned in their sentiment and they've also been navigating the sneaker world for years and so they like have relationships and like again they have enormous uh historical insights and perspective to offer but it wasn't there was no like you need the fire bro yeah yeah and but it was like but that was the process like we do these things they didn't work you know i get reamed out for spending too much money (laughs) yeah and but then we you know we got to this place where it was like okay sean sean and chris got this to stick hot ones is is going yeah you know everyday struggle boom like sneaker shopping is fucking just and decimating yeah and that that was one you know props to joe like that was probably the first one that actually that really stuck for us Mm -hmm. um but that like that goes back to the wd-40 thing we were saying like you you were just on wd-30 yeah but that is such a great way to even look at it like i was talking to a dude that's like it's only failure if you quit you can't fail if you don't quit if you keep iterating and trying to build yep. or trying to tweak the idea and, you know, maybe recast or change up the format or have everyone eat hot wings, like then that's where you get the thing that works. But it's impossible to fail no, unless you quit. I, I would say, and then the, the, the sort of counterpoint to that is also that like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like sneaker shopping was born because we did a Jim Jones cover. And at the time I was getting tremendous pressure from the sales side that we need to have video products. So I like part of the deal with Jim was like, okay, cool. We're going to do this cover. We'll do the interview and a story, but I also need a video product. And Joe was like, yo, why don't I go to Flight Club with him and buy some sneakers? And I was like, okay, cool. That sounds like, you know, I'm sure it'll be interesting. Like Jim Jones probably has some like interesting sneaker stories to tell or whatever. Exactly. And we do it and it's like such a simple format, but it's just like consistent and reliable and it provides the audience with this like you know very uh sort of like like an experience that they they know what they're gonna get and it feels good every time yeah and that it's a light lift for talent so the bookings are you know relatively on the easier side because it's like hey we're gonna shoot this in about 30 minutes come to the sneaker store Joe's super pro. He's going to ask you questions. You know, you watch a few episodes, you get the gist yeah. of He's And they're like, bro, I'm going to do that anyway. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm in the city. Like, I was going to go pick up Air Force Ones or whatever. Like, And and Joe also, to his credit, like Sean and Chris, I think has like this sort of genius sense for understanding the booking of the show. And he is like, you know, maniacal about it. But like, he knows how to like, okay, do Young Hot Rapper X then do the big show, then do Billie Eilish, then do Young Hat Rapper X, then do, you know, Sports Legend. And and he just has a feel for his audience and what they're going to respond to um, and knows how to keep the cadence so that it keeps working. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, and again, it's, and that's one where it's like, don't overthink it. Like, let it cook. Yeah, Joe does deep research about the person 
talks to them about important sneakers from their childhood. This always brings up great anecdotes that wouldn't come up in a Conan interview. Yeah, or, I'm like know, some Nardwar shit. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then they you get to see their taste because they get to pick a bunch of sneakers. And then you know, and then also the guests eventually started like, sort of like trying to like blow bigger and bigger bags yeah, to like make a thing out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, how much did this person spend? Double it. Yeah, and then they do, you know, and then some of them are like, do philanthropic. Oh, okay, I'm gonna buy like $20,000 worth of sneakers, but then I'm gonna give them away to the kids. And That's like, cool. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's a great format. And now that you're independent, you've taken all the lessons from the complex days, even probably from like Def Jam, no. and, and applied it to your own thing. Well, that's, and that was the thing. So I go to Def Jam and, you know, creatively it wasn't like, what I was looking to do. But what was amazing was I, I did oversee this brand partnership thing. So for the first time in my life, I'm overseeing like selling and I'm like going into meetings with clients and pitching them ideas and then overseeing the papering of the deals, negotiating with the clients, del you know, delivering this, the deliverables, like making sure we hit the KPIs, whatever it is that they wanted. And I was like, oh, this like totally demystified this whole part of the business that, you know, not to say that like the complex sales team had like hidden from me or anything, but You're I just- You're just not in it. Yeah. yeah. And I just was like, oh, like, yeah, this isn't like what I live for, but like, I feel like if I go into a room with a really strong idea, I can like sell it with some conviction and get somebody to, you know, believe in my dream. Yeah. And- so when I left Def Jam, it was like, you know, I had hosted the blueprint at the end of my time at Complex, which was sort of like me interviewing sort of, I don't know, titans of creative industry. And that just had like a weird resonance. Like it touched a nerve with people where for two years I'm at Def Jam and like, whether I'm like the valet in Nobu in Malibu or like the dude at Starbucks in the city across from UMG, they're like, oh, yo, to like, oh, a random dude. I'm driving to State College, uh, Pennsylvania to see my little sister graduate from grad school. And I pull over at a random strip mall so my wife can go to the bathroom and I'm standing by the car just stretching my legs. Some dude in cargo shorts is like, hey, yo, your Bobby Hundreds interview, I watch that like every week because that just like puts a battery in my back. And like I kept having these moments where I'm like, I've been a journalist for 20 years and like outside of maybe the Kanye Twisted Fantasy story that people, you know, send link, the link around every year on the anniversary, I never done anything that like had this kind of like resonance with people. And I was sort of like, what if instead of just titans of creative industry, we made this about entrepreneurship and about creative entrepreneurs because, you know, there's this sort of like whole spectrum of, you know, entrepreneurial content that exists from like the financial literacy stuff on this side to kind of like, you know, stuff like Gary Vee does on the side with like NFTs and whatever. And I feel like somewhere in there, there's a bunch of people that want to make things, creative products, and they want to be compensated and run their own business while they do it. And I feel like I could make a product that could speak to that. And like, what if it wasn't just a show? What if it was more of like a 360 thing and we created a slate of programming and it all sort of like hinged off of this idea of taking ideas out of your head and putting them into real life and commercializing them. And 
my right hand at Def Jam, Helena, like, was like, yo, I love that idea. If that's what you're gonna do after you leave, like, let me know. And we put together a deck, went to my wife's very good friend, uh, Trisha Clark Stone, who is like a fucking marketing genius. Um, she used to have a um, marketing company called Narrative that she sold to Will Packer. Um, so I hit her and I'm like, hey, I have this deck. Do you mind like taking a look at it? Me and Helena meet up with her at a hotel room. I mean, at a hotel bar and like she like goes through the whole deck and is like, okay, like I would tweak this and tweak that. And if I were a buyer, this is what I'd be interested. And I'm like, fuck, Trisha, like it's mad smart. She knows a lot of shit that I don't know about like dealing with brands and, you know, and basically propositioned the two of them like, hey, I want to start this business. I would like you guys to be my partners in it. They were both interested and we started. And of course, this is all happening in January of 2020. Yeah. So we shoot a pilot with Futura um, in middle of February, having conversations with brands, I'm having conversations with strategic partners. Um, everything is like, go, 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 go. It's great. Um, and I'm like, yeah, we're really fucking good. This is, we're gonna make this, this work. And then Friday 13th, 2020 happens. And I end up, you know, like everybody else, going into quarantine yeah. and um, sitting on the bench for the next six months Damn. Um, with the family out in Long Island. And um, just kind of like, you know, and talking to them and being like, all right, look, you know, we can control what we can control, which is the product that we're making. So let's just take advantage of this time. Let's, you know, Helena, you and I, let's just like work on this pilot and make it as great as possible. Let's work, you know, with the art guys that we're, you know, working with Maxime and his team, get the marks and everything to be super dialed exactly how we want it. Um, Trisha, you and I, let's build on like, you know, growth strategies, like once the world starts spinning again and we start mapping this out and this goes on and, you know, Basically, January 2021, we hit the ground running and we're just like full throttle pushing forward. And of course, the rest of the world is not ready to be back. Yeah. I'm really ready though. Yeah, yeah let's go. I, I've been working since I'm 17. I really enjoyed having, you know, 10 months to be like a super present dad yeah, yeah. for the first time in my life. This is great. I'm, you know, but I'm also like excited to get into this and we get to like March and you know we've taken a lot of meetings there's been some like lukewarm interest nothing's really moving and I have a conversation with a co-worker um, an ex-co-worker from Complex and so he mentions to me um, he's like well you know remember with, when we were at, at Complex like the video shit really didn't start rocking until we stopped being like go no go based on advertising like once you guys just got dedicated monies to make shit that's when stuff really started sticking and i was like that's a really good point scott um let's that yes that makes a lot of sense so that night like 8 9 p.m i call helena and i'm like look let's just go to la in april 
it feels like this pandemic shit is starting to abate a little bit. I, I see people are doing productions. This is like 21? Stuff. This is 21, yeah. Um, let's shoot five more episodes. I, I can line up out of my network five episodes in one week and I'll just fund it out of my pocket and like I would rather spend the money and like leave it all on the floor and know that we fucking tried to do this um, than you know have this like pilot that we're like showing to people and yeah fuck that no and she's like okay cool like tomorrow morning I'll like start looking you know get finding a production company looking at arrangements whatever, whatever just like let me know as you book the talent and the next day, my friend Nathan Brown calls me, who had been the GM of Complex Video years earlier. And he and I had sort of commiserated during the pandemic because um, he was sort of between gigs. Um, and I had sent him the pilot. And he was like, yo, this is really dope, man. I like this. So he subsequently gets a job uh, as the head of Ellen Digital. Um, mm. You know, Ellen's like the heads up and all this shit. Yeah, of course. And... He calls me out of the blue and is like, yo, um, I just met with Harley from Shopify. And like, you know, we were talking Ellen stuff and then, but like, he's really trying to position them as like the company of entrepreneurship, full stop. Um, would you be comfortable if I shared with him that pilot that you sent me? Cause like, I just think it'd be up his alley. And I'm like, please, Nathan, like, send it yeah. five minutes ago <laughs> yeah. and he's like great because i actually sent it to him already <laughs> and we have a meeting on monday wow what a legend um and we end up meeting with shopify and they were like incredibly supportive and saw the vision and were like like all of the things that had been gating they were like that's awesome like oh you you have a youtube channel with zero subs fucking awesome perfect build it from scratch with us and like, show what we can do we want to see you know, we want to champion real entrepreneurs, like, and we want it to be done by real entrepreneurs. Like, we would rather do this spend with you than with some big media company because you're doing it the scrappy way. And, you know, those guys, like, were like, we want, I mean, I've never had in 25 years of media had a client hit me and be like, you can be more light touch on, like, the attribution. Like, don't worry about us. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, yo, that makes me want to like give you more props. Because like <laughs> you were in the Shopify shirt and the hat every episode. <laughs> yo, I was just like, dude, this is you guys are fucking great. Yeah. And yeah, and then so they sponsored the first season and that got the ball rolling. They sponsored the second season and you know, did some podcast deals um that are yet to be announced but coming out in June. Yeah. Um and have some live events that we're gonna do this year. Oh, bro! And season three, we're halfway through. That's so cool. How good does it feel just to be like it's independent? I'm in charge of all of it, and I can delegate as I need, but I can also pull back control. Like I'm dealing with companies that fuck with me, and I can work with that are free. Like I, I feel lucky that I was sort of like mentored and ushered into a into a realm of content that is like very free, and it's so seductive. It's no, I mean, it, uh, it's unbelievably gratifying. Because, yeah, I mean, it's like every, you know, I, to be fair, as an entrepreneur, it's like a fucking roller coaster. And like, you got kids and shit too. It's I can feel game. invincible at 9 a.m. and like the sky is falling at 3 p.m. and then invincible again at 5, depending on like the cadence of emails that I receive. Of course. Um, but 
yeah, it's, but it's, but also it's like, it's all on my own terms. And, you know, I have selected the partners that I want to work with, that I believe in, that I think augment my skill set in different ways. There's no fucking weird toxic people. There's no managing. Because you're in control of it. It's what you want it to be. It's not like, there's no sleight of hand, you know, where like, you know, me and Rich are like trying to figure out like, well, we have to deal with the board and what they want. So like, we have to like, freedom yeah it's you know it's like let's just make the best product and sell it as aggressively as possible and hope that you know people believe in quality and like you know and i i still am like a psycho in the ways that you are in terms of like looking at all the analytics and trying to figure out the data and trying to book according to like you know what my gut says and what i like like and the stories I want to tell, but also what I think is going to rate and what's going to resonate with the audience. Um, But yeah, it's all, it's all authentic and it's all like, you know, there's, there's no sort of like wasted, you work in a corporation, there's so much time spent politicking and meetings that should be emails and emails that shouldn't happen and like bullshit. It's just insane. And, and also frankly, as a creative person, it's fucking really nice to be in a place where it's like I'm dri- like I'm driving stick again. Like you know yeah. what I mean? Like I drive a fixed gear. Like I ride a fixed gear bike. Like yeah. I I like being incredibly close to the product. Like you know, as gratifying as sort of having some slight hand in helping to empower you know Chris and Sean to make hot ones. Like that's their show. Yeah, and I would ne- I can never. Yeah. You know, or watching, you know, watch the throne get made. Like that's their thing, that's, and you're a part of it, but it's their thing. I have, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be a fly on the wall in that moment. Um, you know, and, and even complex. Like, I'm very proud of what I contributed and what I drove. But you know, that was the confluence of you know Mark's vision, you know Rich's intuition and and hard work on this the business side, and Moxer just being like a ruthless salesman that just crushes it, and. You know, and then me having a sense of how to do culture and like, yeah, we all made it work. Sometimes it was tons of fun. Sometimes it was contentious, but you know, that's sort of the nature of of the beast. But to be in a place where I'm like really touching the product in, you know, like I said, like sitting with my man, John, for 12 hours editing a podcast into script re-listening to a 10 second clip should we should we move those those two sentences a little close i feel like they need to be a little like uh, uh, no no now they're stepping on each other okay yeah put them back how they were that's fucking like that's the dream and then to be able to do it and get paid yeah, you know there's nothing better and in my opinion at least i don't know i haven't been at the heights you've been at but like i feel like it's worth less money yes the, the simplicity and the freedom is worth less like i look at it where i'm like I mean, this show, for what it's worth, at this point, has not made any money. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I do it for this. Like, this is the this is the money to me. Like, being able to connect and like democratize combos and help people and shed light on stories and like be entertaining. Like, that is the that's what it's worth. I mean, I feel the same way with idea generation. Like, you know, and that's honestly like what drove me to want to do Blueprint, and what drove me to want to do idea generation was like, you know, in my youth, I was really interested in like getting artists to talk about how they made their art. And that was like fascinating to me. And then, you know, 
thankfully, you know, guys like Rich like mentored me both like, you know, on sort of the management side of running an operation, but also showing me the business, sitting with me with the PL and being like, okay, like here, it's zero sum. Let's make these decisions together. I'm not gonna do this and you know, yeah. and and me being like, okay, well if I take ten thousand dollars out of this thing, okay, you know what I mean? If I put ten thousand dollars here, it's gotta come out of somewhere else and like, all right, and I and I'm seeing he you know, he he's not making arbitrary decisions. He's he's trying to calculate the best trade off that yeah. will put us in the position to win. And like yeah, to, to sort of like so then for me as I got older, my fascination became like, how do these really successful creatives manage that? Because I know that some of them are like all up in the PNL. You know, Scooter Braun certainly has you know a head for numbers, and but he also has a vision. He also has a, like charisma and ability to network and an ambition, and like. I want to pull that apart. That's yeah. interesting to me. You know, you know, one of the interviews I did for Blueprint was with Todd McFarlane, the comic artist. Yeah. And like, Todd has gone to be like a fucking multimillionaire. And like, he famously bought the Barry Bonds ball for $3 million. And many people derided him as a fucking lunatic for doing this. And so I'm interviewing him and, and he's like, I'm like, you spent $3 million for a piece of baseball memorabilia? Like, are you really that into baseball? He's like, well, first of all, yes, I am that into baseball. But second of all, you have to understand, in 1996, I started a toy company, McFarland Toys. I go to every major league company and I try to pitch them to, to let me get a license to make figures for their leagues. I can't even get meetings. Nobody will fuck with me at all. I'm making the best superhero toys on the market by a mile. They're selling like crazy. It, the business is exploding, but I cannot get to the most lucrative part of the toy figure industry. He's like, you know what happens when you spend $3 million on a baseball? You get a meeting with the fucking commissioner of the MLB. <laughs> wow. And he's like, and that happened three weeks after I bought that ball. I had a meeting with the commissioner and I went in and I showed him toys that I made for Spawn, toys that I made for whatever like horror franchises I had bought. And I left there with a contract to do all the MLB toys. Once I did that, I got NBA and I got uh, NHL wow. six months apart. And he's like, so yeah, I spent $3 million on a ball and then I made $9 million in toy sales in the next 18 months. So was it an insane thing for me to do? And I was like, yo, that's fucking genius, man. Crazy like, equals genius, bro. Yeah, like that's that makes total sense. And again, and so for me, that was like, so you're not only the illest comic book artist maybe ever, but you're also crazy like a fox. And yeah. like you could see these chess moves on how to grow this other, you know, yes, you're going to make the best toys ever. Like that was, it was like, I told my, my designers like, you know, you know how to make these things great? Make them look like the fucking photos. That's how to make them great. Yeah. Don't make them these weird wax figure. No. Make them look like the Realistic. photos. And so it's like, all right, so you've got that part of the Steve Jobs, but then you also have this Kenny about you that you know how to like navigate your way into the right room to get the deal done. Social, businessman, creative. Yep. And all then, comes together, and then but they can, all are, right? Yeah, and that's kind of like, 
to me the most fascinating. I mean, Russ. Yep. Like, great rapper, great songwriter for sure, but his like independent hustle and the strategy behind it is like the part that is the most you know, interesting for me to interrogate. Yeah, it's insane. And he's making and, more money than these other rappers that are signed to these labels or whatever because he owns all his shit. He's got his masters. He's independent. Yep. Yeah. And and those are, and for me, it's like all of these are like, you know, each one of these interviews is another like infinity stone. It's like, because you're like, oh, okay. I can see this and I can apply this to my own business. Yeah. You know? So I'm, I go in with like a genuine curiosity because I'm an entrepreneur with a small business and I'm trying to get it to crack and like I see how you guys are thinking about all these disparate things and like let me let me ask the questions that I'm authentically curious about as as an entrepreneur and small business owner. I mean, it puts you in the perfect spot. I mean, yeah. this really is the collection of your entire life, all the contacts you made, the people you've befriended, the industries you've been in, your interests, learning brand partnerships, putting it all together, and then literally with that wealth of knowledge, asking questions to the greats of the industry and of different industries, like, what can I do to improve? And those are the questions that the audience is ultimately wondering. Totally, because, you know, hopefully most of the audience are like aspiring entrepreneurs. And like, yeah, they... They, they clean the same jewels that I do from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's insane. And all the episodes are great. And I say that having not watched all of them. But uh, what are, I, I love the Mario Carbone one. I thought that was fire. The Russ one's insane. The Just Blaze one, despite the pants rustling, still great. Yes, thank you. What are the other ones that you love that people should check out? Uh, well, I was gonna say, Mario Carbone is probably my favorite. The thing that he says about building a box that every like restaurant lives within Again, it's like one of those like Kanye, Steve Jobs moments where you're just like, yes, like you're doing storytelling. You are committing to a specific aesthetic that is like, you know, it's world building. You're, you built a rule book for this restaurant. Yep. And now everyone that works there from the bus boys to the waiters and waitresses to the hostesses to the line chefs all have to adhere to this rule book. What is the constitution of your little country? Yes. Yeah. And like, I don't know, maybe it, I'm naive, but I never considered in the context of a restaurant that kind of thought process. No one does. But then they go inside and they go, everything works. It all, yeah, it transports, you know, you go into the grill and you're like, I feel like I'm in Mad Men. Yeah. Like, I'm about to have dinner with Don Draper. This is crazy. Like, And restaurants are so great for that because the brand language communicates through everything. Yep. And not only is it outside you, it's inside you. Literally, like it is the most direct way to communicate a brand language. I mean, that's what I love about Apple. Like Steve Jobs comes out with this idea for a store and everyone's like, just a store just to sell your computers? Like it's insane. And he's like, it's not just about the store selling computers. It's about letting people communicate with the brand in a four-dimensional space where they're able to understand what we're about through the people they talk to, through trying out products, through the smell, through the sites and all this minimalist Japanese-inspired yep. architecture. It's more than just a store. It's an experience to communicate who we are as a brand. Okay, so what? not to take... I'm going to get back to your other question about episodes that are my favorite, but so at UMG, I had the good fortune to work... Um, What's UMG? Uh that's the parent company that owns oh, Def Jam. Got you. Um, oh, United Music Group. Got you. Uh, Universal Music Group. That's what I meant to say. Um, <laughs> I, I got to meet with Lucian Grange, the CEO, uh, on a handful of occasions. And like, I just remember at one point sitting with Lucian 
And he's sitting with like a bunch of the senior Def Jam executives. And he's like, what's a brand? And like, I don't know, one exec's like, uh, you know, it's like a, a, a company, a company's identity, um, you know, and someone else throws out like, you know, it's like, you know, you, you're, you look and feel of a company or whatever. And he's like, no, you're all wrong. A brand is a trust that exists between a consumer and a corporation. If you have a brand, you have everything, but it's incredibly fragile and you have to respect the brand. Def Jam has a brand. That's the most important thing and that's the thing that you have to think about. It is a trust. This is like your relationship with your wife or your husband or your partner. This is, it's about them trusting that you will deliver a consistent and reliable experience to them across any and all mediums, whether it's your merch, your albums, your videos, whatever experience they are going to meet your, your corporate identity in, it's going to deliver the same feeling to them. Every fucking time. And like, I was like, yeah. God damn, this guy's fucking smart. I understand why he's the CEO. Yeah. Um, but I talk about that with Schultz sometimes. We're like, we talk about McDonald's and not to compare McDonald's yeah. to Carbone or any other restaurant, but like you go to McDonald's in Japan, yeah. Texas, New York, it all tastes and feels pretty much the same. And that is insane. I, it's, I, most restaurants can't get every burger to taste the same. And they make every burger in the world taste. It's like, I met, I met a brewmaster for uh, uh, Budweiser one time. They, you know, when I was at Complex, like, you know, the liquor industry, they would like come over and do like taste tests and whatever. One time, I can't remember what they were pushing, Bud Select or something like that. They brought this brewmaster and he like broke down. He's like, you have to understand, we have like six like plants across America. Some of them have aluminum barrels that are, you know, 26 tons. Some of them have, you know, oak barrels that are 22 tons. Like every day I sit in St. Louis and I taste beers from these different breweries to make sure that like the acidity is not too high or that this one is not too hoppy or whatever. And then not only that, but then I have to coach the people on the ground in Maine or how to tweak. Yeah. How to tweak it to make it more consistent because a Budweiser has to taste the same in Maine as in Augusta, as in, you know, New Mexico or Seattle. And that guy probably gets paid crazy money just uh, for tasting beer I and making so. it consistent. But I, I say that to say like it, it really like for me was like a, a hot moment of just like, holy shit. Like that, that is, you know, you talk about McDonald's, but like being able to deliver that kind of consistency at that scale is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and yeah, something to aspire towards really like, you know, and whatever we're doing at Complex, I definitely aspired towards that. Um, but yeah, that was, anyway, it was a long tangent, but you can edit this part. Um, <laughs> oh, but getting back to the original thing, like episodes that I really enjoyed, um, and this is not to plug my most recent episode because that's what I'm about to do, but I interviewed Tay Keith, um, who is a hip hop producer from Memphis. Of course. And, you know, I, I went into it because like I like his music, and I'd seen some interviews online. He seemed like a good dude. Um, but I didn't really have like too much expectation as to like, you know, what what was going to come out of it. It was just sort of like, 
yeah, I feel like this is going to be a good booking. And like he, you know, I'd seen some interviews where he seemed like a smart dude. Um, but I'd never really seen him open up. And he really like just impressed the shit out of me. And like we talked and it was like, there's like a, a moment where he's like talking about how he stopped being, a, he started as a rapper, then he became a producer. Um, and he starts like selling beats on like Google, basically on YouTube, getting Google AdSense money, um, just putting like tight beats up. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yo, why did you stop being an artist to become a producer? And he was like, well, because at that point it was like the Dat Piff era. So like, if you were an artist, you just put up mixtapes and people download them for free. There's no way to monetize them. But if you're a producer, you could make tight beats and put them in and use the YouTube algorithm to make Google AdSense. Mm. And so, I figured it out. 14 years old, 15 years old, living in Memphis, you know, a $100 check or a $200 check from Google AdSense would change my month. Um, and I was like, that's pretty ill. And I'm like, so you like, so you were really strategizing how to optimize these things like algorithmically. And he's like, absolutely. Like that was all of this, that was intentional. Whoa. Then we talk about he goes to college and at this point he's like a local producer. He's got some placements with like Black Boy JB and like a bunch of local Memphis artists. Right. You know, he becomes a college DJ, starts throwing parties. And I'm like, yo, did being a DJ change how you think about producing? And he's like, oh, 1000%. Because instantly you see the crowd react. And so I saw the BPMs where all the records that went off were at. And I was like, my beats are too slow. I'm making great street records, yeah, but they're all like 68 to 72 beats per minute. I need to be more in that like 80 beats per minute. And so I adjusted my shit. All of a sudden I start selling more and more beats. There's no but, accidents, bro. Yeah. All these motherfuckers that are there, there's a reason. No, it's all very thoughtful. And then, and then he starts talking about personal shit and was like, insanely forthcoming like and just like and you know i had known that he had dealt with some difficult family stuff um that he sort of alluded to in some other interviews but while we were like waiting for them to get the camera set up we're just chit-chatting all of a sudden like the conversation veers left and he talks about at 18 his mother being diagnosed with schizophrenia and having to have her committed having to like figure out how to um you know, take control of her affairs, create a conservatorship. And I'm like, you know, we get to the end and they're like, okay, we're ready to roll. I'm like, hey man, this is obviously very personal stuff. Are you comfortable talking about this in the interview? If you're not, that's okay. Like we can talk about business and you as a beat maker or whatever. And he was like, no, actually I never talked about it, but I feel like mental health is like, there's stigmas attached to it. And it's like real shit that people go through and I'm, I, I want to do this for other people. Like, and it is hard to talk about, but, and he was incredibly candid about just, you know, and so imagine he's in college, building his career, getting more and more placements, going through like all these, like jumping through legal hoops, having to have his mother committed, having to take control of all of her financial affairs and, you know, battling with the state over this because none of it's easy and she's not in a place to just give him power of attorney or anything. 
And then like in 2018, he has his breakout year where he has Look Alive by Blockboy JB and Drake. Drake. He has Sicko Mode, um, you know, by Travis and Drake. And then he has Not Alike by Eminem and Royce on the Kamikaze album. And then he has Beyonce, uh, the Maze thing. And then he finds out that his mother has terminal cancer. Fuck. Yeah. And I'm just like, that would be a lot to navigate at any point in your life. Like, the, both the good and the bad. But to be dealing with that at 20 years old. Simultaneously. And simultaneously, like, your life is the best it's ever been. But you've essentially had to say goodbye to your mother because she's stopped being the person you knew who raised you. And then she's beset by, you know, stage four cancer. And you only find that out because she's you've committed her to medical care. Fuck. And it's like, you know, and it's whatever. It's, it's the, the adage, you know, you never know what the fuck is going on with people. But like, you talk about like, triumph in the face of adversity and like to try to build your career while you're shouldering that weight as i can't even fucking yeah as and as a really young person like i you know at 43 <sighs> if i did deal with that with my mom it would take my head out of the game completely yeah i can't possibly imagine and you know and he dealt with it and his mother passed in 2021 and you know he's dealing with grief and processing and but he also had an, another explosive year in 2022 and got his career back on track and did like three records on the you know he did the jimmy cook's record for drake yeah, yeah. and then he did like uh maybe three on the 21 average drake record and had a bunch of other placements and it's like that's yeah, insane yeah man like and that's all know, the episode yeah yeah it's a, it's a great it's a great watch because you know, the dude is 26 years old and like he's been through it. And, you know, again, both his insights on the business side are brilliant and thoughtful, but also just like the candor that he can talk about, like really painful shit is like. That's amazing. Yeah. And just like you walk away being like, this is a good human being. Like we are all fortunate that he is walking the earth yeah like and it's you never see that side though no. like like you're a drake fan whatever all of a sudden you just hear the tag take keith like yep. but you don't see the guy behind it that's like has all these influences from his mom playing records in the house that he's inserting into the music that he's dealing with emotionally losing her twice yep i mean the the complexity of it is insane no it's great it's yeah so anyway that that was one again where i just i say that's like i went into it being like I thought this was going to be good and it was like damn i'm getting fucking verklempt like sitting in the seat like shit man i don't want to fucking cry on camera yeah this is real damn i'm gonna check it out so anyway yeah that th those those are some of my favorites uh I'm trying to think what else the, the jason bolden episode was amazing um he's also just a fantastic thinker scooter it was nice because i interviewed him in 2017 so we got to sort of do round two. Oh, cool and it was that was cool because like both of us have like grown and gone through you know wins and losses and ups and downs and like so to sort of be able to commiserate on that 
um, was really dope. Um, and then I also I would just say like the Dwayne Wade episode, you know, Dwayne is someone that like I met again, my wife is friends with Gab Union and I met Dwayne 2014, like when we were dating. And you know, again, like I've always had a very sort of um, outside of like Kanye, distant relationship from quote unquote famous people. And like we've developed a real relationship and friendship that's like really meaningful f- for me. And so to be able to to then sit down with him in a more formal setting and be like, okay, I've been talking to this dude for like seven years in like casual conversation and like some of it deep, some of it really like, you know, not not surface at all. But like, I'm going to ask all of the like questions that would be like kind of strange and formal to like, yeah talk to you know just over lunch yeah exactly um and like again just someone who like thinks about brand and about business in like a really thoughtful compelling way and also is like an inspiration in terms of like how much he has grown and changed through his journey and like you know even just seeing the sort of tail end of it from you know because he was still like 2014, the Heat were still. Yeah, that was like the end of the. He was as high. He was the king of Miami. Yeah, like, insanity. I mean, they named the street after him outside the stadium. Like it's crazy. And yeah. then like his relationship with his wife is is amazing. He seems like an amazing dad too. Oh, like incredible dad. Yeah, and you know, and and to watch him like you know go through the transition from like, I've been playing basketball since I was 13 years old, and then like, now I'm not going to play basketball. That's like a your identity's gone. Yeah, that's like a challenging thing to like and to like to do it with so much grace and also to like do it in such a way where you like are still able to find new things to engage with with that passion and that ambition is like fucking inspiring because it's like yeah, man, like you know, it's it it would be, you know, as as with like complex it was like it would be easy to do this till the wheels fall off, but like you gotta know when to bow out. Yeah, and like, you know, he ended his career like, fucking, still playing a tremendous game on his own terms. You know. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, bro. I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check out all the rest of them. Thank you so Please. much for fucking doing this, bro. This is like, this is the a game that you gave me, and just like the gems are like insane, and just spending the time to connect, bro. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, thank you for being you know interested enough to ask those questions and like always i'll be honest bro i could go another three hours but i'm worried about this camera turning into dust (laughs) but bro seriously thank you so much man this is so great appreciate you brother absolutely